An Introduction to Property Law in the U.S. Stephen Semeraro Professor of Law Thomas Jefferson School of Law VER 2.0 Copyright 2018 Stephen Semeraro www.semaphorepress.com An Introduction to Property Law in the U.S. Stephen Semeraro Copyright and Your Rights, the author retains the copyright in this book. By downloading a copy of this book from the Semaphore Press website, you have made an authorized copy of the book from the website for your personal use. If you lose it, or your computer crashes or is stolen, don't worry. Come back to the Semaphore Press website and download a replacement copy, and don't worry about having to pay again. Just to be clear, Semaphore Press and the authors of this casebook are not granting you permission to reproduce the material and books available on our website except to the extent needed for your personal use. We are not granting you permission to distribute copies either. We ask that you not resell or give away your copy. Please direct people who are interested in obtaining a copy to www.semforapress.com where they can download their own copies. The resale market in the traditional casebook publishing world is part of what drives casebook prices up to $190 or more. When a publisher prices a book at $190, it is factoring in the competition and lost opportunities that the resold books embody for it. Things are different at Semaphore Press, because anyone can get his or her own copy of a Semaphore Press book at a reasonable price, we ask that you help us keep legal casebook materials available at reasonable prices by directing anyone interested in this book to our website. Printing a paper copy If you would like to have a printed copy of the book in addition to the electronic copy, you are welcome to print out a copy of any part, or all, of the book. Please note that you will find blank pages throughout the book. We have inserted these intentionally to facilitate double-sided printing. We anticipate that students may wish to carry only portions of the book at a time. The blank pages are inserted so that each chapter begins on a fresh, top-side page. Finding aids and annotations finally, Please note that the book does not include an index or other finding aids that are conventional for printed books. This is because a semaphore press book, in PDF form, can be searched electronically for any word or phrase in which you are interested. With the book open in Adobe Reader, simply hit Ctrl F, or select the Find option in the Edit pull-down menu, and enter the search term you want to find. Additionally, the PDF version has been bookmarked for easy jumping to sections, or even specific cases, in the book. We also enable readers commenting features in our PDF books, so you can highlight text, insert comments, and personally annotate your copy in other ways you find helpful. If your copy of reader does not appear to permit these commenting features, please check to make sure you have the most recent version, any version numbered 8 or higher should permit you to annotate a semaphore press book. Editing conventions for this book Omissions of substantive material from cases, statutes, and other legal authorities are indicated by ellipses, and the addition of material not found in the original is indicated by brackets. Where bracketed material makes a minor change, such as the tense of a verb, no ellipses is included, despite the possible deletion of a few letters. The following have been omitted generally without indication, citation to authority and associated parentheticals, signals, and references to emphasis being added or in the original, ETAL and similar phrases in case names, 
footnotes, endnotes, and paragraph numbering, quotation marks around directly quoted block quotes, and standard dispositional language at the end of cases. This generally omitted material is included, however, where it, 1, contributes to the teaching goal underlying the inclusion of the case, or, 2, the authority supports a direct quotation. Where a direct quote is not supported with a citation to authority either, 1, the court did not include any citation, or, 2, the quoted material is from the record, the statute, or regulation under review, or a lower court decision in the same case. Parallel citations have been omitted without indication. Citation signals, including supra and infra, are always in italics regardless of the font used in the case itself. In a few cases, the facts or legal analysis has been slightly reordered and long quotations not blocked in the original have been blocked, both for clarity purposes. Forward the basic property course has been a staple of the first-year law school curriculum for more than a century. It differs from most of the other foundational courses, however, in that it does not present a single body of law that a lawyer might reasonably incorporate into a practice area. Instead, the property course typically presents snippets of at least a half-dozen practice areas, including civil rights, commercial real estate transactions, environmental regulation, estate planning, eminent domain, and inverse condemnation practice, land use planning and regulation, landlord-tenant law, nuisance law, and residential real estate transactions. As a result, the course cannot feasibly provide a firm grounding in any one area. Many students have also complained that the traditional property course focuses inordinate amounts of time on arcane and all but irrelevant areas of law, such as the law of legal estates and future interests and the traditional tests by which covenants run with the land. Conversely, students are often shortchanged of more relevant areas such as the law of variances and environmentally based land use regulation. After teaching the basic property course for some time, I have concluded that the traditional curriculum has real value to law students even in areas of limited current practical importance. For the most part, that value does not lie in learning common law decision-making. With some exceptions, such as Pearson v. Post and the early whaling cases, property cases rarely provide particularly useful tools for teaching the common law method. Instead, the property course's value comes from the many instances in which students must apply relatively complicated systems of categorization, such as the law of future interests, the law of finders, the negative easements, and complicated tests, such as the rule against perpetuities, the test for covenants running with the land, and the Penn Central test for regulatory takings. Learning these taxonomies and applying these tests provides students with a useful introduction to the sort of skills that they will need to understand and apply the complex statutory codes that govern many practice areas, including tax, securities, environmental regulation, utilities, and communications. Some have argued for incorporating a statutory interpretation course into the first year of law school. That solution has a number of drawbacks, however. First, selecting which statutory scheme to use is problematic. Most are too complex to properly integrate into a year in which students are already learning so many other new skills. And their sui genus nature may render any particular code a poor tool for teaching general skills. The property course, by contrast, 
provides a wealth of self-contained, manageable material that teaches the general skills necessary to work with any statutory scheme. And, as a side benefit, students learn material that the bar examiners continue to test, despite its limited relevance to modern practice. The property course cannot provide a firm practical grounding in any area of substantive law, but it does provide the opportunity to learn useful skills. For this reason, this is a streamlined property book that presents the tests clearly and provides lots of opportunities to apply them. Cases are used selectively to illustrate examples of insightful analysis, creative lawyering, or tricks of the trade, rather than as a means merely to present rules of law and show their application. In general, the book relies on a regular series of problems, both essay and multiple choice, to teach application. Stephen Semeraro July 2013 Semeraro, Introduction to Property Acknowledgements I must acknowledge the assistance of the many faculty members and students without whom I could not have assembled this book. Without Alex Crate's encouragement and assistance with Chapter V on Landlord-Tenant Law, I may never have begun this project. Maureen Markey generously shared her materials with me when I began teaching property, and her influence is surely felt in more places and ways than I could ever identify. She has also graciously authorized me to include some of her problems in this book. Aaron Schwabach, Brenda Simon, and Claire Wright have been wonderfully supportive colleagues, bringing their vast knowledge of property law to the table whenever I needed consultation. In particular, I want to thank Claire for adopting the book for her classes and providing detailed commentary on every single chapter. I have been luckier than I could ever have imagined in being able to recruit a team of students to assist in this project who have been as dedicated to its completion as they are outstanding in their abilities. Leslie Smith and Jay Temple assisted with the initial research and case editing, contributing greatly to my understanding of how students read and understand property cases. Abigail Kite and Jocelyn Nudauer came on board at the editing stage, courting more of my errors than I am willing to acknowledge here. Mana Porchaban and Benjamin Weiss joined the team when I received an offer from Semaphore Press to publish the book. They helped assemble new sections on the Fair Housing Act and mortgages, edited the teacher's manual, reformatted and updated the entire book, and secured copyright clearance on the many images that appear throughout. This book is available to students outside Thomas Jefferson School of Law only because of Semaphore Press and its founders Lydia Lauren and Joseph Miller. I believe in their mission to make casebooks available to all students through a pay-what-you-want model with a suggested price and free rider option. I wouldn't publish this book any other way. The financial support from Thomas Jefferson School Law, and its commitment to supporting a wide variety of scholarly endeavors including casebooks, has made this project much easier for me than it might have been. Finally, I cannot omit the great contribution made by my property law classes in 2009-10 who used beta versions of this book. Despite the errors and delays attendant to an early draft, they provided encouragement at every step. Their wonderful attitude made the entire project worthwhile. Stephen Semeraro May 2013 I must acknowledge the assistance that I received in the preparation of the second edition of this book. Once again, I thank Lydia Lauren and Joseph Miller for their support and all of the effort that they put into running Semaphore Press. It has worked seamlessly for me and my students for the past five years. 
They have also been gracious and helpful in allowing me to make minor changes throughout the years and with the more significant changes involved in the new edition. I also again thank all of my property law students who have used this book and provided support, encouragement, and suggestions. In particular, I must mention two students. First, Julia Whitney carefully read the first edition of this book as a student with the attention of a superior proofreader. She caught mistakes big and small that escaped many eyes before hers. Second, Lori Minter provided invaluable assistance creating and reviewing the new material for this edition. Stephen Semeraro October 2018 Semeraro, Introduction to Property Semeraro, Introduction to Property and Introduction to Property Law in the U.S. Stephen Semeraro Table of Contents Chapter 1, Defining Property and the Uncertain Right to Exclude. 1i Introducing Property's Instrumental Role. 1 Pearson v. Post. 1 Gun v. Rich, 5-2. Pursuing Instrumental Goals in Shaping the Right to Exclude, 7 Amalgamated Food Employees Union v. Logan Valley Plaza. 8 Lloyd v. Tanner. 13 Hodgins v. NLRB, 18 Pruneyard Shopping Center v. Robbins. 19-3. The Right to Exclude on Land Not Generally Open to the Public, 25 Jacques v. Steinberg Homes, Inc., 25 State v. Shack. 32 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property, 37i. The Taxonomy of Estates, 37a. A Word About Learning Estates. 38b Estates and Future Interest Terminology. 38-2. Present Possessorate Estates. 39a Language Used to Create and Convey Estates. 39b. An illustrative case. 40 White v. Brown. 41-3. Future interests following naturally terminating estates. 44a. Naming future interests based on who holds them. 45b. Protecting future interest holders. The concept of waste. 46. Problem set number 1. Present possessorate interests and future interests following naturally terminating estates. 47.4. Defeasible Estates. 49a Defeasing Clauses. 49b. An Illustrative Case. 51 Marenholz v. CTYBD of School Trustees. 51 Problem Set Number 2, Defeasible Estates and the Future Interests Following Them.57 v. Classifying Remainders. 59 Problem Set Number 3, Future Interests. 63 Estate and Future Interest Short Essay Questions, 65 Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Table of Contents 6. Devices to Control the Use of Contingent Future Interests, 67A. The Rule in Shelley's Case and the Doctrine of Worthier Title, 67B. The Destructibility of Contingent Remainders Doctrine and the Rule Against Perpetuities, 68-1. The Destructibility of Contingent Remainders. 68-2. The Rule Against Perpetuities. 69-A Defining the RAP. 69-B. Three-Step RAP Analysis. 71-C. The Tricks of the RAP Trade. 73-D Efforts to Reform RAP. 74 Problem Set Number 4, Rules Limiting Contingent Interests and RAP. 75 Review Estates and Future Interests Multiple Choice Questions 78 Chapter 3, Concurrent Property Interests, 
81i types of concurrent ownership, 81 United States v. Kraft, 81-2. Distinguishing CO ownership interests. 83 illustrative cases. 84 Tenhet v. Boswell. 84 Harms v. Sprague. 87-3. Actions among CO owners. 90A Accounting Action. 90B Partition Action, 91 Delfino v. Vila NCIS. 91 C. Ouster, 95 Spiller v. McAreth, 95-4. Allocating Costs Among CO Owners, 97 Swartzbaugh v. Sampson. 98 CO Ownership Short Essay Questions, 102 Chapter 4, Landlord-Tenant Law, 105I. The Four Types of Leases, 105A. The Term of Years Lease, 105B Periodic Tenancy, 105C Tenancy at Will. 107D Tenancy at Sufferance, Holdover Tenants, 107A. An Illustrative Case, 108 Creckhale and Pauls, Inc. v. Smith, 1082. The Rights and Duties of Landlords and Tenants. 110 Semeraro, Introduction to Property Table of Contents 3A Delivery of Possession. 110 Hannon v. Dush. 111 B. Tenants' Rights to Well-Maintained Property. 115 1. Covenant of Quiet Enjoyment. 116 Rest Realty Corp. v. Cooper. 116 2. Implied Warranty of Habitability, 124 Hilder v. St. Peter. 125 C. Prohibitions on Discrimination in Rental Housing. 131 1. Civil Rights Act of 1866. 131 Jones v. Alfred H. Mayerko. 132 2. Fair Housing Act of 1968. 134 Broom v. Biondi. 134 D. Retaliatory Conduct by Landlords, 138 E. Waste in the Modern Landlord Tenant Context. 139 F. Right to assign and sublease, 139-1. Distinguishing assignments from subleases, 139-2. Illustrative cases. 141 Italian Fisherman v. Middlemas. 141 Christensen v. Tidewater Fiber. 144 Assignment and Sublease Short Problems. 146 Guaranese Restrictions on the Right to Assignment and Sublease, 146 Kendall v. Ernest Pestana, Inc., 146H Landlord Response to Tenant Breach, 152 I Tort Liability to Tenants or Third Parties, 152 Landlord-Tenant Short Essay Questions, 153 Chapter 5, Acquisition Without a Voluntary Transfer, 157 I Acquiring Property Rights by Find, 157A Abandoned Property. 158B Lost Property, 158 Armory v. D. Lamory. 158C Mislaid Property. 159 McAvoy v. Medina. 159D Treasure Trove, 160 Corliss v. Winner. 161E Applying Finders Law. 165 Hannah v. Peel. 165 Benjamin v. Lindner Aviation Inc., 171 Semeraro, 
Introduction to Property 4 Table of Contents in RE, Seizure of $82,000 More or Less, Jeffrey Chapel v. United States. 176 F Shipwrecks and Milestone Baseballs, 180 Finders Law Short Essay Question. 181 2. Acquisition by Adverse Possession. 181 A. The Elements of Adverse Possession, 182 B Color of Title, 184 C Tacking, 184 D Ownership Transfer During the Adverse Possession Period, 184 E Adverse Possession Against the Government. 185 F Disabilities, 185 Adverse Possession Short Essay Question. 185 Guaranese Adverse Possession and Property Boundaries, 186 Manilo v. Gorski, 186 Adverse Possession Essay Questions. 191 Finders and Adverse Possession Practice Multiple Choice. 193 3. Acquisition through Creation. 195 A property rights in ducks attracted to a decoy pond. 195 Keeble v. Hickeringil. 195 B property rights in hot news. 197 International News Service v. Associated Press. 197 C property rights in dress patterns. 213 Cheney Brothers v. Dora Silk Corporation. 213 D property rights in trademarks. 215 Smith, D slash B slash Ataran, Inc. v. Chanel, Inc. 215 Chapter 6, Land Transfers. 223 I negotiation and contracts for the sale of land. 223 A statute of frauds. 224 B exceptions to the statute of frauds. 224 Walker v. Irritan. 225 Hickey v. Green. 228 B marketable title. 231 Humphreys v. Abels. 231 C duty to disclose. 234 Stombovsky v. Ackley. 235 Land contract short essay questions. 242 Mortgages. 248 Limitations of Foreclosure of Traditional Mortgages 242 Semeraro, Introduction to Property Table of Contents v. Murphy v. Financial Development Corp. 242 B Limitations on Forfeiture in Installment Land Sale Contracts, 247 Skensel v. Marshall 248 C. The Mortgaged-Backed Investment Market and New Limits on Foreclosure 252d Unfair Lending Standards, 253e Inadequate Documentation of Mortgage Ownership. 254.3. Deeds. 254a Deed Covenants. 254.1. Present Covenants. 254a Covenant of Season. 254b Covenant of the Right to Convey. 255 C Covenant Against Encumbrances 255 2 Future Covenants, 255 A Covenant of General Warranty 255 B Covenant of Quiet Enjoyment 255 C Covenant of Further Assurances 256 B Types of Deeds 256 C Illustrative Cases 
256 Brown v. Lober 256 Rockefeller v. Gray 260 Deed Covenant Short Essay Questions 264 4 Deed Delivery 265 Rosengrant v. Rosengrant 266 v. Recording Systems 269 a. Conducting a Title Search 270 b. Priority among Property Interest Holders and Recording Acts 271 1. Common Law Rule of First in Time 271 2. Recording Acts, 272 a. Race Recording Act 272 b. Notice Recording Act 272 c. Race Notice Recording Act 273 c. Illustrative Cases, 274 Board of Education of Minneapolis v. Hughes, 274 Harper v. Paradise, 276 Lake Meredith Development Co. v. City of Fritch, 279 Recording Act Short Essay. Questions, 281 Chapter 7, Public Regulation of Land Use. 283 Semeraro, Introduction to Property 6 Table of Contents I Nuisance. 283 A Identifying Nuisances 283 McCarty v. Natural Carbonic Gasco 284 B. Remedying Nuisances 286 2. Zoning 288 A Constitutional Concerns 288 Village of Euclid, Ohio v. Ambler Real Deco 289 Nectow v. City of Cambridge 298 B. Flexibility in Zoning 301 Nonconforming Use, 301 PA Northwestern Distribs v. Zoning Hearing BD of Moon Township, 301 C. Vested Rights Doctrine 306 D. Variance 307 Commons v. Westwood Zoning BD of Adjustment 308 E. Zoning Amendments and Spot Zoning 314 State by Rochester Association of Neighborhoods v. City of Rochester 314 F. Aesthetic Zoning and Speech Issues 318 City of Ladue v. Gilio 318 G. Discriminatory Zoning 325 1. Household Composition Zoning 325 More v. City of East Cleveland 325 2. Discrimination Based on Suspect Classifications 328 City of Edmonds v. Oxford House 329 Southern Burlington County NAACP v. Township of Mount Laurel 333 Zoning Review Questions 343 Takings and Eminent Domain, 341A Just Compensation 342 B. Public Use 343 Kilo v. City of New London 343 County of Wayne v. Hathcock 356 Public Use Short Essay Question 361 C. What constitutes a taking of private property? 361 Pennsylvania Cole County v. Mahone 362 D. Per S.E. Takings 367 Loretto v. Teleprompter Manhattan CATV Corp., 367 Lucas v. South Carolina Coastal Council, 373 E. General Takings Test, 380 Semeraro, 
Introduction to Property Table of Contents 7 Murphy, Wisconsin 383 F Government Defenses to Compensation Claims When a Taking Has Occurred 391 1 Background Property Principles 391 Lucas v. South Carolina Coastal Council, 391-2 Exactions 396 Nolan v. California Coastal Commission, 397 Dolan v. City of Tigard, 401 Takings Checklist 409 Review Case, 410 Tahoe Sierra Preservation Council v. Tahoe Reg L Planning Agency, 410 Regulatory Takings Short Essay Questions 427 Chapter 8, Private Regulation of Land Use 429 I Categories of Easements 430 A Easement Created by Deed 432 Willard v. First Church of Christ Scientist 432 B Easement Implied from Pre-Existing Use 435 Van Sant v. Royster 435 C. Easement implied from absolute necessity, 437 Groff v. Scanlon, 437 2. Irrevocable licenses. 441 Henry v. Dalton. 442 Holbrook v. Taylor. 444 Shepherd v. Pavine. 446 3. Scope and termination of easements. 450 Preci Alt v. United States. 451 4. Negative easements. 460 Peterson v. Friedman, 461 Easement Short Essay Questions. 463 v. Private Land Use Agreements. 464 Running with the Land Problem Set. 469 6. Private Land Use Agreements and Property Development. 470 Sanborn v. McLean 471-7 Restrictive Covenants and Civil Rights Law, 473 Hill v. Community of Damien of Molokai, 475-8 Terminating Private Land Use Agreements, 481 Western Land v. Trusko-Lasky, 481 Semeraro, Introduction to Property 8 Table of Contents 9 Common Interest Communities 484 Narstadt v. Lakeside Village Condo 486 Covenants and Servitudes Short Practice Essay 495 Exam Appendix A, Chapters 1-4, 497 Practice Exam 1, 497 Practice Exam 2 498 Practice Exam 3 500 Exam Appendix B, Chapters 5-8 502 Practice Exam 1 502 Practice Exam 2 503 Practice Exam 3 503 Practice Exam 4 505 Semeraro, Introduction to Property and Introduction to Property Law in the U.S. Copyright 2018 Stephen Semeraro Version 2.0 Please note, generally, omissions of substance are indicated with an ellipsis, but omissions of citations or footnotes are not. For more detailed information, please see the book's front matter. Chapter 1, Defining Property and the Uncertain Right to Exclude the Traditional View of Private Property is One of Complete Dominion and Control. A property rights holder thus had the absolute right to exclude anyone from his property for virtually any reason. 
Whether such a regime actually existed is a matter for historians to debate. It certainly does not exist today. Although the courts continue to regard the right to exclude as the most significant component of private property rights, it is far from absolute. Examples include civil rights laws prohibiting discrimination in the sale and renting of housing, rent control and other limits on a landlord's ability to evict tenants, and laws requiring access to the wet sand beach over private property. More generally, in modern democracies, governments define property as part of an ongoing effort to achieve particular instrumental goals and to make their society better. As a result, the meaning of private property rights will differ depending on the context in which the right is claimed and the legal system defining it. And this principle even applies to the core right to exclude. I introducing property's instrumental role to see how government uses property rights to pursue an instrumental vision of a better society, we begin with two cases dealing with the manner in which individuals acquire property rights in previously unowned wild animals. In comparing these cases, think about the factors that led one court to require literal capture of the animal and the other to require something less. There are many differences, but which ones were determinative? Pearson v. Post 3 CAI. R 175, New York Sup 1805, Tompkins, Judge, this cause comes before us on a return to a certiorari directed to one of the justices of Queens County. The question submitted by the counsel in this cause for our determination is, whether Lodowick Post, by the pursuit with his hounds in the manner alleged in his declaration, acquired such a right to, or property in, the fox, as will sustain an action against Pearson for killing and taking him away. The cause was argued with much ability by the counsel on both sides, and presents for our decision a novel and nice question. It is admitted that a fox is an animal ferinatory, and that property in such animals is acquired by occupancy only. These admissions narrow the discussion to the simple question of what acts amount to occupancy, applied to acquiring right to wild animals. If we have recourse to the ancient writers upon general principles of law, the judgment below is obviously erroneous. Justinian's Institutes and Fleta adopt the principle, Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Chapter 1, defining property that pursuit alone vests no property or right in the huntsman, and that even pursuit, accompanied with wounding, is equally ineffectual for that purpose, unless the animal be actually taken. The same principle is recognized by Bracton. Puff Endorf defines occupancy of beasts ferinatory, to be the actual corporal possession of them, and Binkerschuk is cited as coinciding in this definition. It is indeed with hesitation that Puff Endorf affirms that a wild beast mortally wounded, or greatly maimed, cannot be fairly intercepted by another, whilst the pursuit of the person inflicting the wound continues. The foregoing authorities are decisive to show that mere pursuit gave Post no legal right to the fox, but that he became the property of Pearson, who intercepted and killed him. It therefore only remains to inquire whether there are any contrary principles, or authorities, to be found in other books, which ought to induce a different decision. Most of the cases which have occurred in England, relating to property in wild animals, have either been discussed and decided upon the principles of their positive statute regulations, or have arisen between the huntsman and the owner of the land upon which beasts ferinatory have been apprehended, the former claiming them by title of occupancy, 
and the latter rationally solely. Little satisfactory aid can, therefore, be derived from the English reporters. Barbiruk, in his notes on Puff Endorf, does not accede to the definition of occupancy by the latter, but, on the contrary, affirms, that actual bodily seizure is not, in all cases, necessary to constitute possession of wild animals. He does not, however, describe the acts which, according to his ideas, will amount to an appropriation of such animals to private use, so as to exclude the claims of all other persons, by title of occupancy, to the same animals, and he is far from averring that pursuit alone is sufficient for that purpose. To a certain extent, and as far as Barbaric appears to me to go, his objections to Puffendorf's definition of occupancy are reasonable and correct. That is to say, that actual bodily seizure is not indispensable to acquire right to, or possession of, wild beasts, but that, on the contrary, the mortal wounding of such beasts, by one not abandoning his pursuit, may, with the utmost propriety, be deemed possession of him, since, thereby, the pursuer manifests an unequivocal intention of appropriating the animal to his individual use, has deprived him of his natural liberty, and brought him within his certain control. So also, encompassing and securing such animals with nets and toils, or otherwise intercepting them in such a manner as to deprive them of their natural liberty, and render escape impossible, may justly be deemed to give possession of them to those persons who, by their industry and labor, have used such means of apprehending them. Barbaric seems to have adopted, and had in view in his notes, the more accurate opinion of Grotius, with respect to occupancy. That celebrated author, speaking of occupancy, indicates that trapping or limiting the animal's freedom is necessary. This qualification embraces the full extent of Barbaric's objection to Puffendorf's definition, and allows as great a latitude to acquiring property by occupancy, as can reasonably be inferred from the words or ideas expressed by Barbaric in his notes. The case now under consideration is one of mere pursuit, and presents no circumstances or acts which can bring it within the definition of occupancy by Puff Endorf or Grotius or the ideas of Barbaric upon that subject. The case cited. Keeble v. Hickeringil, 1707, I think clearly distinguishable from the present, inasmuch as there the action was for maliciously hindering and disturbing the plaintiff in the exercise and enjoyment of a private franchise, and in the report of the same case, Holt, C.H.J. states, that the ducks were in the plaintiff's decoy pond, and so Ed note, an excerpt from Keeble v. Hickeringil, is reproduced in Chapter 5. Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Introduction 3 in his possession, from which it is obvious the court laid much stress in their opinion upon the plaintiff's possession of the ducks, rationi soli. We are the more readily inclined to confine possession or occupancy of beasts ferri naturi, within the limits prescribed by the learned authors above cited, for the sake of certainty, and preserving peace and order in society. If the first seeing, starting, or pursuing such animals, without having so wounded, circumvented, or ensnared them, so as to deprive them of their natural liberty, and subject them to the control of their pursuer, should afford the basis of actions against others for intercepting and killing them, it would prove a fertile source of quarrels and litigation. However uncourteous or unkind the conduct of Pearson towards Post, in image source, 
Stock Exchange, www.sxc.hu This instance, may have been, yet his act was productive of no injury or damage for which a legal remedy can be applied. We are of opinion the judgment below was erroneous, and ought to be reversed. Livingston, Judge, my opinion differs from that of the court. Of six exceptions, taken to the proceedings below, all are abandoned except the third, which reduces the controversy to a single question. Whether a person who, with his own hounds, starts and hunts a fox on waste and uninhabited ground, and is on the point of seizing his prey, acquires such an interest in the animal, as to have a right of action against another, who in view of the huntsman and his dogs in full pursuit, and with knowledge of the chase, shall kill and carry him away. This is a knotty point, and should have been submitted to the arbitration of sportsmen, without pouring over Justinian, Fleta, Bracton, Puff Endorf, Locke, Barbiruk, or Blackstone, all of whom have been cited, they would have had no difficulty in coming to a prompt and correct conclusion. In a court thus constituted, the skin and carcass of poor Reynard would have been properly disposed of, and a precedent set, interfering with no usage or custom which the experience of ages has sanctioned, and which must be so well known to every votary of Diana. But the parties have referred the question to our judgment, and we must dispose of it as well as we can, from the partial lights we possess, leaving to a higher tribunal, the correction of any mistake which we may be so unfortunate as to make. By the pleadings it is admitted that a fox is a wild and noxious beast. Both parties have regarded him, as the law of nations does a pirate, hostem humani generis, and although de mortuus nil nisi bonum, be a maxim of our profession, the memory of the deceased has not been spared. His depredations on farmers and on barnyards, have not been forgotten, and to put him to death wherever found, is allowed to be meritorious, and a public benefit. Hence it follows, that our decision should have in view the greatest possible encouragement to the destruction of an animal, so cunning and ruthless in his career. But who would keep a pack of hounds, or what gentleman, at the sound of the horn, and at peep of day, would mount his steed, and for hours together, sub Joe Frigido, or a vertical sun, pursue the windings of this wily quadruped, if, just as night came on, and his stratagems and strength were nearly exhausted, a saucy intruder, who had not shared in the honors or labors of the chase, were permitted to come in at the death, and bear away Semeraro, Introduction to Property 4 Chapter 1. Defining Property in Triumph the Object of Pursuit? Whatever Justinian may have thought of the matter, it must be recollected that his code was compiled many hundred years ago, and it would be very hard indeed, at the distance of so many centuries, not to have a right to establish a rule for ourselves. In his day, we read of no order of men who made it a business, in the language of the declaration in this cause, with hounds and dogs to find, start, pursue, hunt, and chase, these animals, and that, too, without any other motive than the preservation of Roman poultry, if this diversion had been then in fashion, the lawyers who composed his institutes, would have taken care not to pass it by, without suitable encouragement. If anything, therefore, in the digests or pandex shall appear to militate against the defendant in error, who, on this occasion, was the fox hunter, we have only to say tempora mutantur, and if men themselves change with the times, 
why should not laws also undergo an alteration? It may be expected, however, by the learned counsel, that more particular notice be taken of their authorities. I have examined them all, and feel great difficulty in determining, whether to acquire dominion over a thing, before in common, it be sufficient that we barely see it, or know where it is, or wish for it, or make a declaration of our will respecting it, or whether, in the case of wild beasts, setting a trap, or lying in wait, or starting, or pursuing, be enough, or if an actual wounding, or killing, or bodily tact and occupation be necessary. Writers on general law, who have favored us with their speculations on these points, differ on them all, but, great as is the diversity of sentiment among them, some conclusion must be adopted on the question immediately before us. After mature deliberation, I embrace that of Barbiruk, as the most rational, and least liable to objection. If at liberty, we might imitate the courtesy of a certain emperor, who, to avoid giving offense to the advocates of any of these different doctrines, adopted a middle course, and by ingenious distinctions, rendered it difficult to say, as often happens after a fierce and angry contest, to whom the palm of victory belonged. He ordained, that if a beast be followed with large dogs and hounds, he shall belong to the hunter, not to the chance occupant, and in like manner, if he be killed or wounded with a lance or sword, but if chased with beagles only, then he passed to the captor, not to the first pursuer. If slain with a dart, a sling, or a bow, he fell to the hunter, if still in chase, and not to him who might afterwards find and seize him. Now, as we are without any municipal regulations of our own, and the pursuit here, for aught that appears on the case, being with dogs and hounds of imperial stature, we are at liberty to adopt one of the provisions just cited, which comports also with the learned conclusion of Barbiruk, that property in animals feri naturi may be acquired without bodily touch or manu caption, provided the pursuer be within reach, or have a reasonable prospect, which certainly existed here, of taking, what he has thus discovered an intention of converting to his own use. When we reflect also that the interest of our husbandmen, the most useful of men in any community, will be advanced by the destruction of a beast so pernicious and incorrigible, we cannot greatly err, in saying, that a pursuit like the present, through waste and unoccupied lands, and which must inevitably and speedily have terminated in corporal possession, or bodily season, confers such a right to the object of it, as to make any one a wrongdoer, who shall interfere and shoulder the spoil. The justice's judgment ought, therefore, in my opinion, to be affirmed. Semeraro, Introduction to Property I Introduction 5 Gen V Rich 8 F 159, D Massachusetts 1881, Nelson, Judge, this is a libel to recover the value of a finback whale. The libel land lives in Provincetown and the respondent in Wellfleet. The facts, as they appeared at the hearing, are as follows, in the early spring months the easterly part of Massachusetts Bay is frequented by the species of whale known as the finback whale. Fishermen from Provincetown pursue them in open boats from the shore, and shoot them with bomb lances fired from guns made expressly for the purpose. When killed they sink at once to the bottom, but in the course of from one to three days they rise and float on the surface. Some of them are picked up by vessels and towed into Provincetown. 
some float ashore at high water and are left stranded on the beach as the tide recedes. Others float out to sea and are never recovered. The person who happens to find them on the beach usually sends word to Provincetown, and the owner comes to the spot and removes the blubber. The finder usually receives a small salvage for his services. Try works are established in Provincetown for trying out the oil. The business is of considerable extent, but, since it requires skill and experience, as well as some outlay of capital, and is attended with great exposure and hardship, few persons engage in it. The average yield of oil is about 20 barrels to a whale. It swims with great swiftness, and for that reason cannot be taken by the harpoon and line. Each boat's crew engaged in the business has its peculiar mark or device on its lances, and in this way it is known by whom a whale is killed. The usage on Cape Cod, for many years, has been that the person who kills a whale in the manner and under the circumstances described, owns it, and this right has never been disputed until this case. The libel land has been engaged in this business for ten years past. On the morning of April 9, 1880, in Massachusetts Bay, near the end of Cape Cod, he shot and instantly killed with a bomb lance the whale in question. It sunk immediately, and on the morning of the 12th was found stranded on the beach in Brewster, within the ebb and flow of the tide, by one Ellis, 17 miles from the spot where it was killed. Instead of sending word to Provincetown, as is customary, Ellis advertised the whale for sale at auction, and sold it to the respondent, who shipped off the blubber and tried out the oil. The Liebelland heard of the finding of the whale on the morning of the 15th, and immediately sent one of his boat's crew to the place and claimed it. Neither the respondent nor Ellis knew the whale had been killed by the libel lant, but they knew or might have known, if they had wished, that it had been shot and killed with a bomb lance, by some person engaged image source, stock exchange, www.sxc.hu in this species of business. The libel land claims title to the whale under this usage. The respondent insists that this usage is invalid. It was decided by Judge Sprague, in Tabor v. Jenny, 1 Sprague, 315, that when a whale has been killed, and is anchored and left with marks of appropriation, it is the property of the captors, and if it is afterwards found, still anchored, by another ship, there is no usage or principle of law by which the property of the original captors is semeraro, introduction to property 6 chapter 1, defining property diverted, even though the whale may have dragged from its anchorage. The learned judge says, when the whale had been killed and taken possession of by the boat of the hillman, the first taker, it became the property of the owners of that ship, and all was done which was then practicable in order to secure it. They left it anchored, with unequivocal marks of appropriation. In Bartlett v. Budd, 1 Low. 223, the facts were these, the first officer of the Libellans ship killed a whale in the Okotsk Sea, anchored it, attached a wave to the body, and then left it and went ashore at some distance for the night. The next morning the boats of the respondent's ship found the whale adrift, the anchor not holding, the cable coiled round the body, and no wave or irons attached to it. Judge Lowell held that, as the libel lance had killed and taken actual possession of the whale, the ownership vested in them. In his opinion the learned judge says, a whale, being ferri 
does not become property until a firm possession has been established by the taker. But when such possession has become firm and complete, the right of property is clear, and has all the characteristics of property. He doubted whether a usage set up but not proved by the respondents, that a whale found adrift in the ocean is the property of the finder, unless the first taker should appear and claim it before it is cut in, would be valid, and remarked that there would be great difficulty in upholding a custom that should take the property of A and give it to B, under so very short and uncertain a substitute for the statute of limitations, and one so open to fraud and deceit. Both the cases cited were decided without reference to usage, upon the ground that the property had been acquired by the first taker by actual possession and appropriation. In Swift v. Gifford, too low. 110, Judge Lowell decided that a custom among whalemen in the Arctic seas, that the iron holds the whale was reasonable and valid. In that case a boat's crew from the respondent's ship pursued and struck a whale in the Arctic Ocean, and the harpoon and the line attached to it remained in the whale, but did not remain fast to the boat. A boat's crew from the Libellance ship continued the pursuit and captured the whale, and the master of the respondent's ship claimed it on the spot. It was held by the learned judge that the whale belonged to the respondents. It was said by Judge Sprague, in Bourne v. Ashley, an unprinted case referred to by Judge Lowell in Swift v. Gifford, that the usage for the first iron, whether attached to the boat or not, to hold the whale was fully established, and he added that, although local usages of a particular port ought not to be allowed to set aside the general maritime law, this objection did not apply to a custom which embraced an entire business, and had been concurred in for a long time by everyone engaged in the trade. In Swift v. Gifford, Judge Lowell also said, the rule of law invoked in this case is one of very limited application. The whale fishery is the only branch of industry of any importance in which it is likely to be much used, and if a usage is found to prevail generally in that business, it will not be open to the objection that it is likely to disturb the general understanding of mankind by the interposition of an arbitrary exception. I see no reason why the usage proved in this case is not as reasonable as that sustained in the cases cited. Its application must necessarily be extremely limited, and can affect but a few persons. It has been recognized and acquiesced in for many years. It requires in the first taker the only act of appropriation that is possible in the nature of the case. Unless it is sustained, this branch of industry must necessarily cease, for no person semeraro, introduction to property I introduction 7 would engage in it if the fruits of his labor could be appropriated by any chance finder. It gives reasonable salvage for securing or reporting the property. That the rule works well in practice is shown by the extent of the industry which has grown up under it, and the general acquiescence of a whole community interested to dispute it. It is by no means clear that without regard to usage the common law would not reach the same result. That seems to be the effect of the decisions in Tabor v. Jenny and Bartlett v. Bud. If the fisherman does all that is possible to do to make the animal his own, that would seem to be sufficient. Such a rule might well be applied in the interest of trade, there being no usage or custom to the contrary. Holmes, Commander Law, 217. But be that as it may, I hold the usage to be valid, and that the property in the whale was in the Libland. The rule of damages is the market value of the oil obtained from the whale, 
less the cost of trying it out and preparing it for the market, with interest on the amount so ascertained from the date of conversion. As the question is new and important, and the suit is contested on both sides, more for the purpose of having it settled than for the amount involved, I shall give no costs. Decree for libel land for $71.05, without costs. Notes and Questions 1. In reading Pearson and Gunn, think about the cases from the perspective of, a, the authorities on which the courts relied and, b, the instrumental goals, often referred to as policy issues, that the judges pursued. Which do you think was a more important factor in the court's decisions? 2. With respect to the authorities cited, expert treatises in Pearson and cases Ingden, consider whether those authorities provided a clear answer to the question before the court. In Pearson, Judge Livingston's dissenting opinion should make the answer clear. Ingden, you have to decide for yourself whether the authorities left open a path to the opposite result. 3. After considering the authorities cited by the court, consider whether policy influenced the court's decisions. What social goals did the judges believe to be important? Might these instrumental interests explain why the court required actual capture to obtain property rights in a fox, but not a whale? Would the court's decisions effectively advance the policy goals that they sought? Try to think of reasons why the courts may have undermined the very goals that the judges sought to foster. 2. Pursuing instrumental goals in shaping the right to exclude society's concerns have changed somewhat since Pearson and Gunn were decided. But the same underlying goal remains. How can property rights improve our society? One question that courts regularly face is, to what extent must the private property rights of a property owner accommodate the free speech rights of those who do not own the property? Under the traditional Blackstonian view, private property rights always triumph. A property owner in an absolutist world may exclude anyone from his property for any reason. Under the law applicable in the United States today, the situation is more complicated. The following cases illustrate the modern approach by considering the extent to which the owners of private shopping centers must allow employees or patrons to exercise their free speech rights on shopping center property. As you read these cases, Focus on the factors that the courts consider in deciding the scope of the property owner's rights. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 8 Chapter 1, Defining Property Amalgamated Food Employees Union v. Logan Valley Plaza 391 U.S. 308, 1968, Marshall, Justice, this case presents the question whether peaceful picketing of a business enterprise located within a shopping center can be enjoined on the ground that it constitutes an unconsented invasion of the property rights of the owners of the land on which the center is situated. We granted certiorari to consider petitioners' contentions that the decisions of the state courts enjoining their picketing as a trespass are violative of their rights under the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the United States Constitution. We reverse. The Logan Valley Mall is a shopping center located on a heavily traveled highway along which traffic moves at a fairly high rate of speed. There are five entrance roads into the center. Aside from these five entrances, the shopping center is totally separated from the adjoining roads by earthen berms. At the time of the events in this case, Logan Valley Mall was occupied by two businesses, Weiss Markets, Incorporated, Weiss, the other respondent herein, and Sears, Roebuck & Co., Sears, 
although other enterprises were then expected and have since moved into the center. Weiss operates a supermarket and Sears operates both a department store and an automobile service center. The Weiss property consists of the enclosed supermarket building, an open but covered porch along the front of the building, and an approximately 5-foot wide parcel pickup zone that runs 30 to 40 feet along the porch. The porch functions as a sidewalk in front of the building and the pickup zone is used as a temporary parking place for the loading of purchases into customers' cars by Weiss employees. Between the Weiss building and the highway berms are extensive macadam parking lots with parking spaces and driveways lined off thereon. These areas, to which Logan retains title, provide common parking facilities for all the businesses in the shopping center. On December 8, 1965, Weiss opened for business, employing a wholly non-union staff of employees. A few days after it opened for business, Weiss posted a sign on the exterior of its building prohibiting trespassing or soliciting by anyone other than its employees on its porch or parking lot. On December 17, 1965, members of Amalgamated Food Employees Union, Local 590, began picketing Weiss. They carried signs stating that the Weiss market was non-union and that its employees were not receiving union wages or other union benefits. The picketing was carried out almost entirely in the parcel pickup area and that portion of the parking lot immediately adjacent thereto. Although some congestion of the parcel pickup area occurred, such congestion was sporadic and infrequent. The picketing was peaceful at all times and unaccompanied by either threats or violence. On December 27, Weiss and Logan instituted an action in equity in the Court of Common Pleas of Blair County, and that court immediately issued an ex part order enjoining petitioners from, inter alia, p. icting and trespassing upon asterisk 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 the Weiss storeroom, porch, and parcel pickup area asterisk 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 and the Logan parking area and all entrances and exits leading to said parking area. The effect of this order was to require that all picketing be carried on along the berms beside the public roads outside the shopping center. Picketing continued along the berms and, in addition, handbills asking the public not to patronize Weiss because it was non-union were distributed, while petitioners contested the validity of the ex part injunction. After an evidentiary hearing, which resulted in the establishment of the facts set forth above, the Court of Common Pleas continued indefinitely its original ex part injunction without modification. That court explicitly rejected petitioners' claim under the First Amendment that they were entitled to picket within the confines of the shopping center. The trial judge Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Shaping the Right 9 held that the injunction was justified in order to protect respondents' property rights. On appeal the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, with three justices dissenting, affirmed the issuance of the injunction on the sole ground that petitioners' conduct constituted a trespass on respondents' property. We start from the premise that peaceful picketing carried on in a location open generally to the public is, absent other factors involving the purpose or manner of the picketing, protected by the First Amendment. The case squarely presents, therefore, the question whether Pennsylvania's generally valid rules against trespass to private property can be applied in these circumstances to bar petitioners from the Weiss and Logan premises. It is clear that if the shopping center premises were not privately owned but instead constituted the business area of a municipality, which they to a large extent resemble, 
petitioners could not be barred from exercising their First Amendment rights there on the sole ground that title to the property was in the municipality. Streets, sidewalks, parks, and other similar public places are so historically associated with the exercise of First Amendment rights that access to them for the purpose of exercising such rights cannot constitutionally be denied broadly and absolutely. This court has also held, in Marsh v. Alabama, 326 U.S. 501, 1946, that under some circumstances property that is privately owned may, at least for First Amendment purposes, be treated as though it were publicly held. In Marsh, the appellant, a Jehovah's Witness, had undertaken to distribute religious literature on a sidewalk in the business district of Chickasaw, Alabama. Chickasaw, a so-called company town, was wholly owned by the Gulf Shipbuilding Corporation. The property consists of residential buildings, streets, a system of sewers, a sewage disposal plant and a business block on which business places are situated. Asterisk 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 Tehe residents use the business block as their regular shopping center. To do so, they now, as they have for many years, make use of a company-owned paved street and sidewalk located alongside the storefronts in order to enter and leave the stores and the post office. Intersecting company-owned roads at each end of the business block lead into a four-lane public highway which runs parallel to the business block at a distance of 30 feet. There is nothing to stop highway traffic from coming onto the business block and upon arrival a traveler may make free use of the facilities available there. In short the town and its shopping district are accessible to and freely used by the public in general and there is nothing to distinguish them from any other town and shopping center except the fact that the title to the property belongs to a private corporation. 326 U.S. at 502-03 The corporation had posted notices in the stores stating that the premises were private property and that no solicitation of any kind without written permission would be permitted. Appellant Marsh was told that she must have a permit to distribute her literature and that a permit would not be granted to her. When she declared that the company rule could not be utilized to prevent her from exercising her constitutional rights under the First Amendment, she was ordered to leave Chickasaw. She refused to do so and was arrested for violating Alabama's criminal trespass statute. In reversing her conviction under the statute, this court held that the fact that the property from which appellant was sought to be ejected for exercising her First Amendment rights was owned by a private corporation rather than the state was an insufficient basis to justify the infringement on appellant's right to free expression occasioned thereby. Likewise the fact that appellant Marsh was herself not a resident of the town was not considered material. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 10 Chapter 1 defining property the similarities between the business block in Marsh and the shopping center in the present case are striking. The perimeter of Logan Valley Mall is a little less than 1.1 miles. Inside the mall were situated, at the time of trial, two substantial commercial enterprises with numerous others soon to follow. Immediately adjacent to the mall are two roads, one of which is a heavily traveled state highway and from both of which lead entrances directly into the mall. Adjoining the buildings in the middle of the mall are sidewalks for the use of pedestrians going to and from their cars and from building to building. In the parking areas, roadways for the use of vehicular traffic entering and leaving the mall are clearly marked out. The general public has unrestricted access to the mall property. 
The shopping center here is clearly the functional equivalent of the business district of Chickasaw involved in Marsh. The shopping center premises are open to the public to the same extent as the commercial center of a normal town. So far as can be determined, the main distinction in practice between use by the public of the Logan Valley Mall and of any other business district, were the decisions of the state courts to stand, would be that those members of the general public who sought to use the mall premises in a manner contrary to the wishes of the respondents could be prevented from so doing. Such a power on the part of respondents would be, of course, part and parcel of the rights traditionally associated with ownership of private property. And it may well be that respondents' ownership of the property here in question gives them various rights, under the laws of Pennsylvania, to limit the use of that property by members of the public in a manner that would not be permissible were the property owned by a municipality. All we decide here is that because the shopping center serves as the community business block and is freely accessible and open to the people in the area and those passing through, Marsh, 326 U.S. at 508, the state may not delegate the power, through the use of its trespass laws, wholly to exclude those members of the public wishing to exercise their First Amendment rights on the premises in a manner and for a purpose generally consonant with the use to which the property is actually put. We do not hold that respondents, and at their behest the state, are without power to make reasonable regulations governing the exercise of First Amendment rights on their property. Certainly their rights to make such regulations are at the very least co extensive with the powers possessed by states and municipalities, and recognized in many opinions of this court, to control the use of public property. Thus where property is not ordinarily open to the public, this court has held that access to it for the purpose of exercising First Amendment rights may be denied altogether. Even where municipal or state property is open to the public generally, the exercise of First Amendment rights may be regulated so as to prevent interference with the use to which the property is ordinarily put by the state. Thus we have upheld a statute prohibiting picketing in such a manner as to obstruct or unreasonably interfere with free ingress or egress to and from any asterisk 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 county asterisk 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 courthouses. Cameron v. Johnson, 370 U.S. 611, 616, 1968. Likewise it has been indicated that persons could be constitutionally prohibited from picketing in or near a court with the intent of interfering with, obstructing, or impeding the administration of justice. Cox v. Louisiana, 379 U.S. 559, 560, 1965. In addition, the exercise of First Amendment rights may be regulated where such exercise will unduly interfere with the normal use of the public property by other members of the public with an equal right of access to it. Thus it has been held that persons desiring to parade along city streets may be required to secure a permit in order that municipal authorities be able to limit the amount of interference with use of the sidewalks by other members of the public by regulating the time, place, and manner of the parade. Semeraro Introduction to Property 2. Shaping the Right 11. Because the Pennsylvania courts have held that picketing and trespassing can be prohibited absolutely on respondents' premises, we have no occasion to consider the extent to which respondents are entitled to limit the location and manner of the picketing or the number of pickets within the mall in order to prevent interference with either access to the market building or vehicular use of the parcel pickup area and parking lot. 
respondents seek to defend the injunction they have obtained by characterizing the requirement that picketing be carried on outside the Logan Mall premises as a regulation rather than a suppression of it. Accepting arguendo such a characterization, the question remains, under the First Amendment, whether it is a permissible regulation. Petitioners' picketing was directed solely at one establishment within the shopping center. The berms surrounding the center are from 350 to 500 feet away from the Weiss store. All entry onto the mall premises by customers of Weiss, so far as appears, is by vehicle from the roads alongside which the berms run. Thus the placards bearing the message which petitioners seek to communicate to patrons of Weiss must be read by those to whom they are directed either at a distance so great as to render them virtually indecipherable where the Weiss customers are already within the mall or while the prospective reader is moving by car from the roads onto the mall parking areas via the entrance ways cut through the berms. In addition, the pickets are placed in some danger by being forced to walk along heavily traveled roads along which traffic moves constantly at rates of speed varying from moderate to high. Likewise, the task of distributing handbills to persons in moving automobiles is vastly greater, and more hazardous, than it would be were petitioners permitted to pass them out within the mall to pedestrians. Finally, the requirement that the picketing take place outside the shopping center renders it very difficult for petitioners to limit its effect to Weiss only. It is therefore clear that the restraints on picketing and trespassing approved by the Pennsylvania courts here substantially hinder the communication of the ideas which petitioners seek to express to the patrons of Weiss. Here it is perfectly clear that a prohibition against trespass on the mall operates to bar all speech within the shopping center to which respondents object. Yet this court stated many years ago, O.N.E. is not to have the exercise of his liberty of expression in appropriate places abridged on the plea that it may be exercised in some other place. Schneider v. State, 308 U.S. 147, 163, 1939. The sole justification offered for the substantial interference with the effectiveness of petitioners' exercise of their First Amendment rights to promulgate their views through handbilling and picketing is respondents' claimed absolute right under state law to prohibit any use of their property by others without their consent. However, unlike a situation involving a person's home, no meaningful claim to protection of a right of privacy can be advanced by respondents here nor on the facts of the case can any significant claim to protection of the normal business operation of the property be raised. Naked title is essentially all that is at issue. The economic development of the United States in the last 20 years reinforces our opinion of the correctness of the approach taken in Marsh. The large-scale movement of this country's population from the cities to the suburbs has been accompanied by the advent of the suburban shopping center, typically a cluster of individual retail units on a single large privately owned tract. It has been estimated that by the end of 1966 there were between 10,000 and 11,000 shopping centers in the United States and Canada, accounting for approximately 37% of the total retail sales in those two countries. These figures illustrate the substantial consequences for workers seeking to challenge substandard working conditions, consumers protesting shoddy or overpriced merchandise, and minority groups seeking non-discriminatory hiring policies that a contrary semeraro, introduction to property 12 chapter 1, defining property decision here would have. Business enterprises located in downtown areas would be subject to on-the-spot public criticism for their practices, 
but businesses situated in the suburbs could largely immunize themselves from similar criticism by creating a cordon sanitaire of parking lots around their stores. Neither precedent nor policy compels a result so at variance with the goal of free expression and communication that is the heart of the First Amendment. Therefore, as to the sufficiency of respondents' ownership of the Logan Valley Mall premises as the sole support of the injunction issued against petitioners, we simply repeat what was said in Marsh v. Alabama, 326 U.S. at 506, ownership does not always mean absolute dominion. The more an owner, for his advantage, opens up his property for use by the public in general, the more do his rights become circumscribed by the statutory and constitutional rights of those who use it. Logan Valley Mall is the functional equivalent of a business block and for First Amendment purposes must be treated in substantially the same manner. Black, Justice, Dissenting I think it is fair to say that the basis on which the Marsh decision rested was that the property involved encompassed an area that for all practical purposes had been turned into a town, the area had all the attributes of a town and was exactly like any other town in Alabama. I can find very little resemblance between the shopping center involved in this case and Chickasaw, Alabama. There are no homes, there is no sewage disposal plant, there is not even a post office on this private property which the court now considers the equivalent of a town five. The majority opinion recognizes the problem with trying to draw too close an analogy to Marsh, but faces a dilemma in that Marsh is the only possible authority for treating admittedly privately owned property the way the majority does. Thus the majority opinion concedes that the respondents here do not own the surrounding residential property and do not provide municipal services therefore. But that is not crucial, according to the majority, since the petitioner in Marsh was arrested in the business district of Chickasaw. The majority opinion then concludes that since the appellant in Marsh was given access to the business district of a company town, the petitioners in this case should be given access to the shopping center which was functioning as a business district. But I respectfully suggest that this reasoning completely misreads Marsh and begs the question. The question is, under what circumstances can private property be treated as though it were public? The answer that Marsh gives is when that property has taken on all the attributes of a town, i.e., residential buildings, streets, a system of sewers, a sewage disposal plant and a business block on which business places are situated. 326 U.S. at 502. I can find nothing in Marsh which indicates that if one of these features is present, e.g., a business district, this is sufficient for the court to confiscate a part of an owner's private property and give its use to people who want to picket on it. 5. In Marsh v. Alabama, a deputy of the Mobile County Sheriff, paid by the company, served as the town's policeman. We are not told whether the Logan Valley Plaza shopping center had its own policeman. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Shaping the Right 13 White, Justice, Dissenting. It is said that Logan Valley Plaza is substantially equivalent to a business block and must be treated as though each store was bounded by a public street and a public sidewalk. This rationale, which would immunize non-obstructive labor union picketing, would also compel the shopping center to permit picketing on its property for other community purposes, whether the subject matter concerned a particular business establishment or not. Non-obstructive handbilling for religious purposes, political campaigning, 
protests against government policies the court would apparently place all of these activities carried out on Logan Valley's property within the protection of the First Amendment, although the activities may have no connection whatsoever with the views of the plaza's occupants or with the conduct of their businesses. It is not clear how the court might draw a line between shopping centers and other business establishments which have sidewalks or parking on their own property. Any store invites the patronage of members of the public interested in its products. I am fearful that the court's decision today will be a license for pickets to leave the public streets and carry out their activities on private property, as long as they are not obstructive. I do not agree that when the owner of private property invites the public to do business with him he impliedly dedicates his property for other uses as well. I do not think the First Amendment, which bars only official interferences with speech, has this reach. In Marsh, the company ran an entire town and the state was deemed to have devolved upon the company the task of carrying out municipal functions. But here the streets of Logan Valley Plaza are not like public streets, they are not used as thoroughfares for general travel from point to point, for general parking, for meetings, or for Easter parades. If it were shown that Congress has thought it necessary to permit picketing on private property, either to further the national labor policy under the Commerce Clause or to implement and enforce the First Amendment, we would have quite a different case. But that is not the basis on which the court proceeds, and I therefore dissent. Lloyd v. Tanner 407 U.S. 551, 1971, Powell, Justice, this case presents the question reserved by the court in Food Employees v. Logan Valley Plaza, 391 U.S. 308, 1968, as to the right of a privately owned shopping center to prohibit the distribution of handbills on its property when the handbilling is unrelated to the shopping center's operations. Relying primarily on Marsh v. Alabama, 326 U.S. 501, 1946, and Logan Valley, the United States District Court for the District of Oregon sustained an asserted First Amendment right to distribute handbills in Petitioner's Shopping Center, and issued a permanent injunction restraining Petitioner from interfering with such right. The Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed. We granted certiorari to consider Petitioner's contention that the decision below violates rights of private property protected by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. Lloyd Corp., Ltd., Lloyd, owns a large, modern retail shopping center in Portland, Oregon. Lloyd Center embraces altogether about 50 acres, including some 20 acres of open and covered parking facilities which accommodate more than 1,000 automobiles. There are some 60 commercial tenants, including small shops and several major department stores. The center embodies a relatively new concept in shopping center design. The stores are all located within a single large, multi-level building complex sometimes referred to as the mall. Within this complex, in addition to the stores, there are Parking Semeraro, Introduction to Property 14 Chapter 1, Defining Property Facilities, Malls, Private Sidewalks, Stairways, Escalators, Gardens, an Auditorium, and a Skating Rink. Some of the stores open directly on the outside public sidewalks, but most open on the interior privately owned malls. Some stores open on both. There are no public streets or public sidewalks within the building complex, which is enclosed and entirely covered except for the landscaped portions of some of the interior malls. 
the distribution of the handbills occurred in the malls. They are a distinctive feature of the center, serving both utilitarian and aesthetic functions. Essentially, they are private, interior promenades with 10-foot sidewalks serving the stores. Although the stores close at customary hours, the malls are not physically closed, as pedestrian window shopping is encouraged within reasonable hours. Lloyd employs 12 security guards, who are commissioned as such by the city of Portland. The guards have police authority within the center, wear uniforms similar to those worn by city police, and are licensed to carry handguns. They are employed by and subject to the control of Lloyd. Their duties are the customary ones, including shoplifting surveillance and general security. At a few places within the center small signs are embedded in the sidewalk which state, Notice areas in Lloyd Center used by the public are not public ways but are for the use of Lloyd Center tenants and the public transacting business with them. Permission to use said areas may be revoked at any time. Lloyd Corporation, Limited the center is open generally to the public, with a considerable effort being made to attract shoppers and prospective shoppers, and to create customer motivation as well as customer goodwill in the community. The center had been in operation for some eight years when this litigation commenced. Throughout this period it had a policy, strictly enforced, against the distribution of handbills within the building complex and its malls. No exceptions were made with respect to handbilling, which was considered likely to annoy customers, to create litter, potentially to create disorders, and generally to be incompatible with the purpose of the center and the atmosphere sought to be preserved. On November 14, 1968, the respondents in this case distributed within the center handbill invitations to a meeting of the resistance community to protest the draft and the Vietnam War. The distribution, made in several different places on the mall walkways by five young people, was quiet and orderly, and there was no littering. There was a complaint from one customer. Security guards informed the respondents that they were trespassing and would be arrested unless they stopped distributing the handbills within the center. The guards suggested that respondents distribute their literature on the public streets and sidewalks adjacent to but outside of the center complex. Respondent left the premises as requested to avoid arrest and continued the handbilling outside. Subsequently the suit was instituted in the district court seeking declaratory and injunctive relief. I the district court, emphasizing that the center is open to the general public, found that it is the functional equivalent of a public business district. That court then held that Lloyd's rule prohibiting the distribution of handbills within the mall violates asterisk 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 First Amendment rights. In a per curiam opinion, the Court of Appeals held that it was bound by the factual determination as to the character of the center, and concluded that the decisions of this court in Marsh v. Alabama, 326 U.S. 501, 1946, and Amalgamated Food Employees v. Logan Valley Plaza, 391 U.S. 308, 1968, compelled affirmance. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Shaping the Right 15 Marsh involved Chickasaw, Alabama, a company town wholly owned by the Gulf Shipbuilding Corp and required that such a town permit handbilling in its business district to the same extent as would an ordinary town. In Logan Valley the court extended the rationale of Marsh to peaceful picketing of a store located in a large shopping center. 
The court noted that the answer would be clear if the shopping center premises were not privately owned but instead constituted the business area of a municipality. ID, at 315. The court then considered Marsh v. Alabama, Supra, and concluded that, the shopping center here is clearly the functional equivalent of the business district of Chickasaw involved in Marsh. 391 U.S., at 318. But the court was careful not to go further and say that for all purposes and uses the privately owned streets, sidewalks, and other areas of a shopping center are analogous to publicly owned facilities. Two, the courts below considered the critical inquiry to be whether Lloyd Center was the functional equivalent of a public business district. This phrase was first used in Logan Valley, but its genesis was in Marsh. It is well to consider what Marsh actually decided. As noted above, it involved an economic anomaly of the past, the company town. One must have seen such towns to understand that functionally they were no different from municipalities of comparable size. The court simply held that where private interests were substituting for and performing the customary functions of government, First Amendment freedoms could not be denied where exercised in the customary manner on the town's sidewalks and streets. Indeed, as title to the entire town was held privately, there were no publicly owned streets, sidewalks, or parks where such rights could be exercised. Logan Valley extended Marsh to a shopping center situation in a different context from the company town setting, but it did so only in a context where the First Amendment activity was related to the shopping center's operations. The opinion was carefully phrased to limit its holding to the picketing involved, where the picketing was directly related in its purpose to the use to which the shopping center property was being put, 391 U.S., at 329 and where the store was located in the center of a large private enclave with the consequence that no other reasonable opportunities for the pickets to convey their message to their intended audience were available. Neither of these elements is present in the case now before the court. A. The handbilling by respondents in the malls of Lloyd Center had no relation to any purpose for which the center was built and being used. It is nevertheless argued by respondents that, since the center is open to the public, the private owner cannot enforce a restriction against handbilling on the premises. The thrust of this argument is considerably broader than the rationale of Logan Valley. It requires no relationship, direct or indirect, between the purpose of the expressive activity and the business of the shopping center. The message sought to be conveyed by respondents was directed to all members of the public, not solely to patrons of Lloyd Center or of any of its operations. Respondents could Semeraro, Introduction to Property 16 Chapter 1, Defining Property have distributed these handbills on any public street, on any public sidewalk, in any public park, or in any public building in the city of Portland. Be a further fact, distinguishing the present case from Logan Valley, is that the union pickets in that case would have been deprived of all reasonable opportunity to convey their message to patrons of the Weiss store had they been denied access to the shopping center. The situation at Lloyd Center was notably different. The central building complex was surrounded by public sidewalks, totaling 66 linear blocks. All persons who enter or leave the private areas within the complex must cross public streets and sidewalks, either on foot or in automobiles. 3. The basic issue in this case is whether respondents, in the exercise of asserted First Amendment rights, 
may distribute handbills on Lloyd's private property contrary to its wishes and contrary to a policy enforced against all handbilling. In addressing this issue, it must be remembered that the First and Fourteenth Amendments safeguard the rights of free speech and assembly by limitations on state action, not on action by the owner of private property used non-discriminatorily for private purposes only. The due process clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments are also relevant to this case. They provide that, an, o person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property, without due process of law. There is the further proscription in the Fifth Amendment against the taking of private property for public use, without just compensation. Although accommodations between the values protected by these three amendments are sometimes necessary, and the courts properly have shown a special solicitude for the guarantees of the First Amendment, this court has never held that a trespasser or an uninvited guest may exercise general rights of free speech on property privately owned and used non-discriminatorily for private purposes only. Even where public property is involved, the court has recognized that it is not necessarily available for speaking, picketing, or other communicative activities. Respondents contend, however, that the property of a large shopping center is open to the public, serves the same purposes as a business district of a municipality, and therefore has been dedicated to certain types of public use. The argument is that such a center has sidewalks, streets, and parking areas which are functionally similar to facilities customarily provided by municipalities. It is then asserted that all members of the public, whether invited as customers or not, have the same right of free speech as they would have on the similar public facilities in the streets of a city or town. The argument reaches too far. The Constitution by no means requires such an attenuated doctrine of dedication of private property to public use. The closest decision in theory, Marsh v. Alabama, Supra, involved the assumption by a private enterprise of all of the attributes of a state-created municipality and the exercise by that enterprise of semi-official municipal functions as a delegate of the state. In effect, the owner of the company town was performing the full spectrum of municipal powers and stood in the shoes of the state. In the instant case there is no comparable assumption or exercise of municipal functions or power. Nor does property lose its private character merely because the public is generally invited to use it for designated purposes. Few would argue that a freestanding store, with Semeraro, introduction to property too. Shaping the right 17 abutting parking space for customers, assume significant public attributes merely because the public is invited to shop there. Nor is size alone the controlling factor. The essentially private character of a store and its privately owned abutting property does not change by virtue of being large or clustered with other stores in a modern shopping center. This is not to say that no differences may exist with respect to government regulation or rights of citizens arising by virtue of the size and diversity of activities carried on within a privately owned facility serving the public. There will be, for example, problems with respect to public health and safety which vary in degree and in the appropriate government response, depending upon the size and character of a shopping center, an office building, a sports arena, or other large facility serving the public for commercial purposes. We do say that the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment rights of private property owners, as well as the First Amendment rights of all citizens, must be respected and protected.
the framers of the Constitution certainly did not think these fundamental rights of a free society are incompatible with each other. There may be situations where accommodations between them, and the drawing of lines to assure due protection of both, are not easy. But on the facts presented in this case, the answer is clear. We hold that there has been no such dedication of Lloyd's privately owned and operated shopping center to public use as to entitle respondents to exercise therein the asserted First Amendment rights. Accordingly, we reverse the judgment and remand the case to the Court of Appeals with directions to vacate the injunction. Marshall, Justice, dissenting, with Justices Douglas, Brennan, and Stewart. Today, this court reverses the judgment of the Court of Appeals and attempts to distinguish this case from Logan Valley. In my view, the distinction that the court sees between the cases does not exist. Tehe Lloyd Center is an integral part of the Portland community. From its inception, the city viewed it as a business district of the city and depended on it to supply much-needed employment opportunities. To ensure the success of the center, the city carefully integrated it into the pattern of streets already established and planned future development of streets around the center. It is plain, therefore, that Lloyd Center is the equivalent of a public business district within the meaning of Marsh and Logan Valley. In fact, the Lloyd Center is much more analogous to the company town in Marsh than was the Logan Valley Plaza. Too as I have pointed out above, Lloyd Center is even more clearly the equivalent of a public business district than was Logan Valley Plaza. The First Amendment activity in both Logan Valley and the instant case was peaceful and non-disruptive, and both cases involved traditionally acceptable modes of speech. Why then should there be a different result here? The court's answer is that the speech in this case was directed at topics of general interest the Vietnam War and the draft whereas the speech in Logan Valley was directed to the activities of a store in the shopping center, and that this factual difference is of constitutional dimensions. I cannot agree. On Veterans Day, Lloyd Center allows organizations to parade through the center with flags, drummers, and color guard units and to have a speaker deliver an address on the meaning of Veterans Day and the valor of American soldiers. Presidential Candidate Semeraro, Introduction to Property 18 Chapter 1, Defining Property have been permitted to speak without restriction on the issues of the day, which presumably include war and peace. The American Legion is annually given permission to sell poppies in the mall because Lloyd Center believes that veterans deserves, sick, some comfort and support by the people of the United States. In light of these facts, I perceive no basis for depriving respondents of the opportunity to distribute leaflets inviting patrons of the center to attend a meeting in which different points of view would be expressed from those held by the organizations and persons privileged to use Lloyd Center as a forum for parading their ideas and symbols. For many persons who do not have easy access to television, radio, the major newspapers, and the other forms of mass media, the only way they can express themselves to a broad range of citizens on issues of general public concern is to picket, or to handbill, or to utilize other free or relatively inexpensive means of communication. The only hope that these people have to be able to communicate effectively is to be permitted to speak in those areas in which most of their fellow citizens can be found. One such area is the business district of a city or town or its functional equivalent. And this is why respondents have a tremendous need to express themselves within Lloyd Center. When there are no effective means of communication, free speech is a mere shibboleth.
I believe that the First Amendment requires it to be a reality. Accordingly, I would affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Hodgins v. NLRB 424 U.S. 507, 1976, Stewart, Justice, a group of labor union members who engaged in peaceful primary picketing within the confines of a privately owned shopping center were threatened by an agent of the owner with arrest for criminal trespass if they did not depart. The court in its Lloyd opinion did not say that it was overruling the Logan Valley decision. Indeed a substantial portion of the court's opinion in Lloyd was devoted to pointing out the differences between the two cases, noting particularly that, in contrast to the hand-billing in Lloyd, the picketing in Logan Valley had been specifically directed to a store in the shopping center and the pickets had had no other reasonable opportunity to reach their intended audience. But the fact is that the reasoning of the court's opinion in Lloyd cannot be squared with the reasoning of the court's opinion in Logan Valley. Our institutional duty is to follow until changed the law as it now is, not as some members of the court might wish it to be. And in the performance of that duty we make clear now, if it was not clear before, that the rationale of Logan Valley did not survive the court's decision in the Lloyd case. The ultimate holding in Lloyd amounted to a total rejection of the holding in Logan Valley. Marshall, Justice, dissenting, with Justice Brennan. In the final analysis, the court's rejection of any role for the First Amendment in the privately owned shopping center complex stems, I believe, from an overly formalistic view of the relationship between the institution of private ownership of property and the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of speech. No one would seriously question the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Shaping the right 19 legitimacy of the values of privacy and individual autonomy traditionally associated with privately owned property. But property that is privately owned is not always held for private use, and when a property owner opens his property to public use the force of those values diminishes. A degree of privacy is necessarily surrendered, thus, the privacy interest that petitioner retains when he leases space to 60 retail businesses and invites the public onto his land for the transaction of business with other members of the public is small indeed. And while the owner of property open to public use may not automatically surrender any of his autonomy interest in managing the property as he sees fit, there is nothing new about the notion that that autonomy interest must be accommodated with the interests of the public. Pruneyard Shopping Center v. Robbins 447 U.S. 74, 1980, Rehnquist, Justice, we postponed jurisdiction of this appeal from the Supreme Court of California to decide the important federal constitutional questions it presented. Those are whether state constitutional provisions, which permit individuals to exercise free speech and petition rights on the property of a privately owned shopping center to which the public is invited, violate the shopping center owner's property rights under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments or his free speech rights under the First and Fourteenth Amendments. I Appellant Pruneyard is a privately owned shopping center in the city of Campbell, Cal. It covers approximately 21 acres 5 devoted to parking and 16 occupied by walkways, plazas, sidewalks, and buildings that contain more than 65 specialty shops, 10 restaurants, and a movie theater. The Pruneyard is open to the public for the purpose of encouraging the patronizing of its commercial establishments. It has a policy not to permit any visitor or tenant to engage in any publicly expressive activity, including the circulation of petitions, 
that is not directly related to its commercial purposes. This policy has been strictly enforced in a non-discriminatory fashion. The prune yard is owned by appellant Fred Sahadi. Appellees are high school students who sought to solicit support for their opposition to a United Nations resolution against Zionism. On a Saturday afternoon they set up a card table in a corner of Prune Yard's central courtyard. They distributed pamphlets and asked passers-by to sign petitions, which were to be sent to the President and members of Congress. Their activity was peaceful and orderly and so far as the record indicates was not objected to by Prune Yard's patrons. Soon after Appellees had begun soliciting signatures, a security guard informed them that they would have to leave because their activity violated Prune Yard regulations. The guard suggested that they move to the public sidewalk at the Prune Yard's perimeter. Appellees immediately left the premises and later filed this lawsuit in the California Superior Court of Santa Clara County. They sought to enjoin appellants from denying them access to the Prune Yard for the purpose of circulating their petitions. The Superior Court held that appellees were not entitled under either the federal or California Constitution to exercise their asserted rights on the shopping center property. It concluded that there were adequate, effective channels of communication for appellees other than soliciting on the private property of the Prune Yard. The California Court of Appeal affirmed. The California Supreme Court reversed, holding that the California Constitution protects speech and petitioning, reasonably exercised, in shopping centers even when the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 20 Chapter 1, defining property centers are privately owned. 23 Cal.3D 899, 1979. It concluded that appellees were entitled to conduct their activity on prune yard property. In rejecting appellants' contention that such a result infringed property rights protected by the federal constitution, the California Supreme Court observed, it bears repeated emphasis that we do not have under consideration the property or privacy rights of an individual homeowner or the proprietor of a modest retail establishment. As a result of advertising and the lure of a congenial environment, 25,000 persons are induced to congregate daily to take advantage of the numerous amenities offered by the shopping center there. A handful of additional orderly persons soliciting signatures and distributing handbills in connection therewith, under reasonable regulations adopted by defendant to assure that these activities do not interfere with normal business operations would not markedly dilute defendant's property rights. ID, at 910 to 11. The California Supreme Court thus expressly overruled its earlier decision in Diamond v. Bland, 11 Cal.3 D331 which had reached an opposite conclusion. 23 Cal.3D, at 910. Before this court, appellants contend that their constitutionally established rights under the 14th Amendment to exclude appellees from adverse use of appellants' private property cannot be denied by invocation of a state constitutional provision or by judicial reconstruction of a state's laws of private property. We now affirm. Three appellants first contend that Lloyd Corp v. Tanner, 407 U.S. 551, 1972, prevents the state from requiring a private shopping center owner to provide access to persons exercising their state constitutional rights of free speech and petition when adequate alternative avenues of communication are available. 
Lloyd dealt with the question whether under the federal constitution a privately owned shopping center may prohibit the distribution of handbills on its property when the handbilling is unrelated to the shopping center's operations. The shopping center had adopted a strict policy against the distribution of handbills within the building complex and its malls, and it made no exceptions to this rule. Respondents in Lloyd argued that because the shopping center was open to the public, the First Amendment prevents the private owner from enforcing the handbilling restriction on shopping center premises. In rejecting this claim we substantially repudiated the rationale of food employees v. Logan Valley Plaza, 391 U.S. 308, 1968, which was later overruled in Hudgens v. NLRB, 424 U.S. 507, 1976. We stated that property does not lose its private character merely because the public is generally invited to use it for designated purposes, and that the essentially private character of a store and its privately owned abutting property does not change by virtue of being large or clustered with other stores in a modern shopping center. 407 U.S., at 569. Our reasoning in Lloyd, however, does not ex proprio vigori limit the authority of the state to exercise its police power or its sovereign right to adopt in its own constitution individual liberties more expansive than those conferred by the federal constitution. Cooper v. California, 386 U.S. 58, 62, 1967. In Lloyd, Supra, there was no state constitutional or statutory provision that had been construed to create rights to the use of private property by strangers, comparable to those found to exist by the California Supreme Court here. It is, of course, well established that a state in the exercise of its police power may adopt reasonable restrictions on private property so long as the restrictions do not amount to a taking without just compensation or contravene any other federal constitutional provision. C. E.G., Euclid v. Ambler Realty Co. 272 U.S. 365, 1926, Young v. American Mini Theaters, Inc., 427 U.S. 50, 1976. Lloyd held that when a shopping center owner Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Shaping the Right 21 opens his private property to the public for the purpose of shopping, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution does not thereby create individual rights in expression beyond those already existing under applicable law. See also Hodgins v. NLRB, Supra. Four appellants next contend that a right to exclude others underlies the Fifth Amendment guarantee against the taking of property without just compensation and the Fourteenth Amendment guarantee against the deprivation of property without due process of law. Five, it is true that one of the essential sticks in the bundle of property rights is the right to exclude others. Kaiser Etna v. United States, 444 U.S. 164, 179 to 80, 1979. And here there has literally been a taking of that right to the extent that the California Supreme Court has interpreted the state constitution to entitle its citizens to exercise free expression and petition rights on shopping center property. Point six, but it is well established that not every destruction or injury to property by governmental action has been held to be a taking in the constitutional sense. Armstrong v. United States, 364 U.S. 40, 48, 1960. Rather, 
the determination whether a state law unlawfully infringes a landowner's property in violation of the taking clause requires an examination of whether the restriction on private property fork es some people alone to bear public burdens which, in all fairness and justice, should be borne by the public as a whole. ID, at 49. This examination entails inquiry into such factors as the character of the governmental action, its economic impact, and its interference with reasonable investment-backed expectations. When regulation goes too far it will be recognized as a taking. Pennsylvania Colco v. Mahone, 260 U.S. 393, 415, 1922. Here the requirement that appellants permit appellees to exercise state-protected rights of free expression and petition on shopping center property clearly does not amount to an unconstitutional infringement of appellants' property rights under the taking clause. There is nothing to suggest that preventing appellants from prohibiting this sort of activity will unreasonably impair the value or use of their property as a shopping center. The Pruneyard is a large commercial complex that covers several city blocks, contains numerous separate business establishments, and is open to the public at large. The decision of the California Supreme Court makes it clear that the Pruneyard may restrict expressive activity by adopting time, place, and manner regulations that will minimize any interference with its commercial functions. Appellees were orderly, and they limited their activity to the common areas of the shopping center. In these circumstances, the fact that they may have physically invaded appellant's property cannot be viewed as determinative. This case is quite different from Kaiser Aetna v. United States, Supra. Kaiser Aetna was a case in which the owners of a private pond had invested substantial amounts. Five appellants do not maintain that this is a condemnation case. Reply brief for appellants too. Rather, they argue that the rights of a property owner are rooted in the Fifth Amendment guarantee against the taking of property without just compensation and are incorporated in the Fourteenth Amendment guarantee against the deprivation of property without due process of law. Brief for Appellants 10 Here, of course, if the law required the conclusion that there was a taking, there was concededly no compensation, just or otherwise, paid to appellants. 6. The term property as used in the taking clause includes the entire group of rights inhering in the citizen's ownership. United States v. General Motors Corp., 323 U.S. 373, 1945. It is not used in the vulgar and untechnical sense of the physical thing with respect to which the citizen exercises rights recognized by law. Instead, it denotes the group of rights inhering in the citizen's relation to the physical thing, as the right to possess, use and dispose of it. The constitutional provision is addressed to every sort of interest the citizen may possess. ID, 377-378 Semeraro, Introduction to Property 22 Chapter 1, Defining Property of Money in Dredging the Pond, Developing it into an Exclusive Marina, and building a surrounding marina community. The marina was open only to fee-paying members, and the fees were paid in part to maintain the privacy and security of the pond. The federal government sought to compel free public use of the private marina on the ground that the marina became subject to the federal navigational servitude because the owners had dredged a channel connecting it to navigable water. The government's attempt to create a public right of access to the improved pond interfered with Kaiser Aetna's reasonable investment-backed expectations.
we held that it went so far beyond ordinary regulation or improvement for navigation as to amount to a taking. ID at 178. Nor as a general proposition is the United States, as opposed to the several states, possessed of residual authority that enables it to define property in the first instance. A state is, of course, bound by the Just Compensation Clause of the Fifth Amendment, Chicago, B, and QR v. Chicago, 166 U.S. 226, 233, 236 to 237, 1897, but here appellants have failed to demonstrate that the right to exclude others is so essential to the use or economic value of their property that the state-authorized limitation of it amounted to a taking. There is also little merit to appellants' argument that they have been denied their property without due process of law. In Nebia v. New York, 291 U.S. 502, 1934, this court stated, and either property rights nor contract rights are absolute. Equally fundamental with the private right is that of the public to regulate it in the common interest. T. He guarantee of due process, as has often been held, demands only that the law shall not be unreasonable, arbitrary, or capricious, and that the means selected shall have a real and substantial relation to the objective sought to be attained. I.D. at 523, 525. Appellants have failed to provide sufficient justification for concluding that this test is not satisfied by the state's asserted interest in promoting more expansive rights of free speech and petition than conferred by the federal constitution. The judgment of the Supreme Court of California is therefore affirmed. Marshall, Justice, concurring, I join the opinion of the court, but write separately to make a few additional points. Two in the litigation now before the court, the Supreme Court of California construed the California Constitution to protect precisely those rights of communication and expression that were at stake in Logan Valley, Lloyd, and Hodgins. The California court concluded that its state constitution broadly proclaims speech and petition rights. Shopping centers to which the public is invited can provide an essential and invaluable forum for aid although appellants contend there are adequate alternative avenues of communication available for appellees, it does not violate the United States Constitution for the state Supreme Court to conclude that access to appellant's property in the manner required here is necessary to the promotion of state-protected rights of free speech and petition. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Shaping the Right 23 Exercising Those Rights 23 Calories 3899, 910 Like the court in Logan Valley, the California court found that access to shopping centers was crucial to the exercise of rights of free expression. And like the court in Logan Valley, the California court rejected the suggestion that the 14th Amendment barred the intrusion on the property rights of the shopping center owners. I applaud the court's decision, which is a part of a very healthy trend of affording state constitutional provisions a more expansive interpretation than this court has given to the federal constitution. See Brennan, State Constitutions, and the Protection of Individual Rights, 90 Harv. L. Revelation 489, 1977. Appellants, of course, take a different view. They contend that the decision below amounts to a constitutional taking or a deprivation of their property without due process of law. Lloyd, they claim, 
did not merely overrule Logan Valley's First Amendment holding, it overruled its due process ruling as well, recognizing a federally protected right on the part of shopping center owners to enforce the pre-existing state law of trespass by excluding those who engage in communicative activity on their property. In my view, the issue appellants present is largely a restatement of the question of whether and to what extent a state may abrogate or modify common law rights. Although the cases in this court do not definitively resolve the question, they demonstrate that appellant's claim has no merit. Earlier this term, in Martinez v. California, 444 U.S. 277, 1980, the court was also confronted with a claim that the abolition of a cause of action previously conferred by state law was an impermissible taking of property. We responded that even if a pre-existing state law remedy is a species of property protected by the Due Process Clause, it would remain true that the state's interest in fashioning its own rules of tort law is paramount to any discernible federal interest, except perhaps an interest in protecting the individual citizen from state action that is wholly arbitrary or irrational. ID at 281-282 Similarly, in the context of a claim that a guest statute impermissibly abrogated common law rights of tort, the court observed that the Due Process Clause does not forbid the creation of new rights, or the abolition of old ones recognized by the common law, to attain a permissible legislative object. Silver v. Silver, 280 U.S. 117, 122, 1929. And in Mun v. Illinois, 94 U.S. 113, 1877, the court upheld a statute limiting the permissible rate for the warehousing of grain. A person has no property, no vested interest, in any rule of the common law. Rights of property which have been created by the common law cannot be taken away without due process, but the law itself, as a rule of conduct, may be changed at the will of the legislature, unless prevented by constitutional limitations. Indeed, the great office of statutes is to remedy defects in the common law as they are developed, and to adapt it to the changes of time and circumstances. ID at 134. Appellant's claim in this case amounts to no less than a suggestion that the common law of trespass is not subject to revision by the state, notwithstanding the California Supreme Court's finding that state-created rights of expressive activity would be severely hindered if shopping centers were closed to expressive activities by members of the public. If accepted, that claim would represent a return to the era of Lochner v. New York, 198 U.S. 45, 1905, when common law rights were also found immune from revision by state or federal government. Such an approach would freeze the common law as it has been constructed by the courts, perhaps at its 19th century state of development. It would allow no room for change in response to changes in circumstance. The Due Process Clause does not require such a result. On the other hand, I do not understand the court to suggest that rights of property are to be defined solely by state law, or that there is no federal constitutional barrier to the abrogation of common law rights by Congress or a state government. The constitutional terms life, liberty, and property do not derive their meaning solely from the provision Semeraro, Introduction to Property 24 Chapter 1, Defining Property of Positive Law. They have a normative dimension as well, establishing a sphere of private autonomy which government is bound to respect.
quite serious constitutional questions might be raised if a legislature attempted to abolish certain categories of common law rights in some general way. Indeed, our cases demonstrate that there are limits on governmental authority to abolish core common law rights, including rights against trespass, at least without a compelling showing of necessity or a provision for a reasonable alternative remedy. That core has not been approached in this case. The California Supreme Court's decision is limited to shopping centers, which are already open to the general public. The owners are permitted to impose reasonable restrictions on expressive activity. There has been no showing of interference with appellants' normal business operations. The California court has not permitted an invasion of any personal sanctuary. C.F. Stanley v. Georgia, 394 U.S. 557, 1969. No rights of privacy are implicated. In these circumstances there is no basis for strictly scrutinizing the intrusion authorized by the California Supreme Court. I join the opinion of the court. Notes and Questions 1. Why did the U.S. Supreme Court uphold the free speech rights of the students seeking signatures on a petition in Pruneyard but not the handbillers in Lloyd? 2. Are there any limits on a government's ability to define the scope of property rights within the American legal system? In thinking about this question, carefully review Justice Marshall's concurrence in Pruneyard. 3. Would a respectful and non-disruptive group of students be permitted to sell t-shirts expressing support for a mayoral candidate at 1. A farmer's market on private property in Los Angeles, CA, or 2. A street fair on a private street in Portland, Oregon. These two locations were not selected at random. How do they relate to the cases in this section? Signs posted at the San Diego Zoo as a result of the Pruneyard decision. Copyright Steve Semeraro Copyright Steve Semeraro Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3. Right to Exclude 25-3. The right to exclude on land not generally open to the public one might try to explain the shopping center cases as posing special problems because their owners generally invite the public onto their property. Even with respect to property that is generally not open to the public, one cannot assume an absolute right to exclude. Compare the approach taken by the courts in the following two cases, Jacques V. Steinberg Holmes, in 209 Wisconsin 2D 605, 1997, Bublich, Justice, Steinberg Holmes had a mobile home to deliver. Unfortunately for Harvey and Lois Jacques, the Jacques, the easiest route of delivery was across their land. Despite adamant protests by the Jacques, Steinberg plowed a path through the Jacques snow-covered field and via that path, delivered the mobile home. Consequently, the Jacques sued Steinberg Holmes for intentional trespass. At trial, Steinberg Holmes conceded the intentional trespass, but argued that no compensatory damages had been proved, and that punitive damages could not be awarded without compensatory damages. Although the jury awarded the Jacques $1 in nominal damages and $100,000 in punitive damages, the circuit court set aside the jury's award of $100,000. The Court of Appeals affirmed, reluctantly concluding that it could not reinstate the punitive damages because it was bound by precedent establishing that an award of nominal damages will not sustain a punitive damage award. We conclude that when nominal damages are awarded for an intentional trespass to land, Punitive damages may, in the discretion of the jury, be awarded. 
We further conclude that the $100,000 awarded by the jury is not excessive. Accordingly, we reverse and remand for reinstatement of the punitive damage award. I the relevant facts follow. Plaintiffs, Lois and Harvey Jock, are an elderly couple, now retired from farming, who own roughly 170 acres near Wilkie's Lake in the town of Schleswig. The defendant, Steenberg Homes, Incorporated, Steenberg, is in the business of selling mobile homes. In the fall of 1993, a neighbor of the Jacques purchased a mobile home from Steenberg. Delivery of the mobile home was included in the sales price. Steenberg determined that the easiest route to deliver the mobile home was across the Jacques land. Steenberg preferred transporting the home across the Jacques land because the only alternative was a private road which was covered in up to 7 feet of snow and contained a sharp curve which would require sets of rollers to be used when maneuvering the home around the curve. Steenberg asked the Jacques on several separate occasions whether it could move the home across the Jacques farm field. The Jacques refused. The Jacques were sensitive about allowing others on their land because they had lost property valued at over $10,000 to other neighbors in an adverse possession action in the mid-1980s. Despite repeated refusals from the Jacques, Steenberg decided to sell the mobile home, which was to be used as a summer cottage, and delivered it on February 15, 1994. On the morning of delivery, Mr. Jacques observed the mobile home parked on the corner of the town road adjacent to his property. He decided to find out where the movers planned to take the home. The movers, who were Steenberg employees, showed Mr. Jacques the path they planned to take with the mobile home to reach the neighbor's lot. The path cut across the Jacques land. Mr. Jacques informed the movers that it was the Jacques land they were planning to cross and that Steenberg did not have permission to cross their land. He told them that Steenberg had been refused permission to cross the Jacques land. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 26 Chapter 1, Defining Property One of Steenberg's employees called the assistant manager, who then came out to the Jacques home. In the meantime, the Jacques called and asked some of their neighbors and the town chairman to come over immediately. Once everyone was present, the Jacques showed the assistant manager an aerial map and plat book of the township to prove their ownership of the land, and reiterated their demand that the home not be moved across their land. At that point, the assistant manager asked Mr. Jacques how much money it would take to get permission. Mr. Jacques responded that it was not a question of money, the Jacques just did not want Steenberg to cross their land. Mr. Jacques testified that he told Steenberg to follow the road, that is what the road is for. Steenberg employees left the meeting without permission to cross the land. At trial, one of Steenberg's employees testified that, upon coming out of the Jacques home, the assistant manager stated, I don't give a, what Mr. Jacques said, just get the home in there any way you can. The other Steenberg employee confirmed this testimony and further testified that the assistant manager told him to park the company truck in such a way that no one could get down the town road to see the route the employees were taking with the home. The assistant manager denied giving these instructions, and Steenberg argued that the road was blocked for safety reasons. The employees, after beginning down the private road, ultimately used a bobcat to cut a path through the Jacques snow-covered field and hauled the home across the Jacques land to the neighbor's lot. One employee testified that upon returning to the office and informing the assistant manager that they had gone across the field, 
the assistant manager reacted by giggling and laughing. The other employee confirmed this testimony. The assistant manager disputed this testimony. When a neighbor informed the Jacques that Steinberg had, in fact, moved the mobile home across the Jacques land, Mr. Jacques called the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. After interviewing the parties and observing the scene, an officer from the Sheriff's Department issued a $30 citation to Steinberg's assistant manager. The Jacques commenced an intentional tort action in Manitowoc County Circuit Court, Judge Alan J. Deere presiding, seeking compensatory and punitive damages from Steinberg. The case was tried before a jury on December 1, 1994. At the completion of the Jacques case, Steinberg moved for a directed verdict under Wisconsin STAT 805.14-3-199,394. For purposes of the motion, Steinberg admitted to an intentional trespass to land, but asked the circuit court to find that the Jacques were not entitled to compensatory damages or punitive damages based on insufficiency of the evidence. The circuit court denied Steinberg's motion and the questions of punitive and compensatory damages were submitted to the jury. The jury awarded the Jacques $1 nominal damages and $100,000 punitive damages. Steinberg filed post-verdict motions claiming that the punitive damage award must be set aside because Wisconsin law did not allow a punitive damage award unless the jury also awarded compensatory damages. The circuit court granted Steinberg's motion to set aside the award. This case presents three issues, 1, whether an award of nominal damages for intentional trespass to land may support a punitive damage award and, if so, 2, whether the law should apply to Steinberg or should only be applied prospectively and, if we apply the law to Steinberg, 3, whether the $100,000 in punitive damages awarded by the jury is excessive. The first issue is a question of law which we review de novo. The second issue involves the prospective application of a judicial holding which is a question of policy to be determined by this court. The court allows prospective application for the purpose of mitigating hardships that may occur with the retroactive application of new rules. Finally, Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3. Right to exclude 27 where, as here, the circuit court did not provide a reasoned analysis supporting or rejecting remitter, in order to determine whether to remit the punitive damages awarded, a reviewing court must review the entire record as a matter of first impression and determine whether, in its judgment, the damage award is excessive. 2. Steinberg argues that, as a matter of law, punitive damages could not be awarded by the jury because punitive damages must be supported by an award of compensatory damages and here the jury awarded only nominal and punitive damages. The Jacques contend that the rationale supporting the compensatory damage award requirement is inapposite when the wrongful act is an intentional trespass to land. We agree with the Jacques. Our analysis begins with a statement of the rule and the rationale supporting the rule. First, we consider the individual and societal interests implicated when an intentional trespass to land occurs. Then, we analyze the rationale supporting the rule in light of these interests. The general rule was stated in Barnard v. Cohen, 165 Wisconsin 417. 1917, where the question presented was, in an action for libel, can there be a recovery of punitory damages if only nominal compensatory damages are found? 
with the bare assertion that authority and better reason supported its conclusion, the Barnard Court said no. ID at 418. Other case law in Wisconsin, however have recognized that in certain situations of trespass, the actual harm is not in the damage done to the land, which may be minimal, but in the loss of the individual's right to exclude others from his or her property and, the court implied that this right may be punished by a large damage award despite the lack of measurable harm. Steenberg contends that the rule established in Barnard prohibits a punitive damage award, as a matter of law, unless the plaintiff also receives compensatory damages. Because the Jacques did not receive a compensatory damage award, Steenberg contends that the punitive damage award must be set aside. The Jacques argue that the rationale for not allowing nominal damages to support a punitive damage award is inapposite when the wrongful act involved is an intentional trespass to land. The Jacques argue that both the individual and society have significant interests in deterring intentional trespass to land, regardless of the lack of measurable harm that results. We agree with the Jacques. An examination of the individual interests invaded by an intentional trespass to land, and society's interests in preventing intentional trespass to land, leads us to the conclusion that the Barnard rule should not apply when the tort supporting the award is intentional trespass to land. We turn first to the individual landowner's interest in protecting his or her land from trespass. The United States Supreme Court has recognized that the private landowner's right to exclude others from his or her land is one of the most essential sticks in the bundle of rights that are commonly characterized as property. Dolan v. City of Tigard, 512 U.S. 374, 384, 1994. This court has long recognized a very person's constitutional right to the exclusive enjoyment of his own property for any purpose which does not invade the rights of another person. Diana Shooting Club v. Lamoureux, 114 Wisconsin 44, 59, 1902. Thus, both this court and the Supreme Court recognize the individual's legal right to exclude others from private property. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 28 Chapter 1, Defining Property Yet a Right is Hollow if the Legal System Provides Insufficient Means to Protect It. Felix Cohen offers the following analysis summarizing the relationship between the individual and the state regarding property rights, T-hat is property to which the following label can be attached, to the world, keep off X unless you have my permission, which I may grant or withhold. Signed, Private Citizen Endorsed, the State Felix S. Cohen, Dialogue on Private Property, 9 Rutgers Law Review 357, 374, 1954. Harvey and Lois Jacques have the right to tell Steenberg Holmes and any other trespasser, no, you cannot cross our land. But that right has no practical meaning unless protected by the state. And, as this court recognized as early as 1854, a halfpenny award does not constitute state protection. The nature of the nominal damage award in an intentional trespass to land case further supports an exception to Barnard. Because a legal right is involved, the law recognizes that actual harm occurs in every trespass. The action for intentional trespass to land is directed at vindication of the legal right. W. Page Keaton, Prosser, and Keaton on Torts, 13, 5th at 1984. The law infers some damage from every direct entry upon the land of another. 
the law recognizes actual harm in every trespass to land whether or not compensatory damages are awarded. Thus, in the case of intentional trespass to land, the nominal damage award represents the recognition that, although immeasurable in mere dollars, actual harm has occurred. The potential for harm resulting from intentional trespass also supports an exception to Barnard. A series of intentional trespasses, as the Jacques had the misfortune to discover in an unrelated action, can threaten the individual's very ownership of the land. The conduct of an intentional trespasser, if repeated, might ripen into prescription or adverse possession and, as a consequence, the individual landowner can lose his or her property rights to the trespasser asterisk in sum, the individual has a strong interest in excluding trespassers from his or her land. Although only nominal damages were awarded to the Jacques, Steinberg's intentional trespass caused actual harm. We turn next to society's interest in protecting private property from the intentional trespasser. Society has an interest in punishing and deterring intentional trespassers beyond that of protecting the interests of the individual landowner. Society has an interest in preserving the integrity of the legal system. Private landowners should feel confident that wrongdoers who trespass upon their land will be appropriately punished. When landowners have confidence in the legal system, they are less likely to resort to self-help remedies. In McWilliams, the court recognized the importance of preventing the practice of dueling, by permitting juries to punish insult by exemplary damages. McWilliams, 3 Wisconsin at 381. Although dueling is rarely a modern form of self-help, one can easily imagine a frustrated landowner taking the law into his or her own hands when faced with a brazen trespasser, like Steinberg, who refuses to heed no trespass warnings. Asterisk Ed Note, the doctrines of adverse possession, through which a possessor can gain ownership rights in property, and prescription, through which one who uses property for an extended period can obtain the right to continue that use, are addressed infra in Chapter 5, Section 2, and Chapter 8, Section I. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3. Right to exclude 29 people expect wrongdoers to be appropriately punished. Punitive damages have the effect of bringing to punishment types of conduct that, though oppressive and hurtful to the individual, almost invariably go unpunished by the public prosecutor. The $30 forfeiture was certainly not an appropriate punishment for Steinberg's egregious trespass in the eyes of the Jacques. It was more akin to Mirist's halfpenny. If punitive damages are not allowed in a situation like this, what punishment will prohibit the intentional trespass to land? Moreover, what is to stop Steinberg Homes from concluding, in the future, that delivering its mobile homes via an intentional trespass and paying the resulting Class B forfeiture, is not more profitable than obeying the law. Steinberg Homes plowed a path across the Jacques land and dragged the mobile home across that path, in the face of the Jacques adamant refusal. A $30 forfeiture and a $1 nominal damage award are unlikely to restrain Steinberg Homes from similar conduct in the future. An appropriate punitive damage award probably will. In sum, as the Court of Appeals noted, the Barnard Rule sends the wrong message to Steinberg Homes and any others who contemplate trespassing on the land of another. It implicitly tells them that they are free to go where they please, regardless of the landowner's wishes. As long as they cause no compensable harm, 
the only deterrent intentional trespassers faces the nominal damage award of $1, the modern equivalent of Mirist's halfpenny, and the possibility of a Class B forfeiture under Wisconsin STAT 943.13. We conclude that both the private landowner and society have much more than a nominal interest in excluding others from private land. Intentional trespass to land causes actual harm to the individual, regardless of whether that harm can be measured in mere dollars. Consequently, the Barnard rationale will not support a refusal to allow punitive damages when the tort involved is an intentional trespass to land. Accordingly, assuming that the other requirements for punitive damages have been met, we hold that nominal damages may support a punitive damage award in an action for intentional trespass to land. 3. Next we consider the effect of our holding on the parties before us. At times, inequities will occur when a court departs from precedent and announces a new rule of law. In an effort to avoid inequity on these rare occasions, the court has recognized exceptions to the Blackstonian doctrine that all decisions apply retroactively and use the device of prospective overruling, known as sunbursting, to limit the effect of a newly announced rule when retroactive application would be inequitable. Prospective application of a judicial holding is a question of policy to be determined by this court. The court allows sunbursting for the purpose of mitigating hardships that may occur with the retroactive application of a new rule. This court will not sunburst absent a compelling judicial reason for doing so. No simple rule helps us determine the existence of a judicial reason for sunbursting. Instead, the equities peculiar to a given rule or case determine the rule adopted by the court in each case. Steenberg contends that its reliance on Barnard at trial creates a compelling judicial reason to sunburst. Steenberg explains that its trial strategy was dependent on the Barnard rule. Therefore, it contends that a holding in this case, recognizing an exception to the Barnard rule should only apply prospectively, i.e., not to Steenberg Holmes. We disagree. We find Steenberg's contention that it relied on the Barnard rule misleading. Steenberg did not concede the intentional trespass until after the Jacques rested at trial. At this point, when overwhelming evidence clearly established Steenberg's intentional semeraro, Introduction to Property 30 Chapter 1, Defining Property Trespass on the Jacques Land, then and only then, did Steenberg rely on Barnard and concede intentional trespass. This type of reliance does not give rise to the inequity that sunbursting is designed to prevent. Steenberg's reliance on the Barnard rule is not the type of reliance that normally forms the basis for sunbursting. The court does not prospectively apply a holding merely because of reliance on an old rule. Prospective application of a holding based on reliance on an old rule has occurred when there has been reliance on an overruled decision by a substantial number of persons and considerable harm or detriment could result to them. When tort law is changed, the court is concerned about exposing many individuals and institutions to liability who would have obtained liability insurance had they known they would no longer enjoy immunity. Steenberg does not claim that others will be adversely affected by our recognition of an exception to the Barnard rule. Steenberg only refers to its own reliance, and to its own punishment. The Jacques interests also prevent us from sunbursting in this case. In determining whether hardship or injustice will occur, the court must also consider the effect of prospective application on the party who sought to change the law. 
retroactivity is usually justified as a reward for the litigant who has persevered in attacking an unsound rule. To refuse to apply the new rule here would deprive the Jacques of any benefit from their effort and expense in challenging the old rule which we now declare erroneous. That, we conclude, would be the greater injustice. Accordingly, we hold that the exception to Barnard that we recognize today shall be applied to Steenberg. For finally, we consider whether the jury's $100,000 punitive damage award to the Jacques is excessive. In this case, the circuit court, finding that the issue was moot, rejected Steenberg's motion for remitter without review. Because we conclude that the nominal damages awarded to the Jacques support the jury's punitive damage award, and because we conclude that our holding today applies to Steenberg, the issue is not moot. Therefore, we review the $100,000 award to determine whether it is clearly excessive. We conclude that it is not. The award of punitive damages in a particular case is entirely within the discretion of the jury. Notwithstanding the jury's broad discretion, the circuit court has the power to reduce the amount of punitive damages to an amount that it determines is fair and reasonable. We are reluctant to set aside an award merely because it is large or we would have awarded less. A jury's punitive damage award will not be disturbed unless the verdict is so clearly excessive as to indicate passion and prejudice. When we review the record to determine whether a punitive damage award is excessive, the evidence must be viewed in the light most favorable to the plaintiff. A punitive damage award that is the product of a fair process is entitled to a strong presumption of validity. Nonetheless, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment imposes substantive limits on the size of punitive damage awards. The Due Process Clause prohibits the court from imposing a grossly excessive punishment on a tortfeasor. BMW of North America, Inc. v. Gore, 116S.CT 1589-1592-1996, Internal Citations Omitted only when a punitive damage award can be fairly categorized as grossly excessive in relation to the state's legitimate interests in punishment and deterrence does it enter the zone of arbitrariness that violates the due process clause. The Supreme Court has recently clarified the three factors a court must consider when determining whether a punitive damage award violates the due process clause, 1, the degree of reprehensibility of the conduct, 2, the disparity between the harm or potential harm suffered by the plaintiff and the punitive damage award, and, 3, the difference semeraro, introduction to property 3. Right to exclude 31 between this remedy and the civil or criminal penalties authorized or imposed in comparable cases. Gore, 116S.CT at 1598-99, 1603. We turn first to the reprehensibility factor. The most important indicium of the reasonableness of a punitive damage award is the degree of reprehensibility of the defendant's conduct. Punitive damages should reflect the egregiousness of the offense. In other words, some wrongs are more blameworthy than others and the punishment should fit the crime. In this case, the crime was Steenberg's brazen, intentional trespass on the Jacques land. Steenberg's intentional trespass reveals an indifference and a reckless disregard for the law, and for the rights of others. At trial, Steenberg took an arrogant stance, arguing essentially that yes, we intentionally trespassed on the Jacques land, but we cannot be punished for that trespass because the law protects us.
we reject that position. We are further troubled by Steinberg's utter disregard for the rights of the Jacques. Despite numerous unambiguous refusals by the Jacques to allow Steinberg access to their land, Steinberg delivered the mobile home across the Jacques land. Furthermore, these deceitful acts were egregious, Steinberg homes acted deviously. After the conversation in the Jacques kitchen, the Jacques, their neighbors, and the town chairman were satisfied that the matter was resolved, and Steinberg would not trespass on the Jacques land. Nevertheless, the Steinberg employees testified that as they walked out of the Jacques home, the assistant manager told them to use any means to deliver the mobile home. This conduct is reprehensible. We conclude that the degree of reprehensibility of Steinberg's conduct supports the imposition of a substantial punitive award. Finally, a substantial punitive damage award serves to assure that tort claims involving egregious conduct will be prosecuted. By allowing punitive damages, the self-interest of the plaintiff might lead to prosecution of a claim that might not otherwise be pursued. A $100,000 punitive damage award will not only give potential trespassers reason to pause before trespassing, it will also give aggrieved landowners reason to pursue a trespass action. In sum, although actual harm and criminal penalties have some relevance to the amount of punitive damages and may be factors in determining the reasonableness of the punitive damage award, we have not been willing in the past, and are not willing in this case, to adopt a mathematical formula for awarding such damages. Our consideration of the Gore factors leads us to the conclusion that the $100,000 punitive damages award does not excessively punish Steinberg Homes for its egregious conduct, to deter it from trespassing again, and to deter others who might be similarly tempted. The punitive award neither shocks our conscience, nor takes our breath away. On the contrary, it is the brazen conduct of Steinberg Homes that we find shocking, not the $100,000 punitive damages award. Reversed and remanded with directions. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 32 Chapter 1, Defining Property Foxphoto slash Bigstock.com State v Shack 58 NJ 297, 1971, Weintraub, Chief Justice, Defendants entered upon private property to aid migrant farm workers employed and housed there. Having refused to depart upon the demand of the owner, defendants were charged with violating NJSA 2A17031 which provides that, a, New York person who trespasses on any lands asterisk 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 after being forbidden so to trespass by the owner asterisk 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 is a disorderly person and shall be punished by a fine of not more than $1.50. Defendants were convicted in the Municipal Court of Deerfield Township and again on appeal in the County Court of Cumberland County on a trial de novo. R3 23-8, A. We certified their further appeal before argument in the Appellate Division. Complainant, Tedesco, a farmer, employs migrant workers for his seasonal needs. As part of their compensation, these workers are housed at a camp on his property. Defendant Tayeras is a field worker for the Farm Workers Division of the Southwest Citizens Organization for Poverty Elimination, known by the acronym SCOPE, a non-profit corporation funded by the Office of Economic Opportunity pursuant to an Act of Congress, 42U.S.C.A2861-2864. The role of SCOPE includes providing for the health services of the migrant farm worker. 
Defendant Shack is a staff attorney with the Farm Workers Division of Camden Regional Legal Services, Inc., known as CRLS, also a non-profit corporation funded by the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3. Right to Exclude 33 Office of Economic Opportunity Pursuant to an Act of Congress, 42 U.S.C.A. 2809, A. 3. The mission of CRLS includes legal advice and representation for these workers. Differences had developed between Tedesco and these defendants prior to the events which led to the trespass charges now before us. Hence when defendant Tayeras wanted to go upon Tedesco's farm to find a migrant worker who needed medical aid for the removal of 28 sutures, he called upon defendant Shaq for his help with respect to the legalities involved. Shaq, too had a mission to perform on Tedesco's farm, he wanted to discuss a legal problem with another migrant worker there employed and housed. Defendants arranged to go to the farm together. Shaq carried literature to inform the migrant farm workers of the assistance available to them under federal statutes, but no mention seems to have been made of that literature when Shaq was later confronted by Tedesco. Defendants entered upon Tedesco's property and as they neared the campsite where the farm workers were housed, they were confronted by Tedesco who inquired of their purpose. Tayeras and Shaq stated their missions. In response, Tedesco offered to find the injured worker, and as to the worker who needed legal advice, Tedesco also offered to locate the man but insisted that the consultation would have to take place in Tedesco's office and in his presence. Defendants declined, saying they had the right to see the men in the privacy of their living quarters and without Tedesco's supervision. Tedesco thereupon summoned a state trooper who, however, refused to remove defendants except upon Tedesco's written complaint. Tedesco then executed the formal complaints charging violations of the trespass statute. I the constitutionality of the trespass statute, as applied here, is challenged on several scores. We think it unnecessary to explore their validity. The reason is that we are satisfied that under our state law the ownership of real property does not include the right to bar access to governmental services available to migrant workers and hence there was no trespass within the meaning of the penal statute. The policy considerations which underlie that conclusion may be much the same as those which would be weighed with respect to one or more of the constitutional challenges, but a decision in non-constitutional terms is more satisfactory because the interests of migrant workers are more expansively served in that way than they would be if they had no more freedom than these constitutional concepts could be found to mandate if indeed they apply at all. Two property rights serve human values. They are recognized to that end, and are limited by it. Title to real property cannot include dominion over the destiny of persons the owner permits to come upon the premises. Their well-being must remain the paramount concern of a system of law. Indeed the needs of the occupants may be so imperative and their strength so weak, that the law will deny the occupants the power to contract away what is deemed essential to their health, welfare, or dignity. Here we are concerned with a highly disadvantaged segment of our society. We are told that every year farm workers and their families numbering more than one million leave their home areas to fill the seasonal demand for farm labor in the United States. The migrant farm workers come to New Jersey in substantial numbers. The migrant farm workers are a community within but apart from the local scene. They are rootless and isolated. Although the need for their labors is evident, they are unorganized and without economic or political power. 
it is their plight alone that summoned government to their aid. In response, Congress provided under Title IIIB of the Economics MRRO, Introduction to Property 34 Chapter 1, Defining Property Opportunity Act of 1964, 42U.S.C.A 2701 ETSEQ, for assistance for migrant and other seasonally employed farm workers and their families. Section 2861 states the purpose of this part is to assist migrant and seasonal farm workers and their families to improve their living conditions and develop skills necessary for a productive and self-sufficient life in an increasingly complex and technological society. Section 2862, b. 1, provides for funding of programs to meet the immediate needs of migrant and seasonal farm workers and their families, such as daycare for children, education, health services, improved housing, and sanitation, including the provision and maintenance of emergency and temporary housing and sanitation facilities, legal advice and representation, and consumer training and counseling. As we have said, SCOPE is engaged in a program funded under this section, and CRLS also pursues the objectives of this section although, we gather, it is funded under 2809, a. 3, which is not limited in its concern to the migrant and other seasonally employed farm workers and seeks to further the cause of justice among persons living in poverty by mobilizing the assistance of lawyers and legal institutions and by providing legal advice, legal representation, counseling, education, and other appropriate services. These ends would not be gained if the intended beneficiaries could be insulated from efforts to reach them. It is in this framework that we must decide whether the camp operator's rights in his lands may stand between the migrant workers and those who would aid them. The key to that aid is communication. Since the migrant workers are outside the mainstream of the communities in which they are housed and are unaware of their rights and opportunities and of the services available to them, they can be reached only by positive efforts tailored to that end. The report of the Governor's Task Force on Migrant Farm Labor, 1968, noted that one of the major problems related to seasonal farm labor is the lack of adequate direct information with regard to the availability of public services, and that there is a dire need to provide the workers with basic educational and informational material in a language and style that can be readily understood by the migrant. I.D. The report stressed the problem of access and deplored the notion that property rights may stand as a barrier, saying in our judgment, no trespass signs represent the last dying remnants of paternalistic behavior id a man's right in his real property of course is not absolute it was a maxim of the common law that one should so use his property as not to injure the rights of others although hardly a precise solvent of actual controversies the maxim does express the inevitable proposition that rights are relative and there must be an accommodation when they meet hence it has long been true that necessity private or public may justify entry upon the lands of another. The subject is not static. As pointed out in 5 Powell, Real Property, Rohan 1970, 745, pages 493 to 494, while society will protect the owner in his permissible interests in land, yet asterisk asterisk asterisk, s, you can owner must expect to find the absoluteness of his property rights curtailed by the organs of society, for the promotion of the best interests of others for whom these organs also operate as protective agencies. 
the necessity for such curtailments is greater in a modern industrialized and urbanized society than it was in the relatively simple American society of 50, 100, or 200 years ago. The current balance between individualism and dominance of the social interest depends not only upon political and social ideologies, but also upon the physical and social facts of the time and place under discussion. Professor Powell added in 746, pages 494-496, as one looks back along the historic road traversed by the law of land in England and in America, one sees a change from the viewpoint that he who owns Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3. Right to exclude 35 may do as he pleases with what he owns, to a position which hesitatingly embodies an ingredient of stewardship, which grudgingly, but steadily, broadens the recognized scope of social interests in the utilization of things. Asterisk 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 to one seeing history through the glasses of religion, these changes may seem to evidence increasing embodiments of the golden rule. To one thinking in terms of political and economic ideologies, they are likely to be labeled evidences of social enlightenment, or of creeping socialism or even of communistic infiltration, according to the individual's assumed definitions and retained or acquired prejudices. With slight attention to words or labels, time marches on toward new adjustments between individualism and the social interests. The process involves not only the accommodation between the right of the owner and the interests of the general public in his use of this property, but involves also an accommodation between the right of the owner and the right of individuals who are parties with him in consensual transactions relating to the use of the property. Accordingly substantial alterations have been made as between a landlord and his tenant. Rest Realty Corp v Cooper, 53 NJ 444, 451 to 53, 1969, asterisk. The argument in this case understandably included the question whether the migrant worker should be deemed to be a tenant and thus entitled to the tenant's right to receive visitors, or whether his residence on the employer's property should be deemed to be merely incidental and in aid of his employment, and hence to involve no possessory interest in the realty. Our prior cases did not reach employment situations at all comparable with the one before us. Nor did they involve the question whether an employee who is not a tenant may have visitors notwithstanding the employer's prohibition. We see no profit in trying to decide upon a conventional category and then forcing the present subject into it. That approach would be artificial and distorting. The quest is for a fair adjustment of the competing needs of the parties, in the light of the realities of the relationship between the migrant worker and the operator of the housing facility. Thus approaching the case, we find it unthinkable that the farmer employer can assert a right to isolate the migrant worker in any respect significant for the worker's well-being. The farmer, of course, is entitled to pursue his farming activities without interference, and this defendants readily concede. But we see no legitimate need for a right in the farmer to deny the worker the opportunity for aid available from federal, state, or local services, or from recognized charitable groups seeking to assist him. Hence representatives of these agencies and organizations may enter upon the premises to seek out the worker at his living quarters. So, too, the migrant worker must be allowed to receive visitors there of his own choice, so long as there is no behavior hurtful to others, and members of the press may not be denied reasonable access to workers who do not object to seeing them. 
it is not our purpose to open the employer's premises to the general public if in fact the employer himself has not done so. We do not say, for example, that solicitors or peddlers of all kinds may enter on their own, we may assume for the present that the employer may regulate their entry or bar them, at least if the employer's purpose is not to gain a commercial advantage for himself or if the regulation does not deprive the migrant worker of practical access to things he needs. And we are mindful of the employer's interest in his own and in his employee's security. Hence he may reasonably require a visitor to identify himself, and also to state asterisk ed note, an excerpt from Rest Realty Corp v Cooper, is reproduced in Chapter 4. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 36 Chapter 1, Defining Property His General Purpose If the Migrant Worker Has Not Already Informed Him That the Visitor Is Expected but the employer may not deny the worker his privacy or interfere with his opportunity to live with dignity and to enjoy associations customary among our citizens. These rights are too fundamental to be denied on the basis of an interest in real property and too fragile to be left to the unequal bargaining strength of the parties. It follows that defendants here invaded no possessory right of the farmer employer. Their conduct was therefore beyond the reach of the trespass statute. The judgments are accordingly reversed and the matters remanded to the county court with directions to enter judgments of acquittal. Notes and Questions 1. Compare Jacques, where the court believed that the intrusion onto the plaintiff's private property was sufficiently grievous to support substantial punitive damages, with Shack, where the court held that the property owner's rights were not infringed despite an intrusion. Did the court simply disagree on the importance of the right to exclude or are there factors that led the courts to interpret the scope of the two owners' property rights differently? Two standard property rhetoric treats the right to exclude as an ideal principle, as absolute, and subject only to limitation as necessary to serve other important policy goals such as the right to free speech or the right to government services. This view stems from the notion that absent private ownership, including an absolute right to exclude, property will be mismanaged which will then reduce its social value to society. This phenomenon is known as the tragedy of the commons. The idea is that a single owner of a grazing area would limit sheep and cattle access to maximize the value of the field. But if the field exists as a commons, each individual livestock owner's self-interest would be served by maximizing its use of the field. As a result, the field becomes overgrazed and its social value suffers. Modern analysis has demonstrated, however, that the tragedy of the commons is simply an empirical possibility, rather than an inevitable fact of human nature. In some situations, property may actually be more valuable when held as a commons. Airspace is one such example. Society benefits greatly by eliminating each airline's transaction costs that would be associated with negotiating over flight rights with every property owner. Hinman v. Pacific Air Transport, 84F.2D755, 9-1936, rejecting a trespass action against airplanes flying over private property, explaining that the ad kylom doctrine that private property rights extend from the center of the earth to the sky was invented at some remote time in the past when the use of space above land was confined to narrow limits and did not govern modern property law. Similarly, fields of research and development may yield more rapid advancement if researchers have broad access to previously created intellectual property relevant to the area. Semeraro, 
Introduction to Property and Introduction to Property Law in the U.S. Copyright 2018 Stephen Semeraro Version 2.0 Please note, generally, omissions of substance are indicated with an ellipsis, but omissions of citations or footnotes are not. For more detailed information, please see the book's front matter. Chapter 2, Categorizing Property Present Possessorate Estates, Future Interests, and the Rules Designed to Limit the Reach of Future Contingent Interests The common law categorized property in a number of ways, and although these categories have waxed and waned in importance, they remain a significant part of our legal heritage and a necessary predicate to a full understanding of modern property law. I. The taxonomy of estates The common law recognizes two types of property, real property, or real estate, and personal property. Real property refers to property interests in land, personal property refers to interests in chattels. Modern law has retained this terminology, though the reasons for it have long faded from importance. The terms real and personal referred to the type of action that could be used to recover the property at early common law. Real referred to an injunctive action to recover the land itself, while a personal action only permitted the recovery of damages. The law has long ceased to recognize these distinctions, permitting both injunctive actions and damages with respect to either type of property. The labels, however, stuck. In the United States, a third form of property, intellectual property, encompasses property interests in intangibles such as patents, copyrights, trade secrets, and publicity. The importance of intellectual property has grown exponentially in recent decades to the point where each area demands a course of its own. Aside from an occasional reference, this course deals primarily with real and personal property. A second set of categories defines particular possessory estates that identify individual rights to possess property based on the duration of the possessory interest. Early lawyers thought of estates as intangible things, distinct from the real or personal property to which they were attached, that described the relationship between owners and their property. Today, we think of estates as describing relationships among people who have competing claims to property. As you learn these categories, Keep two things in mind, 1, estates can always be set up to terminate early and there is another set of categories for setting up early terminating estates, referred to as defeasible estates, and, 2, estates that terminate, either naturally or because another estate divests them, must be accompanied by a description of who will take possession of the property when the estate ends. Those who have some right or potential right to take possession in the future are said to hold future interests, which have a taxonomy of their own. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 38 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property The present possessorate estate category defines the natural termination point for each estate. Modern law recognizes three principal categories of present possessorate estates. First, a fee simple represents a perpetual estate with no natural termination. Second, a life estate represents an estate that lasts for the life of a particular individual, usually the owner of the estate. A life estate may be transferred but the measuring life does not change. When possession of the life estate is held by someone other than the person serving as the measuring life, the estate is called a life estate per otravi. Third, a leasehold represents an estate that lasts for a defined period of time. A few jurisdictions also recognize a fourth type of estate known as the fee tail, 
representing an estate that passes from the holder to his issue, which includes children and all further lineal descendants, including grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc. When a female holder dies without children, the estate ends. Thomas Jefferson opposed the female as an outmoded device for restraining alienability of land and perpetuating an aristocracy. He convinced Virginia to abolish the female estate and most other states followed. Today, only Delaware, Maine, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island formally recognize the female as a legitimate estate and even in these states the holder may convert a female into a fee simple estate during his lifetime, though not in his will, and thereby obtain the right to transfer the property to anyone he chooses. A a word about learning estates this unit of the property course is traditionally one of the least popular among first year law students. The law of equitable trusts which you study later in law school has largely replaced legal estates and future interests as a way to control property use and future transfers why then do we continue to study the estates and future interests because the skills necessary to learn and manipulate the estates taxonomy are very similar to those needed to learn and manipulate complicated statutory codes critical to the modern lawyer These statutory schemes include codes governing the tax system, environmental controls, and the systems governing utility, communications, and securities regulation. The taxonomy of estates and future interests thus serves as a proxy for the more specialized and complicated codes to come and something of a rite of passage for first-year law students. If you can grasp the intricacies of estates and future interests, then you have the grounding to tackle the Internal Revenue Code. circle the law governing hazardous waste cleanup or a myriad of other complex legal codes be estates and future interest terminology a number of terms are necessary to understand the four estates present possessor estate often simply referred to as an estate it defines the possible estates held by one or more persons who have a right at the present time to possess a particular piece of real or personal property Future interest defines the interests of one or more persons who will or may potentially obtain the right to possess certain property. Future interests can be vested, meaning that the holder or his estate will definitely come to possess the property in question. Future interests can also be contingent, meaning that certain conditions must happen before the interest can become possessory. Note that the term vested is not as precise as it might suggest. There are situations where a vested future interest might never actually become possessory. This possibility will be explained below. Freehold fee simple, fetal, and life estate are known as freehold estates because they are said to transfer season to the holder. Season is a metaphysical concept that was important during feudal times and is related to the right to possess the property. Semeraro Introduction to Property I Taxonomy of Estates 39 Through the Ceremony of Livery of Season The owner of a plot of land symbolically transferred season what we now simply call ownership to the new owner by passing a clot of dirt The leasehold by contrast does not involve a transfer of season and thus it is a non-freehold estate Although the terms freehold and non-freehold are still used by the courts they have virtually no modern significance Intervivos transfer a conveyance or transfer of property that occurs while the grantor is still alive. Testamentary or by devise terms that describe a conveyance or transfer of a property interest upon the death of the grantor.
devisee or legatee a person who takes the property of one who has died as a result of a devise in a will. Decedent an individual who has died, the term is generally used in conjunction with the distribution of the decedent's property. Issue lineal relatives in a direct line born after the individual in question, such as children and grandchildren. Here a person who inherits the real property of one who dies intestate, i.e., without a will. Personal property is inherited by the next of kin. Under modern law, however, heirs and next of kin are virtually always the same. Importantly, no one is an heir to a living person. One's heirs are determined only at death. Under modern law, spouses and issue are given preference over other relations, and may be required to divide the estate amongst one another. If the decedent has no spouse or issue, living parents are next in line. If none of these relatives are living upon the decedent's death, the estate is distributed to collaterals, a category including all blood relatives starting with siblings and extending to nephews and nieces, uncles and aunts, cousins, etc., through a series of rules that differ by jurisdiction. Estate this term has two meanings relevant to this unit. In addition to being the name of the general category of present possessory interests in property, the term is used to refer to all of the property that an individual, 1, owns upon death and, 2, has the right to distribute through a will or that in the absence of a will is distributed to the decedent's heirs under state intestacy law. S.G. If a person dies intestate, without heirs, the decedent's property is said to escheat or return to the state. Two present possessorate estates a language used to create and convey estates at common law, specific language was required to create and convey particular estates, except for the life estate, which was presumed if the specific language was not used. A life estate lasted for, 1, the life of the holder or, 2, in a per vi life estate for the life of an identified third person. A life estate could be sold, but would still end at the death of the originally identified measuring life. A life estate holder could not convey the property upon death. The grant of the life estate would instead always include a future interest holder who would take the possessory interest when the measuring life ended. At common law, to create or convey a fee simple the maximum estate conveying all legally recognized property rights including the right to convey upon death the deed had to specify that the estate was being transferred to a particular named person and his heirs. The language and his heirs did not create any present or future interest in the estate holder's heirs. The terminology was simply used to indicate that an estate was being created that could be passed by the holder to his heirs upon death. The holder was also free semeraro, introduction to property 40 chapter 2, categorizing property to sell the estate or leave it to someone other than his heirs in his will without any limitation. To create or convey a fee tail the deed was required to grant the estate in a named person and the heirs of his body. At common law, unlike a fee simple, this terminology did require that the estate pass to a particular set of heirs, the holder's issue, and if no issue existed at the death of the holder, only then would the estate pass to a future interest holder. Under modern law, however, the holder of a fee tail is free to convert the estate into a fee simple prior to death, effectively defeating any interests the heirs may hold. A grantor could create a term of years estate, or leasehold, by specifying a specific term after which a future interest holder would take the possessory right in the property. 
Under modern law, the old presumption has since been reversed. Rather than presuming the intent to create or convey a life estate, courts now assume that the grantor intended to pass his entire estate, generally, a fee simple. To pass a lesser estate, the grantor must clearly specify the lesser estate. For example, to A for life. Present possessorate estates estate name effect language to create future interest fee simple all rights, including right to convey upon death and his heirs, not required under modern law, none of fee simple is perpetual and does not naturally terminate possession, but can life estate not waste, see Chap 2, IIIB, no right to convey upon for life, not required under common law, yes death fee tail possession, but cannot waste, see Chap 2, IIIB, no right to convey upon death, and the heirs of his body, only four states currently recognize the fee tail estate, yes for defined period, leasehold slash term of years right to convey, even upon death, for that period specified yes period B. An illustrative case the following case demonstrates that estates can be created only in the forms described above and illustrates how courts apply the presumption that a grantor intends to convey the entire estate that she possesses, unless the language clearly specifies otherwise. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Present Possessorate Estates 41 White v. Brown 559 S.W.2 D. 938, Tennessee 1977, Brock, Justice, this is a suit for the construction of a will. The Chancellor held that the will passed a life estate, but not the remainder, in certain realty, leaving the remainder to pass by inheritance to the testatrix's heirs at law. The Court of Appeals affirmed. Mrs. Jessie Lyde died on February 15, 1973, leaving a holographic will which, in its entirety, reads as follows, April 19, 1972 I, Jessie Lyde, being in sound mind declare this to be my last will and testament. I appoint my niece Sandra White Perry to be the executrix of my estate. I wish Evelyn White to have my home to live in and not to be sold. I also leave my personal property to Sandra White Perry. My house is not to be sold. Jesse Lyde, underscoring by testatrix, dot. Mrs. Lyde was a widow and had no children. Mrs. White, her husband, who was the testatrix's brother, and her daughter, Sandra White Perry, lived with Mrs. Lyde as a family for some 25 years. After Sandra married in 1969 and Mrs. White's husband died in 1971, Evelyn White continued to live with Mrs. Lyde until Mrs. Lyde's death in 1973 at age 88. Mrs. White, joined by her daughter as executrix, filed this action against Lyde's nieces and nephews, her heirs-at-law to obtain construction of the will, alleging that she is vested with a fee-simple title to the home. The defendants contend that the will conveyed only a life estate to Mrs. White, leaving the remainder to go to them under our laws of intestate succession. The Chancellor held that the will unambiguously conveyed only a life interest in the home to Mrs. White and refused to consider extrinsic evidence concerning Mrs. Lyde's relationship with her surviving relatives. Due to the debilitated condition of the property and in accordance with the desire of all parties, the Chancellor ordered the property sold with the proceeds distributed in designated shares among the beneficiaries. 
IR cases have repeatedly acknowledged that the intention of the testator is to be ascertained from the language of the entire instrument when read in the light of surrounding circumstances. C. E.G., Harris v. Bidikafer, 541 SW, 2D 372, 384, Tennessee 1976, Martin v. Taylor, 521 S.W.2D 581, 584, Tennessee 1975. But, the practical difficulty in this case, as in so many other cases involving wills drafted by laypersons, is that the words chosen by the testatrix are not specific enough to clearly state her intent. Thus, in our opinion, it is not clear whether Mrs. Light intended to convey a life estate in the home to Mrs. White, leaving the remainder interest to descend by operation of law, or a fee interest with a restraint on alienation. Moreover, the will might even be read as conveying a fee interest subject to a condition subsequent, Mrs. White's failure to live in the home. In such ambiguous cases it is obvious that rules of construction, always yielding to the cardinal rule of the testator's intent, must be employed as auxiliary aids in the court's endeavor to ascertain the testator's intent. In 1851 our General Assembly enacted two such statutes of construction, thereby creating a statutory presumption against partial intestacy. Chapter 33 of the Public Acts of 1851, now codified as TCA 64-101 and 64-501, reversed the common law presumption that a life estate was intended unless the intent to pass a fee simple was clearly expressed in the instrument. TCA 64-501 provides, Semeraro, Introduction to Property 42 Chapter 2, categorizing property every grant or devise of real estate, or any interest therein, shall pass all the estate or interest of the grantor or devisor unless the intent to pass a less er estate or interest shall appear by express terms, or be necessarily implied in the terms of the instrument. Chapter 180, Section 2 of the Public Acts of 1851, now codified as TCA 32-301, was specifically directed to the operation of a device. In relevant part, TCA 32-301 provides, a will shall convey all the real estate belonging to, the testator, or in which he had any interest at his decease, unless a contrary intention appear sick by its words and context. Thus, under our law, unless the words and context of Mrs. Lights will clearly evidence her intention to convey only a life estate to Mrs. White, the will should be construed as passing the home to Mrs. White in fee. If the expression in the will is doubtful, the doubt is resolved against the limitation and in favor of the absolute estate. Meacham v. Graham, 98 Tennessee 190, 206, 1897. Several of our cases demonstrate the effect of these statutory presumptions against intestacy by construing language which might seem to convey an estate for life, without provision for a gift over after the termination of such life estate, as passing a fee simple instead. In Green v. Young, 163 Tennessee 16, 1931, the testatrix's disposition of all of her property to her husband to be used by him for his support and comfort during his life was held to pass a fee estate. Similarly, in Williams v. Williams, 
167 Tennessee 26, 1933, the testator's devise of real property to his children for and during their natural lives without provision for a gift over was held to convey a fee. And, in Web v. Web, 53 Tennessee App 609, 1964, a devise of personal property to the testator's wife for her maintenance, support, and comfort, for the full period of her natural life with complete powers of alienation but without provision for the remainder past absolute title to the widow. To thus, if the sole question for our determination were whether the will's conveyance of the home to Mrs. White to live in gave her a life interest or a fee in the home, a conclusion favoring the absolute estate would be clearly required. The question, however, is complicated somewhat by the caveat contained in the will that the home is not to be sold a restriction conflicting with the free alienation of property, one of the most significant incidents of fee ownership. We must determine, therefore, whether Mrs. Light's will, when taken as a whole, clearly evidences her intent to convey only a life estate in her home to Mrs. White. Under ordinary circumstances a person makes a will to dispose of his or her entire estate. If, therefore, a will is susceptible of two constructions, by one of which the testator disposes of the whole of his estate and by the other of which he disposes of only a part of his estate, dying intestate as to the remainder, this court has always preferred that construction which disposes of the whole of the testator's estate if that construction is reasonable and consistent with the general scope and provisions of the will. A construction which results in partial intestacy will not be adopted unless such intention clearly appears. It has been said that the courts will prefer any reasonable construction or any construction which does not do violence to a testator's language, to a construction which results in partial intestacy. The intent to create a fee simple or other absolute interest and, at the same time to impose a restraint upon its alienation can be clearly expressed. If the testator specifically declares that he devises land to A in fee simple or to A and his heirs but that A shall not have the power to alienate the land, there is but one tenable construction, viz., the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Present possessorate estates 43 testator's intent is to impose a restraint upon a fee simple. To construe such language to create a life estate would conflict with the express specification of a fee simple as well as with the presumption of intent to make a complete testamentary disposition of all of a testator's property. By extension, as noted by Professor Kastner in his treatise on the law of real property, since it is now generally presumed that a conveyor intends to transfer his whole interest in the property, it may be reasonable to adopt the same construction, conveyance of a fee simple, even in the absence of words of inheritance, if there is no language that can be construed to create a remainder. 6 American Law of Property 26.58, A.J. Kastner at 1952. In our opinion, testatrix's apparent testamentary restraint on the alienation of the home devised to Mrs. White does not evidence such a clear intent to pass only a life estate as is sufficient to overcome the law's strong presumption that a fee simple interest was conveyed. Accordingly, we conclude that Mrs. Lights will pass a fee simple absolute in the home to Mrs. White. Her attempted restraint on alienation must be declared void as inconsistent with the incidents and nature of the estate devised and contrary to public policy. The decrees of the Court of Appeals and the Trial Court are reversed and the cause is remanded to the Chancery Court for such further proceedings as may be necessary, consistent with this opinion.
costs are taxed against Appalese. Image source, Stock Exchange www.sxc.hu Harbison, Justice, Dissenting. With deference to the views of the majority, and recognizing the principles of law contained in the majority opinion, I am unable to agree that the language of the will of Mrs. Lyde did or was intended to convey a fee simple interest in her residence to her sister-in-law, Mrs. Evelyn White. The testatrix expressed the wish that Mrs. White was to have my home to live in and not to be sold. The emphasis is that of the testatrix, and her desire that Mrs. White was not to have an unlimited estate in the property was reiterated in the last sentence of the will, to wit, my house is not to be sold. The testatrix appointed her niece, Mrs. Perry, executrix, and made an outright bequest to her of all personal property. The will does not seem to me to be particularly ambiguous, and like the Chancellor and the Court of Appeals, I am of the opinion that the testatrix gave Mrs. White a life estate only, and that upon the death of Mrs. White the remainder will pass to the heirs at law of the testatrix. The cases cited by petitioners in support of their contention that a fee simple was conveyed are not persuasive, in my opinion. Possibly the strongest case cited by the appellants is Green v. Young, in which the testatrix bequeathed all of her real and personal semeraro, introduction to property 44 chapter 2, categorizing property property to her husband to be used by him for his support and comfort during his life. The will expressly stated that it included all of the property, real and personal, which the testatrix owned at the time of her death. There was no limitation whatever upon the power of the husband to use, consume, or dispose of the property, and the court concluded that a fee simple was intended. In the case of Williams v. Williams, 167 Tennessee 26, 1933, a father devised property to his children for and during their natural lives but the will contained other provisions not mentioned in the majority opinion which seemed to me to distinguish the case. Unlike the provisions of the present will, other clauses in the Williams will contained provisions that these same children were to have all the residue of my estate personal or mixed of which I shall die possessed or seized, or to which I shall be entitled at the time of my decease, to have and to hold the same to them and their executors and administrators and assigns forever. Further, following some specific gifts to grandchildren, there was another bequest of the remainder of the testator's money to these same three children. The language used by the testator in that case was held to convey the fee simple interest in real estate to the children, but its provisions hardly seem analogous to the language employed by the testatrix in the instant case. In the case of Webb v. Webb, 53 Tennessee App. 609, 1964, the testator gave his wife all the residue of his property with a clear, unqualified, and unrestricted power of use, sale or disposition. Thereafter he attempted to limit her interest to a life estate, with a gift over to his heirs of any unconsumed property. Again, under settled rules of construction and interpretation, the wife was found to have a fee simple estate, but, unlike the present case, there was no limitation whatever upon the power of use or disposition of the property by the beneficiary. In the present case the testatrix knew how to make an outright gift, if desired. She left all of her personal property to her niece without restraint or limitation. As to her sister-in-law, however, she merely wished the latter have her house to live in, and expressly withheld from her any power of sale. 
the majority opinion holds that the testatrix violated a rule of law by attempting to restrict the power of the donee to dispose of the real estate. Only by thus striking a portion of the will, and holding it inoperative, is the conclusion reached that an unlimited estate resulted. In my opinion, this interpretation conflicts more greatly with the apparent intention of the testatrix than did the conclusion of the courts below, limiting the gift to Mrs. White to a life estate. I have serious doubt that the testatrix intended to create any illegal restraint on alienation or to violate any other rules of law. It seems to me that she rather emphatically intended to provide that her sister-in-law was not to be able to sell the house during the lifetime of the latter a result which is both legal and consistent with the creation of a life estate. In my opinion the judgment of the courts below was correct and I would affirm. Three future interests following naturally terminating estates when a present possessorate estate reaches its natural termination, the estate ends. Who then takes possession? The law accounts for this contingency by creating future interests in property whenever a potentially terminating estate is created. The Granter May Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3 Future Interests 45 specify the future interest holder in the deed, but if no one is specified, then the law presumes that the property is returned to the grantor when the present possessorate estate terminates. That is, if the deed is silent, the grantor is presumed to retain all future interests. A naming future interests based on who holds them the life estate, fetal, and term of years slash leasehold are all naturally terminating estates. In other words, by definition they include their own endpoint, a life estate terminates at the death of the person whose life is the measure of the estate, a fetal terminates at the death of the holder when the holder has no issue, a term of years slash leasehold terminates at the point agreed to by the landlord and tenant. The future interests following these naturally terminating estates have different names depending upon whether the future interest is retained by the grantor or transferred to someone other than the grantor. When the grantor retains the future interest after a naturally terminating estate, the future interest is called a reversion. When the grantor transfers the future interest to someone else in the deed at the time that the present possessory interest is created or conveyed, the future interest is called a remainder. The common law placed limits on the right to transfer future interests, but modern law generally permits such transfers. Once created, however, a future interest will keep its name even if it is transferred to or from the grantor. So, if the grantor retains by deed the future interest following a naturally terminating present possessorate estate, such as a life estate, then that interest will be a reversion, and it will keep that name even if it is subsequently transferred to someone other than the grantor. Copyright Stephen Semeraro Semeraro, Introduction to Property 46 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property Future Interests Following Naturally Terminating Present Possessorate Estates Present Possessorate Future Interest in Estate Grantor Future Interest in Someone Other Than the Grantor Fee Simple Not Applicable Not Applicable, No Natural Termination, No Natural Termination, Life Estate Reversion Remainder Fee Tail Reversion Remainder Term of Years Slash Leasehold Reversion Remainder, At Common Law Remainder Could only follow a freehold estate and thus an executory interest the future interest following a defeasible estate, see infra section 4, followed a future interest in someone other than the grantor after a leasehold, be protecting future interest holders, 
The concept of waste the law prohibits a present possessor estate holder from wasting an estate to the detriment of a future interest holder. The possessor estate holder is permitted to use the property in ordinary and reasonable ways, and normal wear and tear of the property is allowed. But, the present possessor estate holder may not abuse the property. A present possessor estate holder who engages in waste can be subject to damages or even forfeiture of the estate. Waste is divided into three categories, one affirmative slash voluntary waste occurs as the result of affirmative acts by the present estate holder that devalue or impede use of the property, such as removing valuable minerals from the property. Under the Open Minds Doctrine, a present possessor estate holder may continue to deplete resources in the same way and at the same rate as in the past. For example, an open coal mine can continue to operate, and the present estate holder can sell the coal. But new mines cannot be opened and production may not be expanded without the consent of the future interest holder. Similarly, trees may be cut to preserve the health of the remaining trees, but not in a way that depletes the land of resources. Two permissive waste occurs when the present estate holder negligently fails to maintain the property, for example, failing to keep the premises in good repair, leading to more rapid deterioration than would ordinarily occur. A failure to repair a leaky roof that leads to further damage to a house is an example of permissive waste. Three ameliorative waste occurs when the present possessor estate holder makes changes to the property, even if they increase its value. This conduct may constitute waste because it alters the property from what the future interest holder expected to receive when the interest was created. Courts tend to assess this type of waste on a sliding scale that looks to a. the significance of the changes, and b. the likely length of time before the present possessor estate ends. The more extensive the change and the shorter the present possessor estate, the more likely a court would be to find this type of waste. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3. Future Interests 47 For example, if the present holder has a short interest like a six-month lease, then changing the property in any way even if the change increases its value would likely be considered waste. By contrast, if the present estate holder has a 99-year lease, he will have much greater flexibility in how he may change the property. Problem Set Number 1 present possessory interests and future interests following naturally terminating estates assume Owen, the owner of Blackacre in fee simple absolute, conveyed the property using the following language, and for each conveyance, one identify and construe each present and future interest, one at a time, in the order given, as of the effective date of the deed or will. As to each interest, answer each of the following questions, a. Who has the interest? b. What is the interest called? C. What does it mean? Definition. D. How do you know that's what the interest is? To consider the effect of each subsequent event, in chronological order, on each interest. Repeat the step above, to the extent necessary without repetition, after each event. The effect of a subsequent event will be one of three possibilities. A. The interest stays the same. B the interest disappears, or c, the interest becomes something else. An answer to the first question is provided as an example. Conveyances, one to Abel and his heirs. Abel holds a fee simple absolute, 
which is the maximum interest one can hold in real estate with no termination point. Abel may thus control the property on his death. It is a fee simple because, 1, the phrase and his heirs indicated the intent to convey a fee simple, modern law, and automatically conveyed a fee simple, common law, and, 2, under modern law a grantor is presumed to convey the entire estate that she possessed here a fee simple absolute unless the language of the grant explicitly limits the estate conveyed. Here there is no limiting language. Subsequent event, Abel dies when Abel dies Blackacre will become part of his estate and he will control its distribution. If he dies intestate his heirs will inherit the property. Note that the and his heirs language does not guarantee that the heirs will inherit. The and his heirs phrase is a term of art signifying that Abel has a fee simple that he may convey upon his death to anyone he chooses. 2. To Abel and the heirs of his body. 3. To Abel for life. 4. To Abel forever. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 48 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property 5. To Abel for the life of Bart. 6. To Abel for five years. 7. To Abel. 8. To Abel for life then to B9. To Abel from month to month until either Abel or Owen provides notice of termination. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 4. Defeasible Estates 49-4. Defeasible Estates A defeasing clauses the above description of the present possessorate estates categorizes them by their natural termination. A fee simple has no natural termination, for example, and a life estate terminates at the death of the person whose life is used to set the term of the estate. When in their natural state, the law deems these estates to be absolute. The phrase fee simple absolute refers to a fee simple that can never be divested. Although the word absolute is rarely used when referring to the other estates, it would not be improper to refer to a life estate absolute when there is no condition that could cause the life estate to terminate before the death of the person whose life is used to set the length of the estate. The law permits deeds to include clauses that will divest, i.e. end, a present possessory estate before its natural termination. These clauses are referred to as defeasing clauses. Defeasing clauses are divided into three somewhat confusing categories. It is important to remember that all three have the same practical effect, to end a present possessorate estate prior to its natural termination. A defeasing clause can be attached to any of the present possessorate estates. Thus, such a clause is used to terminate a fee simple or to terminate a life estate, fee tail, or leasehold estate early. One determinable this defeasing clause terminates an estate upon the happening of a certain condition. It is distinguished from other defeasing clauses in the following ways, a the clause uses words of a temporal or durational nature such as while, during, until, when, so long as, etc., b the condition is placed in the same clause that grants the present possessorate estate, c the future interest defining the estate that becomes possessorate if the determinable's condition is satisfied must be retained by the grantor, and is called a possibility of reverter, and d if the condition is satisfied. The possessory interest automatically transfers by operation of law to the holder of the possibility of reverter future interest. For example, O conveys Blackacre to A so long as A continues to work for the government. Notice the use of the temporal language so long as and that the condition appears in the same clause as the language granting Blackacre to A. 
Notice also that no future interest holder is specified, which the law interprets to mean that the future interest is held by the grantor. California, CalCiv Code 885.020, and Kentucky, KY Reverend STAT and 381.218, 2003, have eliminated the fee simple determinable, classifying all divesting clauses that leave the future interest with the grantor as subject to conditions subsequent, which is explained below. Two subject to conditions subsequent this defeasing clause terminates an estate upon the happening of a certain condition. It is distinguished from other defeasing clauses in the following ways, a the clause uses conditional words such as provided, if, or on the condition that, etc., b the condition is placed in a clause that is subsequent to the granting clause, semeraro, introduction to property 50 chapter 2, categorizing property c. The future interest defining the estate that becomes possessor if the subject to condition subsequent condition is satisfied must be retained by the grantor and is called a right of entry, also known as a power of termination, and d. If the condition is satisfied, the possessor interest does not automatically transfer to the holder of the right of entry slash power of termination. Rather, the holder of the right of entry slash power of termination must initiate an ejectment action to retake possession. For example, O conveys Black Acre to A, on the condition that A continue to work for the government. Notice the use of the conditional language on the condition that and that the condition is in a subsequent clause to the clause granting Black Acre to A as indicated by the comma. Notice also that no future interest holder is specified, which the law interprets to mean that the future interest is held by the grantor. Where the language of a conveyance is ambiguous, courts will presume that the parties intended to create a subject to condition subsequent divesting clause. 3. Subject to executory limitation This defeasing clause terminates an estate upon the happening of a certain condition. It is distinguished from other defeasing clauses in the following ways, a. The future interest that takes possession if the subject to executory limitations condition is satisfied must be owned by a party other than the grantor and is called an executory interest. b. If the condition is satisfied, the possessor interest automatically transfers to the holder of the executory interest. For example, O conveys Black Acre to A, on the condition that A continue to work for the government, and if A stops working for the government, then to B. Or O conveys Black Acre to A so long as A continues to work for the government, but should A ever stop working for the government, then to B. Notice that the type of conditional language is irrelevant. Either temporal language in a granting clause, conditional language in a subsequent clause, or any other language expressing a condition, will yield a present possessor estate that is subject to executory limitation if the future interest owned by in someone other than the grantor. The executory interest future interest comes in two forms depending on whether the interest is transferred to the holder of the executory interest directly from the grantor or through some other party. In the examples above, the interest would go to B from A, who is not the grantor. B thus holds a shifting executory interest. Consider a further example, O grants Black Acre to B in five years if B is still living. Here, B would receive the interest directly from O, the grantor, who has created a fee fimple subject to executory limitation in himself. B thus holds a springing executory interest. There is no practical significance to the springing and shifting labels.
they are simply names used to describe the interest depending upon how it would pass to the executory interest holder. Distinguishing Covenants from Conditions The divesting clauses set out above create forfeiture provisions that can cause the estate holder to lose all interest in the property. Deeds may also create covenants, i.e. promises made by the grantor or grantee, semeraro, introduction to property for defeasible estates 51, see infra chapter 6, section 3, that may be enforced by actions for damages or injunction but that do not result in forfeiture of the entire interest. Defeasible estates and accompanying future interests type linguistic requirements affect future interest holder and name determinable temporal or durational language in the granting clause immediate forfeiture of present possessorate estate if condition met slash broken in grantor possibility of reverter subject to condition subsequent conditional language future interest holder must x in grantor in a subsequent ersize right of entry to right of entry slash clause trigger forfeiture power of Termination subject to executory limitation no specific linguistic requirement immediate forfeiture of present possessorate estate if condition met slash broken in someone other than grantor executory interest, springing or shifting, b. An illustrative case The following case illustrates the use of divesting clauses. Note that a key aspect of the case was the non-transferability of the future interest following a defeasible estate. Those future interests are often transferable under modern law. As you read, focus on how the different defeasible estates operate and how those rules affected the court's ultimate decision. Moran Holes v. CTYBD of School Trustees 93 Il Apther 366, 1981, Jones, Justice, this case involves an action to quiet title to real property. Its resolution depends on the judicial construction of language in a conveyance of that property. The case is before us on the pleadings, plaintiff's third amended complaint having been dismissed by a final order. The pertinent facts are taken from the pleadings. On March 18, 1941, W.E. and Jenny Hutton executed a warranty deed in which they conveyed certain land, to be known here as the Hutton School Grounds, to the trustees of School District No. 1 the predecessors of the defendants in this action. The deed provided that this land to be used for school purpose only, otherwise to revert to grantors herein. In July, 1941, the Huttons conveyed their remaining 38.5 acres to Earl and Madeleine Jacquemain. This deed purported to include the future interest in the 1.5 acres conveyed to the school that would become possessorate if the property were not used for school purposes. In 1959, the Jacquemains conveyed the former Hutton property, again purportedly including the future interest in the school property, to the Moran Holzes. W.E. Hutton died intestate on July 18, 1951, and Jenny Hutton died intestate on February 18, 1969. The Huttons left as their only legal heir their son Harry E. Hutton. The school district used the property for classes until May 1973, and then for storage purposes. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 52 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property on May 7, 1977, Harry Hutton, conveyed to the Moran Holzes all of his interest in the Hutton School land. This document was filed in the Recorder's Office of Lawrence County on September 7, 1977. On September 6, 1977, Harry Hutton disclaimed his interest in the property in favor of the school board. 
the disclaimer was in the form of a written document entitled Disclaimer and Release. It contained a legal description of the Hutton School grounds and recited that Harry E. Hutton disclaimed and released any possibility of reverter or right of entry for condition broken, or other similar interest, in favor of the County Board of School Trustees. The document further recited that it was made for the purpose of releasing and extinguishing any right Harry E. Hutton may have had in the interest retained by W. E. Hutton and Jenny Hutton asterisk 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 in that deed to the trustees of School District No. 1, Lawrence County, Illinois dated March 18, 1941, and filed on the same date asterisk asterisk star. The disclaimer was filed in the recorder's office of Lawrence County on October 4, 1977. The Murren Holses filed a complaint in the Circuit Court of Lawrence County on April 9, 1974, in which they sought to quiet title to the school property in themselves, by virtue of the interests acquired from the Jacquemains. They alleged that they owned the property through the conveyance from Harry Hutton. The defendants moved to dismiss this complaint because Harry Hutton had no interest in the school property as he never acted to re-enter it. The trial court entered an order dismissing the final version of the complaint. In the order the court found that the W. Arendt deed dated March 18, 1941, from W. E. Hutton and Jenny Hutton to the trustees of school district No. 1, conveying land here concerned, created a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent followed by the right of entry for condition broken, rather than a determinable fee followed by a possibility of reverter. Plaintiffs have perfected an appeal to this court. The basic issue presented by this appeal is whether the trial court correctly concluded that the plaintiffs could not have acquired any interest in the school property from the Jacquemains or from Harry Hutton. Resolution of this issue must turn upon the legal interpretation of the language contained in the March 18, 1941, deed from W.E. and Jenny Hutton to the trustees of School District No. 1, this land to be used for school purpose only, otherwise to revert to granters herein. In addition to the legal effect of this language we must consider the alienability of the interest created and the effect of subsequent deeds. The parties appear to be in agreement that the 1941 deed from the Huttons conveyed a defeasible fee simple estate to the grantee, and gave rise to a future interest in the granters, see Restatement of the Law, Property, 153. The future interest remaining in this grantor or his estate can only be a possibility of reverter or a right of re-entry. As neither interest may be transferred by will or by inter vivos conveyance, Il Reverend Stat, Ch30, Par37b, and as the land was being used for school purposes in 1959 when the Jacquemains transferred their interest in the school property to the plaintiffs, the trial court correctly ruled that the plaintiffs could not have acquired any interest in that property from the Jacquemains by the deed of October 9, 1959. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 4. Defeasible Estates 53. Consequently this court must determine whether the plaintiffs could have acquired an interest in the Hutton School grounds from Harry Hutton. Because of the Illinois statutory law, as interpreted by the state courts, Existing at the time of the conveyance, the Huttons were prohibited from transferring the future interest in the property through an inter vivos conveyance or a will. Their future interest could only pass from the Huttons upon their death by intestate succession to their sole heir, their son, Harry Hutton. 
The resolution of this issue depends on the construction of the language of the 1941 deed of the Huttons to the school district. As urged by the defendants and as the trial court found, that deed conveyed a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent followed by a right of re-entry for condition broken. As argued by the plaintiffs, on the other hand, the deed conveyed a fee simple determinable followed by a possibility of reverter. In either case, the grantor and his heirs retain an interest in the property, which may become possessory if the condition is broken. The type of interest held governs the mode of reinvestment with title if reinvestment is to occur. If the grantor had a possibility of reverter, he or his heirs become the owner of the property by operation of law as soon as the condition is broken. If he has a right of re-entry for condition broken, he or his heirs become the owner of the property only after they act to retake the property. It is alleged, and we must accept, that classes were last held in the Hutton School in 1973. Harry Hutton, sole heir of the Granters, did not act to legally retake the premises but instead conveyed his interest in that land to the plaintiffs in 1977. If Harry Hutton had only a naked right of re-entry for condition broken, then he could not be the owner of that property until he had legally re-entered the land. That is, by filing an ejectment action or quiet title action against the school district. Since he took no steps for a legal re-entry, he had only a right of re-entry in 1977, and that right cannot be conveyed inter vivos. On the other hand, if Harry Hutton had a possibility of reverter in the property, then he owned the school property as soon as it ceased to be used for school purposes. Therefore, assuming, 1, that cessation of classes constitutes abandonment of school purposes on the land, 2, that the conveyance from Harry Hutton to the plaintiffs was legally correct, and, 3, that the conveyance was not preempted by Hutton's disclaimer in favor of the school district, the plaintiffs could have acquired an interest in the Hutton school grounds if Harry Hutton had inherited a possibility of reverter from his parents. The difference between a fee simple determinable, or, determinable fee, and a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent, is solely a matter of judicial interpretation of the words of a grant. T. He Huttons would have created a fee simple determinable if they had allowed the school district to retain the property so long as or while it was used for school purposes, or until it ceased to be so used. Similarly, a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent would have arisen had the Huttons given the land upon condition that or provided that it be used for school purposes. In the 1941 deed, though the Huttons gave the land to be used for school purposes only, otherwise to revert to granters herein, no words of temporal limitation, or terms of express condition, were used in the grant. The plaintiffs argue that the word only should be construed as a limitation rather than a condition. The defendants respond that where ambiguous language is used in a deed, the courts of Illinois have expressed a constructional preference for a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent. Stork v. Penn Mutual Life INS Co., 1954, 390 IL 619. Both sides refer us to cases involving deeds which contain language analogous to the 1941 grant in this case. We believe that a close analysis of the wording of the original grant shows that the grantors intended to create a fee simple determinable followed by a possibility of reverter. Here, the use of the word only immediately following the grant for school purpose Semeraro, Introduction to Property 54 Chapter 2, 
categorizing property demonstrates that the Huttons wanted to give the land to the school district only as long as it was needed and no longer. The language this land to be used for school purpose only is an example of a grant which contains a limitation within the granting clause. It suggests a limited grant, rather than a full grant subject to a condition, and thus, both theoretically and linguistically, gives rise to a fee simple determinable. The second relevant clause furnishes plaintiff's position with additional support. It cannot be argued that the phrase otherwise to revert to granters herein is inconsistent with a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent. Nor does the word revert automatically create a possibility of reverter. But, in combination with the preceding phrase, the provisions by which possession is returned to the grantors seem to trigger a mandatory return rather than a permissive return because it is not stated that the grantor may re-enter the land. The terms used in the 1941 deed, although imprecise, were designed to allow the property to be used for a single purpose, namely, for school purpose. The Huttons intended to have the land back if it were ever used otherwise. Upon a grant of exclusive use followed by an express provision for reverter when that use ceases, courts and commentators have agreed that a fee simple determinable, rather than a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent, is created. Our own research has uncovered cases from other jurisdictions and sources in which language very similar to that in the Hutton deed has been held to create a fee simple determinable. Thus, Authority from the state and others indicates that the grant in the Hutton deed did in fact create a fee simple determinable. We are not persuaded by the cases cited by the defendants for the terms of conveyance in those cases distinguish them from the facts presented here. The deed in Sherman v. Town of Jefferson stated, This conveyance is made, understood, and agreed by and between the parties hereto upon the express condition the premises conveyed shall be occupied, used and enjoyed for town purposes only, and upon ceasing to be so used and enjoyed by the said party of the second part, in whole or in any part thereof, the conveyance above becomes and remains absolutely void and of no longer force, effect, or obligation as against the said party of the first part, his heirs, and assigns. 274 ill 294, 295 this conveyance may be distinguished from the Hutton deed because the reversion clause in Sherman provided that the grant would, upon breach of condition, be void only against the grantor. This unusual language is merely another way to state that the grantee may retain possession until the grantor re-enters the property. The estate created in Latham v. Illinois Central Railroad Co., 1912, 253-93, was held to be a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent. Land was conveyed to a railroad in return for the railroad's agreement to erect and maintain a passenger depot and a freight depot on the premises. The deed was made to the grantee, their successors and assigns forever, for the uses and purposes hereinafter mentioned and for none other. Those purposes were limited to railroad purposes only. The deed provided that in case of non-user of said premises so conveyed for the uses and purposes aforesaid, that then and in that case the title to said premises shall revert back to, the grantors, their heirs, executors, administrators, and assigns. The property was granted to the railroad to have and hold forever, subject, nevertheless, to all the conditions, covenants, agreements, and limitations in this deed expressed. The estate in Latham may be distinguished from Semeraro, Introduction to Property 4. 
defeasible estates 55 that created here in that the former was a grant forever which was subjected to certain use restrictions while the Hutton deed gave the property to the school district only as long as it could use it. The defendants also direct our attention to the case of McIlvain v. Doris, 1921-298-377. There, land was sold subject to the following condition, this tract of land is to be used for mill purposes, and if not used for mill purposes the title reverts back to the former owner. When the mill was abandoned, the heirs of the grantor brought suit in ejectment and were successful. The Supreme Court of Illinois did not mention the possibility that the quoted words could have created a fee simple determinable but instead stated, annexed to the grant there was a condition subsequent, by a breach of which there would be a right of re-entry by the grantor or her heirs at law. A breach of the condition in such a case does not, of itself, determine the estate, but an entry, or some act equivalent thereto, is necessary to revest the estate, and bringing a suit in ejectment is equivalent to such re-entry. 298 ill at 379. It is urged by the defendants that McIlvain v. Doris stands for the proposition that the quoted language in the deed creates a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent. We must agree with the defendants that the grant in McIlvain is strikingly similar to that in this case. However, the opinion in McIlvain is ambiguous in several respects. First, that portion of the opinion which states that annexed to the grant there was a condition subsequent asterisk 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 may refer to the provision quoted above, or it may refer to another provision not reproduced in that opinion. Second, even if the court's reference is to the quoted language, the holding may reflect only the court's acceptance of the party's construction of the grant. A similar procedure was followed in Trustees of Schools v. Batdorf, as noted by defendants. After all, as an action in ejectment was brought in McIlvain, the difference between a fee simple determinable and a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent would have no practical effect and the court did not discuss it. To the extent that McIlvain holds that the quoted language establishes a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent, it is contrary to the weight of Illinois and American authority. A more appropriate case with which to resolve the problem presented here is North v. Graham, 1908-235-178. Land was conveyed to trustees of a church under a deed which stated that said tract of land above described to revert to the party of the first part whenever it ceases to be used or occupied for a meeting house or church. Following an extended discussion of determinable fees, the court concluded that such an estate is legal in Illinois and that the language of the deed did in fact create that estate. North v. Graham, like this case, falls somewhere between those cases in which appears the classic language used to create a fee simple determinable and that used to create a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent. The language used classically to create a fee simple determinable is so long as it is used for asterisk asterisk asterisk, as may be seen in many cases. The language used typically to create a fee simple subject to a condition subsequent is, variously, provided it be used for asterisk asterisk asterisk, O'Donnell v. Robson, 1909-239-634, that in case of breach of these covenants asterisk 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 said premises shall immediately revert asterisk asterisk asterisk, Stork v. Penn Mutual Life, 1945-239-634, and, 
if this agreement is broken, said land shall revert asterisk asterisk asterisk, Wakefield v. Van Tassel, 1903-200-41, in the event the grantee shall fail to perform asterisk 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 all the above requirements and conditions, all the lands asterisk 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 shall revert asterisk asterisk asterisk, Gray v. Chicago, Malou, and St. Paul R. W. Wyco. 1901-189-400. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 56 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property Although the word whenever is used in the North v. Gram deed, it is not found in a granting clause, but in a reverter clause. The court found this slightly unorthodox construction sufficient to create a fee simple determinable, and we believe that the word only placed in the granting clause of the Hutton deed brings this case under the rule of North v. Graham. We hold, therefore, that the 1941 deed from W.E. and Jenny Hutton to the trustees of School District No. 1 created a fee simple determinable in the trustees followed by a possibility of reverter in the Huttons and their heirs. Accordingly, the trial court erred in dismissing plaintiff's third amended complaint which followed its holding that the plaintiffs could not have acquired any interest in the Hutton school property from Harry Hutton. We must therefore reverse and remand this cause to the trial court for further proceedings. We refrain from deciding the following issues, 1, whether the 1977 conveyance from Harry Hutton was legally sufficient to pass his interest in the school property to the plaintiffs, 2, whether Harry Hutton effectively disclaimed his interest in the property in favor of the defendants by virtue of his 1977 disclaimer, and, 3, whether the defendants have ceased to use the Hutton School grounds for school purposes. Notes and Questions 1. Recall that the correct ways to draft a feasible estates with a future interest in the grantor are as follows, fee simple determinable O2A so long as the land is used for school purposes. Fee simple subject to condition subsequent O2A, but if the land is no longer used for school purposes. 2. Do you think that the court's decision was driven by language that the parties chose, other facts suggesting the intent of the parties, still other considerations, or some combination? Semeraro, Introduction to Property 4. Defeasible Estates 57 Problem Set Number 2, Defeasible Estates and the Future Interests Following Them Assume Owen, the owner of Blackacre in Fee Simple Absolute, conveyed the property using the following language, and for each conveyance, one identify and construe each present and future interest, one at a time, in the order given, as of the effective date of the deed or will. As to each interest, answer each of the following questions, a. Who has the interest? b. What is the interest called? c. What does it mean? Definition, d. How do you know that's what the interest is? To consider the effect of each subsequent event, in chronological order, on each interest. Repeat the step above, to the extent necessary without repetition, after each event. The effect of a subsequent event will be one of three possibilities, a. The interest stays the same, b. The interest disappears, or c. The interest becomes something else. An answer to the first question is provided as an example. Conveyances, one to Abel and his heirs as long as liquor is never sold on the premises. Abel holds the present possessor interest. It is a fee simple, 
which is the maximum interest one can hold in real estate with no termination point. Abel may thus control the property on his death. It is a fee simple because, 1, the phrase and his heirs indicated the intent to convey a fee simple, modern law, and automatically conveyed a fee simple, common law, and, 2, under modern law a grantor is presumed to convey the entire estate that she possessed here a fee simple absolute unless and to the extent the language of the grant explicitly limits the estate conveyed. Abel's fee simple is not absolute because of the condition as long as liquor is never sold on the premises. It is thus a defeasible fee simple. Because the grant uses temporal-slash-durational language in the granting clause, and the future interest is in the grantor, because there is no mention of a future interest holder and thus the grantor is assumed to hold the future interest, the present possessorate estate is a fee simple determinable. Owen, the grantor, holds the future interest, which is a possibility of reverter, which is the future interest accompanying a determinable estate. Subsequent event, if liquor is ever sold on the premises, Abel's estate is automatically forfeited and Owen would take ownership of a fee simple absolute estate. If Owen is dead, his heirs or the holder of the residual property interest under his will would take the FSA. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 58 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property Subsequent Event, If Abel transfers the interest in Blackacre through an intervivos transfer, no change. The new owner takes a fee simple determinable subject to the same condition. Subsequent event, if Abel dies without transferring the interest, he will control the distribution of Blackacre upon his death. He can transfer Blackacre through a will or, if he has no will, his heirs will inherit the property through intestate succession, but whoever inherits Blackacre will take a fee simple determinable subject to the same condition. If whoever inherits Blackacre allows liquor to be sold on the premises, that person, S, will forfeit the estate and the holder of the possibility of reverter, Owen or whoever inherited it from him, will take title automatically. Note that the and his heirs language does not guarantee that Abel's heirs will inherit Blackacre upon Abel's death. The and his heirs phrase is a term of art signifying that Abel has a fee simple that he may convey upon his death to anyone he chooses, or sell the property during his life through an intervivos transfer. 2. To Abel as long as he remains unmarried. 3. To Abel and his heirs as long as liquor is never sold on the premises, and if so, then to Bart and his heirs. 4. To Abel and his heirs, on the condition that liquor is never sold upon the premises or else I or my heirs may re-enter and terminate the estate. 5. To Abel for life, but if he moves to New York, then I may take my estate back. 6 to Abel for 10 years, provided that he oversees the ranch. 7 to Abel until I return from South America. 8 to Abel and his heirs, provided that Blackacre is kept intact and not subdivided. 9 to Abel for 1 year, renewable each year thereafter on the condition that the premises be used only as a residence and a cattle ranch. 10 to Abel and his heirs, it being understood that should the premises be used for commercial purposes other than the present ranching purposes then it comes back to me. Semeraro, Introduction to Property v. Remainders 59 v. Classifying Remainders Aside from the rule against perpetuities, the most challenging aspect of identifying and analyzing future interest arises from the combination of natural terminating present possessorate estates, such as life estates, 
and the divesting clauses that end estates prior to their natural termination. This combination has led to the creation of two separate types of remainders, the future interest that follows the natural termination of a present possessorate estate, one contingent remainder a remainder is contingent if, a it is placed in an unknown person, such as the to a for life, then to the children of b when b has no children at the time of the grant, or b a condition precedent must be satisfied before the remainderman may take possession, e.g. to a for life, then to a's child c. If c is then living. In both cases, the remainderman may never take possession and thus the remainder is called contingent. In the first example, if b never has a child, then the remainder in b's children will never become possessory. If b dies before a, the contingent remainder will terminate. Who holds the future interest? The grantor would have a reversion, the future interest following the natural termination of a life estate. Remember that the law presumes the future interest is in the grantor whenever the conveying deed does not specify the holder. In analyzing example, a, above, you must identify the two future interests as, 1, a contingent remainder in B's children, and, 2, a reversion in the grantor, even though the second future interest is not mentioned. In example, B, if C dies before A, then the remainder will never become possessory. The contingent remainder is destroyed if C dies before A. The grantor would again have a reversion, the future interest following the natural termination of a life estate. Again, when analyzing example, b, you must identify both c's contingent remainder and the grantor's reversion. Remember, when analyzing a conveyance with a contingent remainder, you must always take account of the possibility that the contingency will not be satisfied and identify who will take possession if that happens. In each of the above examples, no provision is made for the property in which A held a life estate if the contingency were not satisfied. Therefore, the law places the future interest of a reversion in the grantor. Watch for the classic trick question, a remainder in the heirs of a living person is a contingent remainder because the heirs of a living person are always unknown. Not until the decedent dies can the heirs be identified. Two vested remainder a remainder that does not fall into either of the categories establishing a contingent remainder. Technically, the holder of a vested remainder will definitely take possession, but as we will see, the period of possession may be infinitely short. Oh, the metaphysical possibilities of property categorization. There are three types of vested remainders, a indefeasibly vested remainder a remainder that is certain to pass to the remainder holder on the natural termination of the prior estate, and no contingency would cause the remainderman to lose that interest. For example, to A for life, then to B. Nothing can stop this interest from vesting. Even if B dies before A, B can pass the interest in his will or to his heirs through intestate succession and the holder of the remainder will definitely take possession upon A's death. B vested remainder subject to open or partial divestment a remainder that is part of a conveyance to a group, known as a class gift, that may increase in size. For example, O conveys black acre to A for life, then to B's children. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 60 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property If B has no children, the remainder is contingent. But if B has at least one child, the remainder is vested subject to open or partial divestment. 
the existing child will definitely receive a possessory interest on A's death. But, if B has more children, that interest must be shared with the others. If B has one child and then dies while A is still living, the class is said to close because B can have no more children after death. When the class closes, the remainder becomes indefeasibly vested. A critical question when dealing with a vested remainder subject to open is the point at which the class closes and the interest becomes an indefeasibly vested remainder in the existing members of the class. The law permits the class to close in two ways, one, naturally when it becomes impossible to add members to the class, then the class closes naturally, e.g., when the class consists of the children of A and A has died. Two, by convenience when one member of the class is entitled to take actual possession, then the class closes by convenience, e.g., O conveys black acre to A for life, then to B's children. If B has one child, C, when A dies, then C is entitled to take actual possession and the class closes by convenience. B may have more children, but they will not receive a share of Blackacre. C vested subject to complete divestment a remainder phrased using language like that used to create a subject to condition subsequent divesting condition. For example, O conveys Blackacre to A for life, then to B, provided that B is still working for the government, otherwise to C. Notice that this example does not create a contingent remainder because it does not state a condition precedent. Conveyances are read from left to right, and when read completely, B will definitely take possession on A's death. There is no condition precedent that must be satisfied before B takes possession. Instead, the example describes a condition subsequent that may require B to forfeit the interest after taking possession. What happens if B has already stopped working for the government before A dies? Nothing. B would technically retain a vested remainder subject to complete divestment. Upon A's death, the right to possess Blackacre would transfer to B for an infinitesimally short moment, and then immediately pass to C because B has violated the condition by stopping his work for the government. Note that an individual may hold a future interest that is both vested subject to open and subject to complete divestment. If a future interest satisfies one of the tests for a contingent remainder, However, it is only a contingent remainder even if it also looks like one of the types of vested remainders. Semeraro, Introduction to Property v. Remainders 61 Plan for Identifying and Analyzing Future Interests The key to keeping interests straight is to proceed systematically by asking three questions. One is the future interest in the grantor or someone other than the grantor. If the future interest is in the grantor, go to question 2. If the future interest is in someone other than the grantor, skip to question 3. 2. Does the future interest in the grantor divest a prior estate or does it follow the natural termination of the prior estate? If you can't remember the difference between divesting and natural terminating stop. Go back and review the material above. This distinction is critical. If the future interest in the grantor divests the prior estate, then it will be either a possibility of reverter, or be right of entry slash power of termination you decide between the two by reviewing the language of the conveyance. If you can't remember the difference, review the discussion of defeasible estates above. If the future interest in the grantor follows the natural termination of the prior estate, e.g., a life estate, then it will be a reversion. 
3. Does the future interest in someone other than the grantor divest the prior estate or follow the natural termination of the prior estate? If the future interest in someone other than the grantor divests the prior estate, then it is an executory interest. Determine whether it is shifting or springing, again, review the material above if you have forgotten this distinction. If the future interest in someone other than the grantor follows the natural termination of a prior estate, e.g., a life estate, then it will be a remainder, and you must determine the type of remainder, if the remainderman is an unknown person or there is a condition precedent to the remainderman receiving a possessory interest, then the remainder is contingent. Again, review above if you do not remember the definition of an unknown person or a condition precedent. If the remainder is not in an unknown person and there is no condition precedent, then the remainder is vested, and you must determine the type of vested remainder. There are three types of vested remainders, a. If the remainder is in an open class, such as the children of a living person, then the remainder is vested subject to open or partial divestment. b. If the remainder is subject to a condition subsequent that could cause the remainderman to lose the interest after it becomes possessory, then the interest is vested subject to complete divestment. Note, a remainder may be both vested subject to open and subject to complete divestment if it is both, i. in an open class, and, 2, could be lost after becoming possessor as a result of a condition subsequent, e.g., O to A for life, then to A's children, provided that A's children are living at A's death. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 62 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property C. If the remainder is not in an open class and is not subject to a condition subsequent, then it is an indefeasibly vested remainder. Alternate contingent remainders are created where the conveyance vests a future interest in alternative remaindermen depending upon whether the contingency is satisfied. For example, to A for life, and then to B if B has reached 21 at A's death, otherwise to C, if C has reached the age of 21 at A's death. But compare, to A for life, then to B, but if A has not reached 21 at A's death, then to C. In this example, B has a remainder subject to complete divestment and C has a shifting executory interest. Can you see why? Classifying remainders type linguistic structure effect contingent condition precedent in granting clause, no comma, holder may take possession only if condition has been satisfied indefeasibly vested no condition holder must take possession upon natural termination of prior estate vested subject to partial divestment, to open, holder is a class, like the children of a living person, holder, s, must take possession upon that may grow. Natural termination of prior estate conditions, but percentage share may change as precedent na, would be class grows a contingent remainder, may lose estate after taking possession if subsequent following conditions subsequent met or broken comma vested subject to complete divestment condition subsequent in a clause separate from the grant of the future interest, follows a comma, Holder, S, must take possession upon natural termination of prior estate holder may lose estate after taking possession, perhaps instantaneously, if condition subsequent met or broken semeraro, introduction to property v remainder 63 problem set number 3, future interests assume olive, the owner of Blackacre in fee simple absolute, conveyed the property using the following language, and for each conveyance, 
one identify and construe each present and future interest, one at a time, in the order given, as of the effective date of the deed or will. As to each interest, answer each of the following questions, a. Who has the interest? b. What is the interest called? c. What does it mean? Definition, d. How do you know that's what the interest is? To consider the effect of each subsequent event, in chronological order, on each interest. Repeat the step above, to the extent necessary without repetition, after each event. The effect of a subsequent event will be one of three possibilities, a. The interest stays the same, b. The interest disappears, or c. The interest becomes something else. An answer to the first question is provided as an example. Conveyances, one to Alicia for as long as Beth lives. Alicia holds the present possessorate estate, which is a life estate per Otravi because it is measured by Beth's life. Alicia's estate will terminate upon Beth's death. Olive retains the future interest because there must be a future interest to follow the natural termination of the life estate and the grantor is presumed to retain any future interest when the language of the grant does not specify otherwise. Olive's future interest is a reversion because it is, a, held by the grantor, and, b, follows the natural termination of a life estate rather than the satisfying or breaking of a condition. Subsequent event, if Alicia dies first, she may leave the life estate per Otrevi to whomever she chooses, and if she dies intestate, it will be inherited by her heirs. Whoever inherits the estate, however, will lose it when Beth dies. Subsequent event, when Beth dies, Olive, or whoever inherited her reversion, will automatically become the owner of Blackacre in fee simple absolute. 2 to Alicia so long as Blackacre remains a private residence. 3 to Alicia for life so long as she remains married. 4 to Alicia and her heirs provided Blackacre is used for a private residence. 5 to Alicia for life on the condition that she remains married. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 64 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property 6. To Alicia for 10 years if she maintains the ranch business. 7 to Alicia for life and then to Beth and her heirs. 8 to Alicia, but if Alicia divorces, then to Beth. 9 to Alicia for life, then to Beth so long as the ranch is maintained as a working ranch, then to Cammy. 10 to Alicia for life, then to Beth for life, then to Cammy and her heirs. 11 to Alicia for life, and then provided Beth is married, to Beth and her heirs. 12 to Alicia for life, then to Beth, but if Beth divorces, then to Cammy. 13 to Alicia for life, and if Beth is married then to Beth, but if Beth divorces, then to Cammy. 14 to Alicia for life, then to Beth if Beth is age 25, Beth is 15 years old at the time of the conveyance. 15 to Alicia for life, then to the heirs of Beth. Beth is alive at the time of the conveyance. 16 to Alicia for life, then to Beth's children. What if, a. Beth has no children at the time of the conveyance, or, b, Beth has one child, Zoe, at the time of the conveyance. 17 to Beth and her heirs, Beth's possession to begin five years from the date of this deed. 18 to Beth, but if Beth dies without issue living at her death, then to Cammy. 
19 to Beth and her heirs, but if and when Cammy marries Dale, then to Cammy. 20 to Beth when she marries Eldon. Semeraro, Introduction to Property v. Remainders 65 Estate and Future Interest Short Essay Questions 1. Oscar, an avid property rights advocate, executed and delivered to his son, Nutai, who shares Oscar's views, a deed that stated, I, Oscar, convey my estate, Peanutacre, to my son, Nutai, for as long as Peanutacre is used to support the purposes of the property rights movement, but if Peanutacre ever stops being so used, then I want Peanutacre to go to my daughter, Candy, even though she is a Democrat. Nutai accepted the deed, moved onto the property, and for the next five years continued enthusiastically running the grassroots property rights organization founded by Oscar. One day, the Sierra Club demonstrated outside the city council chambers, protesting an anticipated vote to sell a large part of the city-owned nature preserve to developers. Nutai organized his followers to show up at the same time to heckle the Sierra Club demonstrators. At the demonstration, Nutai encountered the president of the local chapter of the Sierra Club, and, inconveniently, fell hopelessly in love with her. Desperate to make a favorable impression on her, Nutai allowed her to use Peanutacre to hold Sierra Club meetings and strategy planning sessions. Identify and explain the interests created by the deed and the effect of later events. 2. In 1985, Justin owned real property known as Winteracre. Justin signed a will that stated as follows, I want Winteracre to go to my sister Stacy for life, then to my son Larry for life, then to be shared equally among whichever of my grandchildren, Teresa, Israel, Chad, and Kelly, are then living. Justin died in 1988. Larry died in 1990. Teresa died in 1991. Stacy died in 1994. Discuss the interests that were created under the will. What is the effect of that interest? Discuss the effect, s, of later events. 3. Jim conveyed mere acre by deed as follows, to Ruth for life, then to Leo if Leo has passed the bar, but if Leo has not passed the bar, to Vani. Oren conveyed pear acre by deed as follows, to Nell for life, then to Leo, but if Leo does not pass the bar, to Vani. Leo is a third-year law student at a well-known law school. Convinced that learning estates and future interests was a stupid waste of time, Leo rarely attended property I, and barely passed. When Leo sees these two deeds, he has no idea what they mean. Leo consults you. Explain all interests created under each of these deeds, the difference between them, and the consequences of the difference. For Maher owned a property called Salt Hill. Maher signed a deed that provided, I, Maher, give Salt Hill to Aaron for life, then to the children of Aaron who survive Aaron, but if Aaron dies without children surviving him, then I want Salt Hill to go to Bantry and his heirs. At the time of the deed, Aaron has three children, Cronin, Doolin, and Ennis. Two years later, Cronin dies. Shortly thereafter, Bantry dies. Then Doolin dies. Then Aaron dies. Explain who has what interests in Salt Hill from the date of the deed until after the death of Aaron. 5. Meath owned a property called Clifton. Meath signed a deed that provided, I, Meath, 
hereby convey Clifton to Avoca for her lifetime, then to Glen and her heirs, but if Glen does not thereafter marry Kildare, then Clifton should go to Derry and her heirs. At the time of the deed, Glen has never been married. One year later, Avoca dies. Then Derry dies. Then Kildare dies. Glen is still unmarried. Who has what interests in Clifton from the date of the deed until after the death of Kildare? Semeraro, Introduction to Property 66 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property 6 Brufni has obtained copies of the wills of both of his deceased grandfathers. Foyle was Brufni's maternal grandfather, and Galarus was Brufni's paternal grandfather. Foyle's will provides as follows, I, Foyle, leave my ancestral home, Mam Cross, to my daughter, Larn, for her life, then to Larn's children, Brufni and Dalkey, for their lives, then to the United Fund for Ireland. Galarus will provides as follows, I, Galarus, leave my property, Rathlin Island, to my son Ross, for his life, then to Ross' children for their lives, then to the Ireland Education Foundation. Larn and Ross are Brufni's parents, and Dalkey is Brufni's only sibling. Brufni would like to know what all this means, and he calls you. Analyze all the interests created under both wills, and explain the differences, if any, between the two wills. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 6 Control Devices 67-6 Devices to control the use of contingent future interests as the use of defeasible estates and future interests expanded, Lawmakers grew concerned that contingent future interests would limit the alienability of property and hence the value that property brought to society. Agreeing on the price at which property changes hands is often difficult. Adding vested future interest holders to the mix complicates the process significantly because the time at which a vested future interest holder will take possession is uncertain. Adding contingent interests makes the problem harder still because the parties do not know whether the contingent future interest will ever become possessory. Contingent future interests, however, are not all bad. Contingent future interests make transfers of property possible, which would not otherwise occur. For example, the grant to the school district in the Marhan Hall's case might never have happened if the grantors were not permitted to create a contingent future interest. Rather than eliminate contingent interests, the law has sought to find an appropriate balance between maintaining the free alienability of land and permitting property owners a degree of control over the future disposition of their estates. The common law, at various times, used a number of different devices, generally settling on the rule against perpetuities as the proper means to limit the creation of contingent interests. The earlier devices are largely irrelevant now, but they may persist in some jurisdictions, particularly with respect to old deeds, and many bar examiners find it hard to let them go. The rule against perpetuities continues to be used broadly, although a few jurisdictions have eliminated it entirely and most have modified it in some way. Nevertheless, the common law rule against perpetuities remains a live doctrine in many jurisdictions and another test of a law student's ability to handle the legal complexity that one will face in learning more advanced areas of the law. This section introduces the devices used to limit contingent interests. 
a the rule in Shelley's case and the doctrine of worthier title these two doctrines of very limited current applicability were created to reduce contingent future interests by redefining conveyances to eliminate future interests in the heirs of living persons. Remember that the heirs of a living person are always unknown, any future interest in the heirs of a living person is therefore contingent. The rule in Shelley's case provides that if one instrument creates a life estate in land in A and purports to create a contingent remainder in A's heirs, or the heirs of A's body, then the remainder is deemed to be an indefeasibly vested remainder in A with no future interest in A's heirs. So, O grants black acre to A for life, remainder to A's heirs becomes O grants black acre to A for life, remainder to A. Technically, the change in remainder from A's heirs to A alone is the only change made by the rule in Shelley's case. The merger doctrine, however, may operate to merge A's life estate and vested remainder, since both are now held by the same person, into a fee simple absolute. Notice how this rule renders land more alienable by eliminating interests in heirs who could not presently be identified. The doctrine of worthier title provides that if an inter vivos conveyance of a life estate places a contingent remainder in the heirs of the grantor, the remainder is deemed to be a reversion in the grantor. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 68 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property So, O grants black acre to A for life, remainder to O's heirs becomes O grants black acre to A for life. Recall that an unmentioned future interest is presumed to be retained by the grantor and since this future interest would follow the natural termination of the life estate, it would be a reversion in O. Again, notice how by eliminating the future interest in unknown heirs, the doctrine makes land easier to alienate. Both the rule in Shelley's case and the doctrine of worthier title are doctrines of immediate applicability rather than wait-and-see doctrines. That is, as soon as the grant becomes effective, these doctrines would kick in and change the substance of the grant. One does not wait for any event to happen before applying the rule. In this way, these doctrines resemble the common law rule against perpetuities, but they differ from the common law doctrine of the destructibility of contingent remainders and some modern statutory versions of the rule against perpetuities. We now turn to these doctrines be the destructibility of contingent remainders doctrine and the rule against perpetuities both of these doctrines sought to restrict a grantor's ability to create long-lasting contingent future interests in persons other than the grantor. To be sure, they permitted a grantor to retain a long-lasting future interest for herself and her estate. But these future interests in the grantor, reversion, possibility of reverter, and right of entry, were rationalized by labeling them vested, rather than contingent, even when a possibility, or perhaps even a likelihood, existed that the grantor would never retake possession. These doctrines thus drew a purely technical distinction between grantors and others, favoring grantors by allowing them to retain long-lasting contingent future interests. 1. The destructibility of contingent remainders The doctrine of the destructibility of contingent remainders provided that a remainder in land would be destroyed if it did not vest at or before the preceding present possessorate estate terminated. This doctrine did not apply to executory interests. For example, consider the following grant, O conveys black acre to A for life, then to B if B has reached 21 years of age. B's remainder is subject to a condition precedent and is thus contingent. Under the destructibility of contingent remainders doctrine, 
if B did not reach 21 before A died, the contingent remainder would be destroyed, and O's reversion would become a present possessorate estate, a fee simple absolute. This doctrine is thus described as a wait and see doctrine. To determine whether it applies, one must wait and see what happens when the present possessorate interest terminates. Contingent remainders were also destroyed under the doctrine if the life estate ended while the contingency still existed, even if the life estate holder was still alive. This could happen in two ways, one waste a life estate may be forfeited through waste. Two merger under the merger doctrine, a life estate is terminated if it is combined with the next vested interest. In the example above, the next vested interest after A's life estate is said to be O's reversion. Remember that whenever a single contingent remainder follows a life estate, the grantor is said to hold a reversion. And even though the grantor's reversion is literally contingent in that it may never become possessorate if the contingent remainder's condition is satisfied, the law treats all future interests in the grantor as vested. So, if A in the example above, sold the life estate to O, or A purchased O's reversion, then the life estate and the next vested estate would be joined, ending the life semeraro, introduction to property 6. Control devices 69 estate and terminating the contingent remainder. The owner of the interest would have a fee simple absolute. In most, perhaps all, jurisdictions, this doctrine has been abolished in substantial part. Under modern law, in the example above, if A died before B reached 21, O's reversion would become a fee simple subject to executory limitation. B would hold a springing executory interest that would divest O when B turned 21. The only aspect of the rule of the destructibility of contingent remainders that holds continuing viability is the merger doctrine that destroys contingent remainders when a life estate and the next vested interest come to be owned by the same person. 2. The rule against perpetuities A. Defining the RAP The rule against perpetuities has largely replaced the doctrines described in A and B.1, above as a means to limit contingent future interests and options to purchase property by adopting a single rule that applied to a particular set of contingent future interests, namely contingent remainders, vested remainders subject to open, even though its name seems to indicate otherwise, and executory interests. The rule against perpetuities, RAP, does not apply to any other type of future interest. Note that all future interests in grantors are treated as vested and thus not subject to RAP. The rule lives up to its reputation as one of the most confusing rules encountered during the first year of law school, if not in all of the law. One court even suggested that the rule was so difficult that a lawyer could not be held liable for malpractice for incorrectly applying it. We will begin with the common law version of RAP and then briefly discuss some modern statutory variants. To a large extent, the challenges posed by the RAP arise from the failure to understand how it operates. Like the rule in Shelley's case and the doctrine of worthier title, but unlike the destructibility of contingent remainders doctrine, common law RAP is a rule of immediate applicability. In applying it, one does not wait to see if some event happens. Rather, if the rule against perpetuities applies, it works to change a conveyance at the moment the conveyance goes into effect. So, just as Shelley's case immediately changes a remainder in the heirs of A into a remainder in A, the rule against perpetuities, if it applies, 
immediately changes the conveyance by deleting the contingent interest that offends the rule. Of course, a court may be resolving a dispute about the conveyance years after it went into effect. But, if an interest violates RAP, the contingent interest is treated as if it never existed at all. In addition, the rule against perpetuities is a rule that looks to logical possibilities not the reality of the real world. For example, under RAP analysis, any living person from one day old to 100 years old or more is treated as capable of having a child. When it comes to applying the RAP, leave your understanding of the real world behind and simply follow the logic trail. With that introduction, it is time to state the rule as it was famously articulated by John C. Gray, no interest is good unless it must vest, if at all, not later than 21 years after some life in being at the creation of the interest. John C. Gray, The Rule Against Perpetuities 201, 4th at 1942. Let's break it down, no interest is good if one of the future interests deemed to be contingent, executor interests, contingent remainders, and vested remainders subject to open, violates the rule, that interest is void and must be deleted from the grant-slash-deed conveying the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 70 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property Interest. The grant must be reinterpreted as if the interest that violated RAP was never there at all. Unless it must vest, if at all a future interest violates RAP if there is any logical possibility that it will, 1, remain contingent after the defined period in the rule, and, 2, then subsequently vest, i.e., become possessory. Importantly, the RAP does not eliminate interests that remain contingent after a set time period goes by, the RAP eliminates an interest as of the moment the conveyance goes into effect if there is any possibility that it will remain contingent after the time period set by the rule, and then vest later. Not later than 21 years after some life in being at the creation of the interest the time period established by the rule, i.e., the lifespan of everyone who was alive on the day of the conveyance plus 21 years. Many students first encountering the rule believe that this time period is too unwieldy to permit analysis. After all, how could one ever know the lifespan of everyone alive at the time of the conveyance? There are billions of people in the world, and we have no way of knowing at the time of the conveyance how long any one of them, much less all of them, will live. The key to understanding the rule, once again, is to accept that it is a logical proof not an empirical inquiry about the facts of the real world. The RAP asks if there is any possibility under the established rules of logic whether an interest could vest after the RAP deadline. Since the rule is one of logic and not realities, you can solve the rule's logical puzzle by making extreme assumptions that would never happen in the real world. For example, in many situations you can simply assume that everyone alive at the time of the conveyance dies the next day, starting the 21-year clock running. That assumption makes the time period as short as possible and thus reveals the most likely logical possibility that a contingent interest will vest too late and violate the RAP. Of course this would never happen, but the RAP doesn't care about what might really happen. Logically, the shortest period triggering the RAP rule is 21 years after the conveyance because it is logically possible that everyone alive at the time of the conveyance could die the moment after the grant becomes effective. Don't try to figure out how that would work in the real world. The RAP doesn't care about the real world. Have you gotten that yet?
so, for the following simple conveyance, O conveys black acre to A for life, then to B if B lives to be 25, B is currently one year old. We would reason as follows, 1B holds a contingent remainder and wrap applies to contingent remainders. 2 To apply wrap, adopt the extreme assumption that everyone alive at the moment O made this conveyance dies the next day. 3 Now consider whether the interest in B could vest more than 21 years after the moment when every who was alive at the time of the conveyance is assumed to die. 4 The answer is no, because B was alive at the time of the conveyance and thus was assumed to die without ever reaching 25 along with all the others alive at the time of the conveyance. The interest would never vest and thus would not vest too late under the wrap. But, you might say, B did not die in the real world. Perhaps B is even the plaintiff in the lawsuit that led the court to apply the wrap to this conveyance. That does not matter. The wrap does not care about the real world, only logical possibilities. Now, consider a slightly more complicated conveyance, O conveys black acre to A for life, then to A's oldest child when S he reaches 25, A has no children at the time of the conveyance. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 6 Control Devices 711. A's oldest child holds a contingent remainder, so wrap must be applied to that interest. 2. Now, we must consider the possibility that A has a child before adopting the extreme assumption that everyone alive at the moment of this conveyance dies. So, the extreme assumption becomes, everyone alive at the time of the conveyance dies shortly after A has a child, let's call her B3. Now consider whether the interest in B could vest more than 21 years after everyone alive at the time of the conveyance has, we assume for the logical proof, died. For the answer is yes. B must live to reach 25 in order for the interest to vest. Based on the extreme assumption everyone alive at the moment of the conveyance dies shortly after B is born B would survive because B was not born at the time of the conveyance. RAP permits an additional 21 years after everyone alive at the time of the conveyance dies for the interest to vest. In this example, the interest might not vest within 21 years. If everyone alive at the moment of the conveyance died shortly after B was born, B would only be 21 years old when the RAP period expired. She would have to live an additional 4 years for the interest to vest. Since the interest in B might vest more than 21 years after the death of everyone alive at the time of the conveyance, the contingent remainder in A's oldest child violates RAP and it must be deleted from the conveyance. So, we would be left with the following, O conveys black acre to A for life with a presumed reversion in O. Again, a logical, but thoughtful, person might question this result. Yes, it is true, the logical person would recognize, B's interest might vest too late. But the thoughtful person would interject, B's interest didn't vest too late. B turned 25, vesting the interest, before A died. Why can't we just leave well enough alone? The answer is that the rap is not thoughtful. It mercilessly destroys any interest deemed contingent, executory interests, contingent remainders, and vested remainders subject to open, that might possibly vest too late. What really happened and what is extremely likely to happen are completely irrelevant to common law rap. Once again, 
it is a rule of immediate applicability that cares only about whether it is logically possible for an interest to violate RAP at the moment the grant becomes effective. B. Three-step RAP analysis The rule against perpetuities can usually be resolved by answering just four relatively simple questions that seek to show whether there is any possibility that the RAP will be violated. Working from left to right for each future interest, ask the following, 1. Is the future interest subject to RAP? RAP applies only to executory interests, contingent remainders, and vested remainders subject to open. If any other future interest is at issue, then RAP is not violated, and you should move directly to the next future interest. 2. Is it possible for the future interest to vest in a person conceived and born after the moment of conveyance or in an artificial entity, such as a corporation or charity? If not, if the interest can only vest in someone alive at the moment of conveyance, then the RAP is not violated, and you should move directly to the next future interest. Why ask this question? Because if a contingent interest must vest in someone who is alive at the time of the conveyance, then it cannot possibly vest more than 21 years after all lives in being at the time of the conveyance have ended. By definition, anyone alive at the time of the conveyance must die before one starts counting the 21 years. So, for example, contingent future interests such as B if he outlives A or C if she marries Q must vest in a person alive at the time of the conveyance. If A dies first, it vests in B. If B dies first, it will never vest. Similarly, if C marries Q, the interest vests before the RAP period. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 72 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property If C or Q dies before they marry, the interest will never vest. In both examples, the interest cannot violate the RAP because it will definitively vest, or never vest, within the lifetime of someone who is alive at the time of the conveyance. Be careful, however, because future interests are generally inheritable. Unlike the examples above, many conveyances include conditions that could lead to vesting after the holder of the future interest dies. For example, O conveys Blackacre to A for life, then to B, provided that Blackacre continues to be used for school purposes, otherwise to C. In this conveyance, the future interest could vest in someone who was not a life in being at the time of the conveyance. This might happen because C might have a child shortly after the conveyance. C and everyone else alive at the time of the conveyance might then die, but C's child born after the conveyance remains alive and holds the future interest. The property might continue to be used for school purposes for more than 21 years after everyone alive at the time of the conveyance has died but at some later point stop being used for school purposes. C's interest would then vest at this time, more than 21 years after the death of everyone alive at the time of the conveyance. The wrap is thus violated and the conveyance would read, O conveys black acre to A for life, then to B, C4.B.2.C, 1, below for an explanation as to why the entire condition is deleted when the executory interest in C in this example violates the wrap. Note that the moment of conveyance is the time when the interest is legally transferred from the grantor to other parties. For inter vivos transfers, while the grantor is alive, this happens when the closing documents are signed. For testamentary transfers, i.e. by will, this happens when the grantor dies. 
This second question asks about a person conceived and born after the moment of conveyance because Rapp treats a baby that is born alive as having been alive since conception. In general, then, a baby born within nine months of a conveyance will be treated as a life in being at the time of the conveyance. If the interest might vest in someone not alive at the time of the conveyance, or in an artificial entity, then the interest could vest after the RAP period and thus violate the RAP. 2a If the future interest may vest in a person conceived and born after the moment of conveyance, assume that everyone alive at the time of the conveyance dies a few moments after the birth of the first person born after the conveyance who may affect the vesting of the interest. Usually, this will be the person in whom the interest might vest. But sometimes, the recipient of the interest may be someone born even later, e.g. a future interest in the grandchildren of a grantor who is alive. You must assume everyone alive at the time of the conveyance dies just after the birth of a child of the grantor conceived and born after the moment of conveyance, even though the future interest is in the grandchild of the grantor. 2b If the future interest may vest in an artificial entity, assume that everyone alive at the moment of conveyance dies just after the moment of conveyance. 3. After making the assumption that everyone alive at the time of the conveyance dies, count forward 21 years. At this point, if the interest either, I, has vested or, 2, can never vest, then RAP is not violated. But, if the future interest has not yet vested 21 years after you assume everyone alive at the time of the conveyance has died, and still could if some contingency happens, then RAP is violated. This approach tries to identify any possible violation of the RAP. If this approach to analyzing the rule against perpetuity seems unhelpful to you, don't fret. There are probably as many approaches to teaching RAP as there are property professors willing to try. Check out Professor Maureen Marquis' exploration of the various methods and let us know if you find one that works better for you. Maureen E. Marquis, Ariadne's Thread, Semeraro Introduction to Property 6 Control Devices 73 Leading Students Into and Out of the Labyrinth of the Rule Against Perpetuities, 54 Clev. STL Rev 337, 2006 See the tricks of the rap trade rap lore has grown because of the rather bizarre outcomes produced by its rigorously logical, but wholly unrealistic, approach. 1. The Body Heat Mistake Known for Centuries but made famous by the 1981 movie Body Heat, the rules for deleting executory interests that violate rap can lead to unintended results. Not surprisingly, the movie makers may not have gotten it quite right. If an executory interest violates the rap and is created using determinable language, then the executory interest is eliminated, but the defeasing clause remains and a possibility of reverter is created in the grantor. For example, Consider the following conveyance, O conveys black acre to A for so long as black acre is used for school purposes, otherwise to B logically, it is possible that B's executory interest could vest after the RAP period, try figuring out why the RAP is violated, and thus the RAP requires that the interest be deleted. So, the resulting interest is O conveys black acre to A for so long as black acre is used for school purposes with a presumed possibility of reverter in O. The result changes, however, if subject to condition subsequent language is used to create the executory interest, O conveys black acre to A, 
but if Blackacre stops being used for school purposes, then to be again, the executory interest in B violates the wrap. Can you figure out why? Deleting the future interest yields the following conveyance, O conveys Blackacre to A. Notice that A now has a fee simple absolute. 2. The fertile octogenarian as a rule of logic, the rap assumes that anyone can have a child, no matter how young or old. Don't be fooled by conveyances involving very old granters. You must still consider the possibility that the granter may have a child after the conveyance, if they are still alive. 3. The unborn widow because many conveyances refer to the grantor's widow, you must remember to consider the possibility that the grantor, no matter how old, might marry someone not born at the time of the conveyance, who would thus later become the grantor's widow. 4. The magic gravel pit under the wraps perhaps warp logical world, any physical activity can potentially take an infinite length of time. So, a gravel pit is presumed to be able to produce gravel forever, oil wells never run dry, wars never end, you never finish reading the mail, etc. Thus, divesting clauses violate rap if they turn on the happening of an event that could result in vesting more than 21 years after the death of all lives in being at the time of the conveyance even if the clause refers to something that, in the real world, would take a very short time. An afternoon nap, in the world of rap, can last for more than 21 years. Rip Van Winkle lives in the world of rap. 5. The savings clause the drafter of a conveyance can ensure that it does not violate RAP by including a clause stating that a contingent interest will be deleted if it has not vested within 21 years of the death of a named person or persons alive at the time of the conveyance. For example, the conveyance, O conveys Blackacre to A for so long as Blackacre is used for school purposes, otherwise to B if the property stops being used for school purposes within 21 years of the death of share. The reference to share saves the clause from violating RAP because it constitutes a saving clause that requires the interest to vest within 21 years of someone alive, share, at Semeraro, Introduction to Property 74 Chapter 2, categorizing property the time of the conveyance, and thus prohibits it from vesting too late, because it must vest, or it never will, within 21 years of share's death. In actual legal practice, Attorneys try to extend the reach of the conveyance as far as possible by selecting measuring lives such as all babies born in New York City on the day of the conveyance. Why share, you ask? Well share has joked that, someone once said, the only thing that's gonna be left after a nuclear holocaust is share and cockroaches. I kind of think that's funny, cause, you know, I am a survivor. If I am anything, that's what I am. She therefore seems like a pretty good choice. D. Efforts to reform RAP Perhaps because of its bizarre logical structure, many states have sought to reform the rule against perpetuities in different ways. This widespread reform movement has led many to suggest that learning the common rule is no longer necessary. This assumption is wrong. Only a small minority of the states Alaska, Idaho, Louisiana, New Jersey, Rhode Island, South Dakota, and Wisconsin have eliminated the RAP altogether. Although only Alabama and Arkansas have left it entirely unchanged, many states have adopted reforms that continue to look to the common law rule. Some states follow the Cypress Doctrine, 
which permits courts to reform a future interest that violates the RAP in a way that best conforms to the intent of the parties. To varying degrees, Kentucky, Illinois, Mississippi, Missouri, New York, Oklahoma, and Texas have followed this approach. Notice that one must apply the common law rule to determine whether reformation is necessary. Other states follow the wait-and-see approach. Under this reform, a court must apply the common law rule against perpetuities. If the future interest is valid under the rule, then the interest is valid. If the interest would violate RAP, then the parties must wait and see whether the interest in fact vests before the RAP period runs. If the interest vests before 21 years after the death of all lives in being at the moment of the conveyance, then it is valid. Today, the most commonly used reform is the Uniform Statutory Rule Against Perpetuities, USRAP, which operates like the wait-and-see approach but with two significant differences. First, rather than wait for the common law period, which is virtually impossible to determine, USRAP sets a 90-year waiting period. Any interest violating common law RAP is valid so long as it actually vests or terminates within 90 years of the conveyance. Second, if an interest has yet to vest after 90 years, but still could, the court reforms it to effectuate the intent of the parties while vesting within 90 years. At least 24 states now follow this approach. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 6 Control Devices 75 Problem Set Number 4 Rules Limiting Contingent Interests and Rapassume Ollie, the owner of Blackacre in Fee Simple Absolute, conveyed the property using the following language, and for each conveyance, one identify and construe each present and future interest, one at a time, in the order given, as of the effective date of the deed or will. As to each interest, answer each of the following questions, a. Who has the interest? b. What is the interest called? c. What does it mean? Definition, d. How do you know that's what the interest is? To then identify each interest that is subject to a special rule, apply the special rule, and recharacterize the interest if necessary. 3. Next, apply the rule against perpetuities. Assume everyone is alive unless otherwise stated. Identify the interest that is subject to RAP, decide if it is valid or void, and explain per RAP analysis. 4. Consider the effect of each subsequent event, in chronological order, on each interest. Repeat the step above, to the extent necessary without repetition, after each event. The effect of a subsequent event will be one of three possibilities, a. The interest stays the same, b. The interest disappears, or c. The interest becomes something else. An answer to the first question is provided as an example. Conveyances, one to Ben for life, then to Cass and her heirs. Ben then conveys his life estate to Cass. Ben has a life estate. Cass has an indefeasibly vested remainder in fee simple absolute. It is a remainder because it follows the natural termination of Ben's life estate. It is not contingent because it is in an identifiable person, Cass, and there is no condition precedent. It is therefore vested, and it is indefeasible because there is no condition subsequent. No special rule applies. The destructibility of contingent remainder rules will not come into play because the remainder is not contingent. Even if Cass dies before Ben, Cass may leave the remainder to her heirs, 
or anyone else in a will, who will take possession of Blackacre when Ben dies. RAP does not apply to indefeasibly vested remainders and thus can be resolved at step 1 of the RAP test. When Ben conveys his life estate to Cass, the present possessor of estate and the next vested interest will be owned by the same person. As a result, the merger rule will combine those estates into a fee simple absolute in Cass. 2 to Ben for life. A. Ollie then conveys his interest to Ben, or, B. Ben then conveys his interest to Ollie. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 76 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property 3. To Ben for life, then to Cass for life if Cass is married. Before Cass marries, Ollie transfers his interest to Ben. 4 to Ben for life, then to the first child of Adam to reach 21. 5 to Ben for life, then to the first child of Adam to reach 25. 6 to Ben for life, then to the first child of Adam to marry. What is the result if, at the time of the conveyance, a. Adam has a married child, b. Adam is alive, or, c. Adam is dead. 7 to Ben for life, then to such of the lineal descendants of Adam who shall reach the age of 30 within 21 years of the death of the survivor of Carrie, Devon, and Fiona. 8 to Ben for life, then to the first of Adam's lineal descendants to shake hands with Dan Quayle. 9 by deed, to Ben for life, then to the first of my grandchildren to reach the age of 21. 10 by will, to Ben for life, then to the first of my grandchildren to reach the age of 21. 11 to Adam after my will is probated. 12 to Adam for life, then to Ben if Ben passes the bar, but if not, to carry. 13 to Adam for life, then to Adam's widow for life, then to Ben. 14 to the first student in this property class to be appointed Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court or to the first graduate of this law school to be appointed Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. 15 by device, to my trustees to wind up my daily business, sell the assets, and divide the proceeds among my issue then living. 16 by device during World War II, to my relatives in Germany who survived the war. 17 by device, to my descendants living 21 years after my death. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 6. Control Devices 7718. By device, to my descendants living 22 years after my death. 19 to Adam so long as the property is used for church purposes, then to Ben. 20 to Adam, but if the property ceases to be used for church purposes, to Ben. 21 by device, to Adam for life, then to Adam's children, but if none of Adam's children reach 25, to Ben. 22 to my sister Jean for life, and then to Jean's children unless Jean's children fail to sire children of their own, then to my widow's children. 23 to my sister Jean for life, and then to Jean's children unless Jean's children fail to sire children of their own within 21 years of the death of Cher, then to my widow's children. 24 Corporation sells a theater to Symphony, subject to an option to repurchase that remains in effect for a period of 24 years after the date of delivery of the deed. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 78 Chapter 2 Categorizing property review estates and future interests multiple choice questions O conveys Blackacre to A for life, then to B and her heirs, 
but if a divorces, then at the time of the divorce to see. 1. What interest and estate does B have at the time of the conveyance? A. Executory interest in fee simple B. Contingent remainder in fee simple subject to an executory limitation C. Vested remainder in fee simple subject to complete divestment D. Vested remainder in fee simple subject to open. 2. What interest and estate does C have at the time of the conveyance? A. Executory interest in fee simple B. Contingent remainder in fee simple subject to an executory limitation C. Vested remainder in fee simple subject to complete divestment D. Vested remainder in fee simple subject to open. 3. At the time of A's death, B's interest and estate would be A. Possessor of fee simple subject to an executory limitation B. Possessor of fee simple subject to a condition subsequent C. Nothing if A had gotten divorced otherwise a possessor of fee simple absolute. D. Nothing, unless C predeceased A4. Assume that while A is still alive, C dies leaving all of her property to D. One month later, A divorces. What is the state of the title? A possessor a life estate in A, indefeasibly vested remainder in fee simple in B. B. Fee simple absolute in D. C. Possessor a life estate in A, Reversion in O.D. Fee simple subject to condition precedent in D.O. Conveys Greenacre to John and his heirs until Abby graduates from law school, then to David and his heirs. 5. What interest and estate does John have at the time of the conveyance? A. Possessor of fee simple subject to a condition subsequent. B. Possessor of leasehold C. Possessor of fee simple determinable D. Possessor of fee simple subject to an executory limitation 6. What interest and estate does David have at the time of the conveyance? A. Springing executory interest. B. Contingent remainder C. Indefeasibly vested remainder D. Shifting executory interest. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 6. Control Devices 79-7. What interests and estates do David's heirs have at the time of the conveyance? A. Springing executory interest, because they will divest the grantor. B. Contingent remainder, because the interest is subject to the condition that the VID die without a will. C. Indefeasibly vested remainder, because David is obligated to leave his interest to them. D. Nothing, because the terms and the heirs of his body is required to create a fee tail, the possessorate estate that compels its holder to leave it to his heirs. O. Conveys purple acre to A for life, then to B for life, then to C's children who survive A. At the time of the conveyance, A, B, and C are alive and C has one child, X. 8. What interest and estate does B have at the time of the conveyance? A. Vested remainder in a life estate. B. Shifting executory interest in a life estate. C. Contingent remainder in a life estate. D. Shifting executory interest in life estate subject to complete divestment. 9. What interest and estate does X have at the time of the conveyance? A. Vested remainder subject to complete divestment. B. Contingent remainder in fee simple. C. Vested remainder subject to open. D. Both A and C. 10. What interest and estate does O have? A. Nothing, because O has given away his entire estate. B. Possibility of reverter in fee simple. C. Reversion in fee simple. D. Contingent remainder in fee simple. 11. Assume that A dies and that B, C, and X are still alive. What interest and estate does X have? A. Nothing, 
if the destructibility of contingent remainders rule applies. b. Indefeasibly vested remainder in fee simple. c. Vested remainder subject to open in fee simple. d. Shifting executory interest in fee simple. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 80 Chapter 2, Categorizing Property Semeraro, Introduction to Property and Introduction to Property Law in the U.S. Copyright 2018 Stephen Semeraro Version 2.0 Please note, generally, omissions of substance are indicated with an ellipsis, but omissions of citations or footnotes are not. For more detailed information, please see the book's front matter. Chapter 3 Concurrent Property Interests Chapter 2 focused on the ways in which the law temporally divides property interests. This chapter focuses on how the law divides property among two or more concurrent owners. The issues in this area of the law neatly break into groups of three. First, there are three types of concurrent ownership arrangements, joint tenants, tenants in common, and tenants by the entirety. Second, there are three actions that concurrent owners use to resolve disputes among them, accounting actions, to recover income generated by the property, partition actions, to end the concurrent ownership by dividing the property between the owners, and actions seeking damages, when one owner has prohibited another from enjoying the benefits of his ownership interest, i.e., has ousted a CO owner. Third, there are three types of costs that a CO owner may incur, recurring costs, such as mortgage payments, taxes and homeowners association fees, necessary repairs, and improvements. Likewise, there are three different rules governing whether the co-owner who pays the cost can demand payment from other CO owners. The following sections address these issues. I types of concurrent ownership in a 2002 opinion for the court Justice O'Connor provided one of the most succinct descriptions of CO ownership interests in the literature. United States v. Kraft 535 U.S. 274, 2002, O'Connor, Justice. English common law provided three legal structures for the concurrent ownership of property that have survived into modern times, tenancy in common, joint tenancy, and tenancy by the entirety. The tenancy in common is now the most common form of concurrent ownership. The common law characterized tenants in common as each owning a separate fractional share in undivided property. Tenants in common may each unilaterally alienate their shares through sale or gift or place encumbrances upon these shares. They also have the power to pass these shares to their heirs upon death. Tenants in common have many other rights in the property, including the right to use the property, to exclude third parties from it, and to receive a portion of any Justice Sandra Day O'Connor income produced from it. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 82 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests Joint Tenancies were the predominant form of concurrent ownership at common law, and still persist in some states today. The common law characterized each joint tenant as possessing the entire estate, rather than a fractional share, Jointment tenants have one and the same interest held by one and the same undivided possession. 2. W. Blackstone, Commentaries on the Laws of England 180, 1766. Joint tenants possess many of the rights enjoyed by tenants in common, the right to use, to exclude, and to enjoy a share of the property's income. 
The main difference between a joint tenancy and a tenancy in common is that a joint tenant also has a right of automatic inheritance known as survivorship. One upon the death of one joint tenant, that tenant's share in the property does not pass through will or the rules of intestate succession, rather, the remaining tenant or tenants automatically inherit it. Joint tenants' right to alienate their individual shares is also somewhat different. In order for one tenant to alienate his or her individual interest in the tenancy, the estate must first be severed that is, converted to a tenancy in common with each tenant possessing an equal fractional share. Most states allowing joint tenancies facilitate alienation, however, by allowing severance to automatically accompany a conveyance of that interest or any other overt act indicating an intent to sever. A tenancy by the entirety is a unique sort of concurrent ownership that can only exist between married persons. Because of the common law fiction that the husband and wife were one person at law, that person, practically speaking, was the husband, Blackstone did not characterize the tenancy by the entirety as a form of concurrent ownership at all. Instead, he thought that entirety's property was a form of single ownership by the marital unity. Neither spouse was considered to own any individual interest in the estate, rather, it belonged to the couple. Like joint tenants, tenants by the entirety enjoy the right of survivorship. Also like a joint tenancy, unilateral alienation of a spouse's interest in entirety's property is typically not possible without severance. Unlike joint tenancies, however, tenancies by the entirety cannot easily be severed unilaterally. Typically, Severance requires the consent of both spouses or the ending of the marriage in divorce. At common law, all of the other rights associated with the entirety's property belonged to the husband, as the head of the household, he could control the use of the property and the exclusion of others from it and enjoy all of the income produced from it. The husband's control of the property was so extensive that, despite the rules on alienation, the common law eventually provided that he could unilaterally alienate entirety's property without severance subject only to the wife's survivorship interest. With the passage of the Married Women's Property Acts in the late 19th century granting women distinct rights with respect to marital property, most states either abolished the tenancy by the entirety or altered it significantly. Michigan's version of the estate is typical of the modern tenancy by the entirety. Following Blackstone, Michigan characterizes its tenancy by the entirety as creating no individual rights whatsoever, it is well settled under the law of the state that one tenant by the entirety has no interest separable from that of the other. Each is vested with an entire title. Long v. Earl, 277 Michigan 505, 1936. And yet, in Michigan, each tenant by the entirety possesses the right of survivorship. Each spouse the wife as well as the husband may also use the property, exclude third parties from it, and receive an equal share of the income produced by it. Neither one ed note, Justice O'Connor's phrase automatic inheritance is a misnomer, in the sense that a joint tenancy interest does not pass from one joint tenant to another at death. Rather, the original conveyance creating the joint tenancy provides that when a joint tenant dies the interest simply ceases to exist. The other joint tenant S.S. interest S. thus increase accordingly. See Harms v. Sprague, 105 Il 2D 215, 1984, Infra C.2. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2.
Distinguishing interests 83 spouse may unilaterally alienate or encumber the property, although this may be accomplished with mutual consent. Divorce ends the tenancy by the entirety, generally giving each spouse an equal interest in the property as a tenant in common, unless the divorce decree specifies otherwise. 2. Distinguishing CO ownership interests The common law classified any CO ownership arrangement as requiring unity of possession, i.e., the CO owners all had the equal right to use and enjoy the entire property subject to the rights of the others. A joint tenancy was created when the arrangement satisfied four unities, one unity of time all interests created at the same time, two unity of title all interests created in the same instrument, three unity of interest all shares are equal, and four unity of possession all CO owners have an equal and undivided right to use the entire property. Any CO ownership arrangement that did not have all four unities was a tenancy in common. A joint tenancy in which the parties were married could also be classified as a tenancy by the entirety. At common law, the sale of a joint tenancy interest severed the joint tenancy because the new owner would not have unity of time and title with the original owner, s. The joint tenancy then became a tenancy in common between the new owner and the original CO owners. Assuming that two or more original owners remain, however, they would retain their status as joint tenants with right of survivorship with respect to each other. Modern law generally allows a joint tenant to sever the joint tenancy and convert the tenancy into a tenancy in common without selling the interest. Riddle v. Harmon, 162 calories RPTR 530, 534, 1980, explaining the historical evolution of CO ownership law. Some jurisdictions do not even require notice to the other joint tenants to convert the tenancy to a tenancy in common. See in Renickerbacher, 912p.2d969, Utah 1996, citing cases addressing severance of a joint tenancy without sale. Jurisdictions now differ widely on how they determine which type of CO ownership interest has been created. Some jurisdictions now follow the intent of the parties in determining the type of CO ownership arrangement. Others still require the four unities to create a joint tenancy, and some require the deed to specify that the CO owners are joint tenants with right of survivorship in order to establish a joint tenancy. In all jurisdictions, the law now presumes tenancy in common where the language is vague or ambiguous. As Justice O'Connor indicates, many jurisdictions, including California, no longer recognize the tenancy by the entirety. Point one: The unity of possession is common to all types of CO ownership and requires special attention. This unity provides that each CO owner has full rights to use all of the property all of the time subject to the rights of the other CO owners. This means that CO owners are required to cooperate with each other in determining how to divide use of the property. One some jurisdictions, including California, recognize a modern form of CO ownership between married couples that is known as community property. This form of concurrent property ownership is typically taught as a separate law school course that also deals with the distribution of marital property upon divorce or the death of a spouse. Semeraro Introduction to Property 84 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests Although the law provides mechanisms to end a CO ownership relationship when the parties cannot agree, courts generally will not attempt to set temporal or spatial limits on the use of the property within a CO tenancy. 
Illustrative cases A critical question in dealing with joint tenancies is whether one joint tenant's encumbering his interest severs the tenancy. As discussed above, most jurisdictions permit a joint tenant to sever the tenancy by merely expressing the intent to do so. But what happens when a joint tenant encumbers the property without expressing an intent to sever? In reading these cases, focus on how they reveal the key differences between joint tenancy and a tenancy in common. Tunhet v. Boswell 18 Cal.3 d. 150, 1976, Mosque, Justice, a joint tenant leases his interest in the joint tenancy property to a third person for a term of years, and dies during that term. We conclude that the lease does not sever the joint tenancy, but expires upon the death of the lessor joint tenant. Raymond Johnson and plaintiff Hazelton had owned a parcel of property as joint tenants. Assertedly without plaintiff's knowledge or consent, Johnson leased the property to defendant Boswell for a period of 10 years at a rental of $150 per year with a provision granting the lessee an option to purchase. The lease did not disclose that the lessor possessed only a joint interest in the property. To the contrary, the option to purchase implied that the lessor possessed a fee simple. Johnson died some three months after execution of the lease, and plaintiff sought to establish her sole right to possession of the property as the surviving joint tenant. After an unsuccessful demand upon defendant to vacate the premises, plaintiff brought this action to have the lease declared invalid. The trial court sustained demurrers to the complaint, and plaintiff appealed from the ensuing judgment of dismissal. To an understanding of the nature of a joint interest in this state is fundamental to a determination of the question whether the present lease severed the joint tenancy. Civil Code Section 683 provides in part, a joint interest is one owned by two or more persons in equal shares, by a title created by a single will or transfer, when expressly declared in the will or transfer to be a joint tenancy. This statute, requiring an express declaration for the creation of joint interests, does not abrogate the common law rule that four unities are essential to an estate in joint tenancy, unity of interest, unity of time, unity of title, and unity of possession. The requirement of four unities reflects the basic concept that there is but one estate which is taken jointly, if an essential unity is destroyed the joint tenancy is severed and a tenancy in common results. Swartzbaugh v. Sampson, 1936, 11 Cal.F.2D451, 454. Accordingly, one of two joint tenants may unilaterally terminate the joint tenancy by conveying his interest to a third person. Severance of the joint tenancy, of course, extinguishes the principal feature of that estate the use accrescendi or right of survivorship. Thus, a joint tenant's right of survivorship is an expectancy that is not irrevocably fixed asterisk ed note, an excerpt from the Swartzbaugh case is reproduced later in this section of Chapter 3. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2. Distinguishing interests 85 upon the creation of the estate, it arises only upon success in the ultimate gamble survival and then only if the unity of the estate has not theretofore been destroyed by voluntary conveyance, by partition proceedings, by involuntary alienation under an execution, or by any other action which operates to sever the joint tenancy. Our initial inquiry is whether the partial alienation of Johnson's interest in the property affected a severance of the joint tenancy under these principles. 
it could be argued that a lease destroys the unities of interest and possession because the leasing joint tenant transfers to the lessee his present possessory interest and retains a mere reversion. Moreover, the possibility that the term of the lease may continue beyond the lifetime of the lessor is inconsistent with a complete right of survivorship. On the other hand, if the lease entered into here by Johnson and defendant is valid only during Johnson's life, then the conveyance is more a variety of life estate per vie than a term of years. Such a result is inconsistent with Johnson's freedom to alienate his interest during his lifetime. We are mindful that the issue here presented is an ancient controversy, going back to Coke and Littleton. 2 AM Law of PROP, 1951, 6.2, P10 Yet the problem is like a comet in our law, though its existence in theory has been frequently recognized, its observed passages are few. Some authorities support the view that a lease by a joint tenant to a third person affects a complete and final severance of the joint tenancy. Such a view is generally based upon what is thought to be the English common law rule. Others adopt a position that there is a temporary severance during the term of the lease. If the lessor dies while the lease is in force, under this view the existence of the lease at the moment when the right of survivorship would otherwise take effect operates as a severance, extinguishing the joint tenancy. If, however, the term of the lease expires before the lessor, it is reasoned that the joint tenancy is undisturbed because the joint tenants resume their original relation. The single conclusion that can be drawn from centuries of academic speculation on the question is that its resolution is unclear. As we shall explain, it is our opinion that a lease is not so inherently inconsistent with joint tenancy as to create a severance, either temporary or permanent. Under Civil Code Section 683 and 686 a joint tenancy must be expressly declared in the creating instrument, or a tenancy in common results. This is a statutory departure from the common law preference in favor of joint tenancy. Inasmuch as the estate arises only upon express intent, and in many cases such intent will be the intent of the joint tenants themselves, we decline to find a severance in circumstances which do not clearly and unambiguously establish that either of the joint tenants desired to terminate the estate. If plaintiff and Johnson did not choose to continue the joint tenancy, they might have converted it into a tenancy in common by written mutual agreement. They might also have jointly conveyed the property to a third person and divided the proceeds. Even if they could not agree to act in concert, either plaintiff or Johnson might have severed the joint tenancy, with or without the consent of the other, by an act which was clearly indicative of an intent to terminate, such as a conveyance of her or his entire interest. Either might also have brought an action to partition the property, which, upon judgment, would have effected a severance. Because a joint tenancy may be created only by express intent, and because there are alternative and unambiguous means of altering the nature of that estate, we hold that the lease here in issue did not operate to sever the joint tenancy. Having concluded that the joint tenancy was not severed by the lease and that sole ownership of the property therefore vested in plaintiff upon her joint tenant's death by operation of her right of survivorship, we turn next to the issue whether she takes the property unencumbered by the lease. Semeraro Introduction to Property 86 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests in Arguing that Plaintiff Takes Subject to the Lease, Defendant Relies on Swartz Bobby Sampson. In that case, 
one of two joint tenants entered into lease agreements over the objection of his joint tenant wife, who sought to cancel the leases. The court held in favor of the lessor joint tenant, concluding that the leases were valid. But the suit to cancel the lease in Swartzbaugh was brought during the lifetime of both joint tenants, not as in the present case after the death of the lessor. Significantly, the court concluded that a lease to all of the joint property by one joint tenant is not a nullity but is a valid and supportable contract in so far as the interest of the lessor in the joint property is concerned. During the lifetime of the lessor joint tenant, as the Swartzbach court perceived, her interest in the joint property was an undivided interest in fee simple that encompassed the right to lease the property. By the very nature of joint tenancy, however, the interest of the non-surviving joint tenant extinguishes upon his death. And as the lease is valid only in so far as the interest of the lessor in the joint property is concerned, it follows that the lease of the joint tenancy property also expires when the lessor dies. This conclusion is borne out by decisions in this state involving liens on and mortgages of joint tenancy property. In Ziegler v. Bonnell, 1942, 52 Cal.App.2D217, the Court of Appeal ruled that a surviving joint tenant takes an estate free from a judgment lien on the interest of a deceased co-tenant judgment debtor. The court reasoned that the right of survivorship is the chief characteristic that distinguishes a joint tenancy from other interests in property. The judgment lien of, the creditor, could attach only to the interest of his debtor. That interest terminated upon, the debtor's, death. ID at 219-20. After his death the deceased joint tenant had no interest in the property, and his judgment creditor has no greater rights. ID at 220. A similar analysis was followed in People v. Noguru, 1958, 164 Cal.App.2D591, which held that upon the death of a joint tenant who had executed a mortgage on the tenancy property, the surviving joint tenant took the property free of the mortgage. The court reasoned that as the mortgage lien attached only to such interest as the deceased joint tenant had in the real property comma when his interest ceased to exist the lien of the mortgage expired with it. ID at 594. As these decisions demonstrate, a joint tenant may, during his lifetime, grant certain rights in the joint property without severing the tenancy. But when such a joint tenant dies his interest dies with him, and any encumbrances placed by him on the property become unenforceable against the surviving joint tenant. For the reasons stated a lease falls within this rule. Any other result would defeat the justifiable expectations of the surviving joint tenant. Thus if A agrees to create a joint tenancy with B, A can reasonably anticipate that when B dies A will take an unencumbered interest in fee simple. During his lifetime, of course, B may sever the tenancy or lease his interest to a third party. But to allow B to lease for a term continuing after his death would indirectly defeat the very purposes of the joint tenancy. For example, for personal reasons B might execute a 99-year lease on valuable property for a consideration of $1 a year. A would then take a fee simple on B's death, but would find his right to use the property and its market value substantially impaired. This circumstance would effectively nullify the benefits of the right of survivorship, the basic attribute of the joint tenancy. On the other hand, we are not insensitive to the potential injury that may be sustained by a person in good faith who leases from one joint tenant. 
in some circumstances a lessee might be unaware that his lessor is not a fee-simple owner but merely a joint tenant, and could find himself unexpectedly evicted when the lessor dies prior to expiration of the lease. This result would be avoided by a prudent lessee who conducts a title search semeraro, introduction to property 2. Distinguishing interests 87 prior to leasing, but we appreciate that such a course would often be economically burdensome to the lessee of a residential dwelling or a modest parcel of property. Nevertheless, it must also be recognized that every lessee may one day face the unhappy revelation that his lessor's estate in the leased property is less than a fee simple. For example, a lessee who innocently rents from the holder of a life estate is subject to risks comparable to those imposed upon a lessee of joint tenancy properly. More significantly, we cannot allow extraneous factors to erode the functioning of joint tenancy. The estate of joint tenancy is firmly embedded in centuries of real property law and in the California statute books. Its crucial element is the right of survivorship, a right that would be more illusory than real if a joint tenant were permitted to lease for a term continuing after his death. Accordingly, we hold that under the facts alleged in the complaint the lease herein is no longer valid. Harms v. Sprague 105 Il 2D 215, 1984, Moran, Justice, Plaintiff, William H. Harms, filed a complaint to quiet title and for declaratory judgment in the Circuit Court of Greene County. Plaintiff had taken title to certain real estate with his brother John R. Harms, as a joint tenant, with full right of survivorship. The plaintiff named, as a defendant, Charles D. Sprague, the executor of the estate of John Harms and the devisee of all the real and personal property of John Harms. Also named as defendants were Carl T. and Mary E. Simmons, alleged mortgagees of the property in question. Defendant Sprague filed a counterclaim against plaintiff, challenging plaintiff's claim of ownership of the entire tract of property and asking the court to recognize his, Sprague's, interest as a tenant in common, subject to a mortgage lien. At issue was the effect the granting of a mortgage by John Harms had on the joint tenancy. Also at issue was whether the mortgage survived the death of John Harms as a lien against the property. The trial court held that the mortgage given by John Harms to defendants Carl and Mary Simmons severed the joint tenancy. Further, the court found that the mortgage survived the death of John Harms as a lien against the undivided one-half interest in the property which passed to Sprague by and through the will of the deceased. The appellate court reversed, finding that the mortgage given by one joint tenant of his interest in the property does not sever the joint tenancy. Accordingly, the appellate court held that plaintiff, as the surviving joint tenant, owned the property in its entirety, unencumbered by the mortgage lien. Defendant Sprague filed a petition for leave to appeal in this court. Subsequently, defendants Carl and Mary Simmons petitioned this court to supplement Sprague's petition for leave to appeal. That motion was granted and the petition for leave to appeal was allowed. Two issues are raised on appeal, one, is a joint tenancy severed when less than all of the joint tenants mortgage their interest in the property? And, two, does such a mortgage survive the death of the mortgager as a lien on the property? A review of the stipulation of facts reveals the following. Plaintiff, William Harms, and his brother John Harms, took title to real estate located in Root House, on June 26, 1973, as joint tenants. 
The warranty deed memorializing this transaction was recorded on June 29, 1973, in the office of the Greene County Recorder of Deeds. Carl and Mary Simmons owned a lot and home in Root House. Charles Sprague entered into an agreement with the Simmons whereby Sprague was to purchase their property for $25,000. Sprague tendered $18,000 in cash and signed a promissory note for the balance of $7,000. Because Sprague had no security for the $7,000, he asked his Semeraro, Introduction to Property 88 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests Friend, John Harms, to CO sign the note and give a mortgage on his interest in the joint tenancy property. Harms agreed, and on June 12, 1981, John Harms and Charles Sprague, jointly and severally, executed a promissory note for $7,000 payable to Carl and Mary Simmons. The note states that the principal sum of $7,000 was to be paid from the proceeds of the sale of John Harms' interest in the joint tenancy property but in any event no later than six months from the date the note was signed. The note reflects that five monthly interest payments had been made, with the last payment recorded November 6, 1981. In addition, John Harms executed a mortgage, in favor of the Simmonses, on his undivided one-half interest in the joint tenancy property, to secure payment of the note. William Harms was unaware of the mortgage given by his brother. John Harms moved from his joint tenancy property to the Simmons property which had been purchased by Charles Sprague. On December 10, 1981, John Harms died. By the terms of John Harms' will, Charles Sprague was the devisee of his entire estate. The mortgage given by John Harms to the Simmonses was recorded on December 29, 1981. Prior to the appellate court decision in the instant case, no court of this state had directly addressed the principal question we are confronted with here in the effect of a mortgage, executed by less than all of the joint tenants, on the joint tenancy. Nevertheless, there are numerous cases which have considered the severance issue in relation to other circumstances surrounding a joint tenancy. All have necessarily focused on the four unities which are fundamental to both the creation and the perpetuation of the joint tenancy. These are the unities of interest, title, time, and possession. The voluntary or involuntary destruction of any of the unities by one of the joint tenants will sever the joint tenancy. In a series of cases, this court has considered the effect that judgment liens upon the interest of one joint tenant have on the stability of the joint tenancy. In People's Trust and Savings Bank v. Haas, 1927, 328 ill 468, the court found that a judgment lien secured against one joint tenant did not serve to extinguish the joint tenancy. As such, the surviving joint tenant succeeded to the title in fee to the whole of the land by operation of law. 328 ill 468, 471. Citing to Haas for this general proposition, the court in Van Antwerp v. Horen, 1945, 390 ill 448, extended the holding in Haas to the situation where a levy is made under execution upon the interest of the debtor joint tenant. The court found that the levy was not such an act as can be said to have the effect of a divestiture of title asterisk 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 so as to destroy the identity of interest or of any other unity which must occur before asterisk 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 the estate of joint tenancy has been severed and destroyed. 
390 il 449 455. In yet another case involving the attachment of a judgment lien upon the interest of a joint tenant, Jackson v. Lacey, 1951, 408 il 530, the court held that the estate of joint tenancy had not been destroyed. As in Van Antwerp, the judgment creditor had levied on the interest of the joint tenant debtor. In addition, that interest was sold by the bailiff of the municipal court to the other joint tenant, who died intestate before the time of redemption expired. While the court recognized that a conveyance, even if involuntary, destroys the unity of title and severs the joint tenancy, it held that there would be no conveyance until the redemption period had expired without a redemption. As such, title was not as yet divested and the estate in joint tenancy was unaltered. Clearly, this court adheres to the rule that a lien on a joint tenant's interest in property will not effectuate a severance of the joint tenancy, absent the conveyance by a deed following the expiration of a redemption period. It follows, therefore, that if Illinois perceives a mortgage as merely a lien on the mortgager's interest in property rather than a conveyance of title from mortgager to mortgagee, the execution of a mortgage by a joint tenant, on his interest in the property, would not destroy the unity of title and sever the joint tenancy. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 2 Distinguishing interests 89 early cases in Illinois, however, followed the title theory of mortgages. In 1900, this court recognized the common law precept that a mortgage was a conveyance of a legal estate vesting title to the property in the mortgagee. Consistent with this title theory of mortgages, therefore, there are many cases which state, in dicta, that a joint tenancy is severed by one of the joint tenants mortgaging his interest to a stranger. Yet even the early case of Lightcap v. Bradley, recognized that the title held by the mortgagee was for the limited purpose of protecting his interests. The court went on to say that the mortgager is the owner for every other purpose and against every other person. The title of the mortgagee is anomalous, and exists only between him and the mortgager asterisk asterisk star. 186 il 510, 519. Because our cases had early recognized the unique and narrow character of the title that passed to a mortgagee under the common law title theory, it was not a drastic departure when this court expressly characterized the execution of a mortgage as a mere lien in Kling v. Gilarducci, 1954. 3L2D455. In Kling, the court was confronted with the question of when a separation of title, necessary to create an easement by implication, had occurred. The court found that title to the property was not separated with the execution of a trust deed but rather only upon execution and delivery of a master's deed. The court stated, in some jurisdictions the execution of a mortgage is a severance, in others, the execution of a mortgage is not a severance. In Illinois the giving of a mortgage is not a separation of title, for the holder of the mortgage takes only a lien thereunder. After foreclosure of a mortgage and until delivery of the master's deed under the foreclosure sale, purchaser acquires no title to the land either legal or equitable. Title to land sold under mortgage foreclosure remains in the mortgager or his grantee until the expiration of the redemption period and conveyance by the master's deed. 3L2D 455, 460. Kling and later cases rejecting the title theory do not involve the severance of joint tenancies. As such, 
they have not expressly disavowed the dicta of joint tenancy cases which have stated that the act of mortgaging by one joint tenant results in the severance of the joint tenancy. We find, however, that implicit in Kling and our more recent cases which follow the lien theory of mortgages is the conclusion that a joint tenancy is not severed when one joint tenant executes a mortgage on his interest in the property, since the unity of title has been preserved. As the appellate court in the instant case correctly observed, if giving a mortgage creates only a lien, then a mortgage should have the same effect on a joint tenancy as a lien created in other ways. 119 IL App.3 D 503, 507 Other jurisdictions following the lien theory of mortgages have reached the same result. A joint tenancy has been defined as a present estate in all the joint tenants, each being seized of the whole asterisk asterisk star. Partridge v Berliner, 1927, 325 IL 253, 257 an inherent feature of the estate of joint tenancy is the right of survivorship, which is the right of the last survivor to take the whole of the estate. Because we find that a mortgage given by one joint tenant of his interest in the property does not sever the joint tenancy, we hold that the plaintiff's right of survivorship became operative upon the death of his brother. As such plaintiff is now the sole owner of the estate, in its entirety. Further, we find that the mortgage executed by John Harms does not survive as a lien on plaintiff's property. A surviving joint tenant succeeds to the share of the deceased joint tenant by virtue of the conveyance which created the joint tenancy, not as the successor of the deceased. The property right of the mortgaging joint tenant is extinguished at the moment of his death. While John Harms was alive, the mortgage existed as a lien on his interest in the joint tenancy. Upon his death, his interest ceased to exist and along with it the lien of the mortgage. Under the circumstances of this case, we would note that the Semeraro, Introduction to Property 90 Chapter 3, concurrent interests mortgage given by John Harms to the Simmonses was only valid as between the original parties during the lifetime of John Harms since it was unrecorded. In addition, recording the mortgage subsequent to the death of John Harms was a nullity. As we stated above, John Harms' property rights in the joint tenancy were extinguished when he died. Thus, he no longer had a property interest upon which the mortgage lien could attach. In their petition to supplement Defendant Sprague's petition for leave to appeal, the Simmonses argue that the application of Section 20-19 of the Probate Act of 1975 to the facts of this case would mandate a finding that their mortgage on the subject property remains as a valid encumbrance in the hands of the surviving joint tenant. Section 20-19 reads in relevant part, a, when any real estate or leasehold estate in real estate subject to an encumbrance, or any beneficial interest under a trust of real estate or leasehold estate in real estate subject to an encumbrance, is specifically bequeathed or passes by joint tenancy with right of survivorship or by the terms of a trust agreement or other non-testamentary instrument, the legatee, surviving tenant, or beneficiary to whom the real estate, leasehold estate or beneficial. Interest is given or passes, takes its subject to the encumbrance and is not entitled to have the indebtedness paid from other real or personal estate of the decedent. Il Reverend Stat 1981, CH 11-1-2-19. .5, While the Simmonses have maintained from the outset that their mortgage followed title to the property, 
they did not raise the applicability of Section 20-19 of the Probate Act of 1975 at the trial level, and thus the issue is deemed waived. Moreover, because we have found that the lien of mortgage no longer exists against the property, Section 2019 is inapplicable, since plaintiff, as the surviving joint tenant, did not take the property subject to an encumbrance. For the reasons stated herein, the judgment of the appellate court is affirmed. Three actions among CO owners' property law generally does not limit the use of CO owned property or dictate many aspects of the relationships among the owners. Instead, it relies on voluntary agreements among the owners to set the terms of their relationship. The law does provide three types of actions that CO owners can use when private agreements prove inadequate to the task of managing the relationship. A accounting action in an accounting action, one CO owner seeks to recover his proportionate share of income that is generated by the property. Typical ways in which CO owned property may generate income are, 1 the sale of natural resources taken from the property, or 2 rental income paid by non-owners of the property. In these cases, all property owners are entitled to a share of the revenue that is proportionate to their ownership interest. In general, a tenant in possession has no special claim to a greater share of the revenue generated. The distribution may be altered, however, as a result of monies paid out on behalf of the property by a CO owner. See Infra Chap 3, Section 4. Importantly, an accounting action in most jurisdictions does not allow CO owners to demand payment from a CO owner who uses the property as a residence or to run a business. CO owners are not obligated to pay rent to other CO owners, nor must they share semeraro. Introduction to Property 3. Actions among CO owners 91 The profits of any business operated on the CO owned property. All CO owners, of course, have the right to use the property subject to the rights of the others. This right of unity of possession is protected by a damages action for ouster, discussed below, but it does not generally compel CO owners to compensate each other simply because they derive direct personal benefit from the property. A few jurisdictions, however, provide that a CO owner in exclusive possession must pay rent to other CO owners. For more analysis of this issue see Evelyn A. Lewis, Struggling with Quicksand, The Ins and Outs of CO Tenant Possession Value Liability and a Call for Default Rule Reform, 1994 WISL Rev 331. B. Partition Action Where CO Owners Decide That They Can No Longer Deal With Each Other, They Can File a Partition Action Asking the Court to Divide the Property Between Them. Courts May Partition the Property in Two Ways, one partition in kind an actual physical dividing of the property among the co-owners based on their relative shares, and two partition by sale requiring a judicially supervised sale of the property and division of the proceeds among the CO owners based on their relative shares. Remember that the purchaser at a partition sale may be one of the existing CO owners. The law prefers a partition in kind. The court will order a partition by sale under two circumstances, one, the parties agree to a partition by sale, or two, a partition in kind would result in a dramatic devaluing of the property interest, which may result for one of the following reasons, a, if divided the property cannot be used in an economically reasonable way, e.g., a single storefront, or b, the number of CO owners is so large that if the property were divided each owner's share would be too small to permit a reasonable 
Economic use. In general, a court will not order a partition by sale merely because the property could be worth more as a single parcel than it would as a divided parcel. Where the evidence clearly shows that the value would decrease dramatically if the property is divided, however, courts are inclined to order partition by sale. The following case shows a court working its way through the decision whether to order a partition by sale in light of an argument that dividing the property would reduce its value. Think about the extent to which the party's personal attachment to the property should be a relevant factor in the court's decision as to which type of partition to impose. Delfino v. Vila NCIS 181 con 533, 1980, Healy, Justice, the central issue in this appeal is whether the Superior Court properly ordered the sale, pursuant to General Statutes S. 52-500, of property owned by the plaintiffs and the defendant as tenants in common. The plaintiffs, Angelo and William Delfino, and the defendant, Helen C. Vila NCIS, own, as tenants in common, real property located in Bristol, Connecticut. The property consists of an approximately 20.5-acre parcel of land and the dwelling of the defendant thereon. The plaintiffs own an undivided 99-144 interest in the property, and the defendant owns a 45-144 interest. The defendant occupies the dwelling and a portion of the land, Semeraro, Introduction to Property 92 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests from which she operates a rubbish and garbage removal business. The defendant's business functions on the property consist of the overnight parking, repair, and storage of trucks, including refuse trucks, the repair, storage, and cleaning of dumpsters, the storage of tools, and general office work. No refuse is actually deposited on the property. Apparently, none of the parties is in actual possession of the remainder of the property. The plaintiffs, one of whom is a residential developer, propose to develop the property, upon partition, into 45 residential building lots. In 1978, the plaintiffs brought an action in the trial court seeking a partition of the property by sale with a division of the proceeds according to the party's respective interests. The defendant moved for a judgment of in-kind partition and the appointment of a committee to conduct said partition. The trial court, after a hearing, concluded that a partition in kind could not be had without material injury to the respective rights of the parties, and therefore ordered that the property be sold at auction by a committee and that the proceeds be paid into the court for distribution to the parties. Point five on appeal, the defendant claims essentially that the trial court's conclusion that the party's interests would best be served by a partition by sale is not supported by the findings of subordinate facts and that the court improperly considered certain factors in arriving at that conclusion. In addition, the defendant directs a claim of error to the court's failure to include in its findings of fact a paragraph of her draft findings. General Statutes 52-495 authorizes courts of equitable jurisdiction to order, upon the complaint of any interested person, the physical partition of any real estate held by tenants in common, and to appoint a committee for that purpose. Point seven. When, however, in the opinion of the court a sale of the jointly owned property will better promote the interests of the owners, the court may order such a sale under 52 to 500. It has long been the policy of this court, as well as other courts, to favor a partition in kind over a partition by sale. See Harrison v. International Silver Co., 
78 con 417, 1905. The first Connecticut statute that provided for an absolute right to partition by physical division was enacted in 1720, statutes, 1796, the substance of which remains virtually unchanged today. Due to the possible impracticality of actual division, this state, like others, expanded the right to partition to allow a partition by sale under certain circumstances. The early decisions of this court that considered the partition by sale statute emphasized that, t, he statute giving the power of sale introduces no new principles, it provides only for an emergency, when a division cannot be well made, in any other way. The Earl of Clarendon v. Hornby, 1p.wms, 446 Kent's Commander, 365. The court later expressed its reason for preferring partition in kind when it stated, a sale of one's property without his consent is an extreme exercise of power warranted only in clear cases. Fork v. Kirk, 41 con 9, 12, 1894. Although under general statutes 52 to 500 a court is no longer required to order a partition in kind even in cases of extreme difficulty or hardship, it is clear that a partition by sale should be ordered only when two conditions are satisfied, 1, the physical attributes of the land are such that a partition in kind is impracticable or inequitable, and, 2, the interests of the owners would better be promoted by a partition by sale. Since our law has for many years presumed that a partition in kind would be in five such a partition is authorized by general statutes S 52 to 495 which states, partition of joint and common estates. Courts having jurisdiction of actions for equitable relief may, upon the complaint of any person interested, order partition of any real estate held in joint tenancy, tenancy in common or coparcenary, and may appoint a committee for that purpose, and may in like manner make partition of any real estate held by tenants in tail, and decrees a parting entailed estates shall bind the parties and all persons who thereafter claim title to such estate as heirs of their bodies. 7. If the physical partition results in unequal shares, a money award can be made from one tenant to another to equalize the shares. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3. Actions among CO Owners 93 The best interests of the owners, the burden is on the party requesting a partition by sale to demonstrate that such a sale would better promote the owner's interests. The defendant claims in effect that the trial court's conclusion that the rights of the parties would best be promoted by a judicial sale is not supported by the findings of subordinate facts. We agree. Under the test set out above, the court must first consider the practicability of physically partitioning the property in question. The trial court concluded that due to the situation and location of the parcel of land, the size and area of the property, the physical structure and appurtenances on the property, and other factors, a physical partition of the property would not be feasible. An examination of the subordinate findings of facts and the exhibits, however, demonstrates that the court erred in this respect. It is undisputed that the property in question consists of one 20.5-acre parcel, basically rectangular in shape, and one dwelling, located at the extreme western end of the property. Two roads, Dino Road and Lucien Court, abut the property and another, Birch Street, provides access through use of a right-of-way. 
unlike cases where there are numerous fractional owners of the property to be partitioned, and the practicability of a physical division is therefore drastically reduced, in this case there are only two competing ownership interests, the plaintiff's undivided 99-144 interest and the defendant's 45-144 interest. These facts, taken together, do not support the trial court's conclusion that a physical partition of the property would not be feasible in this case. Instead, the above facts demonstrate that the opposite is true, a partition in kind clearly would be practicable under the circumstances of this case. Although a partition in kind is physically practicable, it remains to be considered whether a partition in kind would also promote the best interests of the parties. In order to resolve this issue, the consequences of a partition in kind must be compared with those of a partition by sale. The trial court concluded that a partition in kind could not be had without great prejudice to the parties since the continuation of the defendant's business would hinder or preclude the development of the plaintiff's parcel for residential purposes, which the trial court concluded was the highest and best use of the property. The court's concern over the possible adverse economic effect upon the plaintiff's interest in the event of a partition in kind was based essentially on four findings, 1. Approval by the City Planning Commission for subdivision of the parcel would be difficult to obtain if the defendant continued her garbage hauling business, 2. Lots in a residential subdivision might not sell, or might sell at a lower price, if the defendant's business continued, 3. If the defendant were granted the 1. Acre parcel, on which her residence is situated and on which her business now operates, three of the lots proposed in the plaintiff's plan to subdivide the property would have to be consolidated and would be lost, and, four, the proposed extension of one of the neighboring roads would have to be rerouted through one of the proposed building lots if a partition in kind were ordered. The trial court also found that the defendant's use of the portion of the property that she occupies is in violation of existing zoning regulations. The court presumably inferred from this finding that it is not likely that the defendant will be able to continue her rubbish hauling operations from this property in the future. The court also premised its forecast that the planning commission would reject the plaintiff's subdivision plan for the remainder of the property on the finding that the defendant's use was invalid. These factors basically led the trial court to conclude that the interests of the parties would best be protected if the land were sold as a unified unit for residential subdivision development and the proceeds of such a sale were distributed to the parties. Before we consider whether these reasons are sufficient as a matter of law to overcome the preference for partition in kind that has been expressed in the applicable statute Semeraro, Introduction to Property 94 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests and Our Opinions, we address first the defendant's assignment of error directed to the finding of subordinate facts relating to one of these reasons. The defendant claims that the trial court erred in finding that the defendant's use of a portion of the property is in violation of the existing zoning regulations, and in refusing to find that such use is a valid non-conforming use. The plaintiffs properly point out, however, that the defendant failed to demonstrate that the paragraph of the draft finding that recites that the defendant's use is non-conforming was either admitted or undisputed by the plaintiffs. An examination of that portion of the party's briefs directed to this issue discloses that, for some unexplained reason, the applicable zoning regulations and the date of their enactment were never introduced into evidence at the hearing below. Instead, the parties introduced only inconclusive and hearsay testimony to establish their respective positions on this issue. 
This deficiency in the evidence cuts both ways, however, and requires us to conclude that the particular paragraph of the defendant's draft finding cannot be added to the finding and that the court's finding in this regard must be stricken as unsupported by sufficient competent evidence. We are left, then, with an unassailed finding that the defendant's family has operated a garbage business on the premises since the 1920s and that the city of Bristol has granted the defendant the appropriate permits and licenses each year to operate her business. There is no indication that this practice will not continue in the future. Our resolution of this issue makes it clear that any inference that the defendant would probably be unable to continue her rubbish hauling activity on the property in the future is unfounded. We also conclude that the court erred in concluding that the city's planning commission would probably not approve a subdivision plan relating to the remainder of the property. Any such forecast must be carefully scrutinized as it is difficult to project what a public body will decide in any given matter. In this case, there was no substantial evidence to support a conclusion that it was reasonably probable that the planning commission would not approve a subdivision plan for the remainder of the property. Moreover, there is no suggestion in the statute relating to subdivision approval, that the undeveloped portion of the parcel in issue, which is located in a residential neighborhood, could not be the subject of an approved subdivision plan notwithstanding the nearby operation of the defendant's business. The court's finding indicates that only garbage trucks and dumpsters are stored on the property, that no garbage is brought there, and that the defendant's business operations involve mostly containerized dumpsters, a contemporary development in technology which has substantially reduced the odors previously associated with the rubbish and garbage hauling industry. These facts do not support the court's speculation that the city's planning commission would not approve a subdivision permit for the undeveloped portion of the party's property. The court's remaining observations relating to the effect of the defendant's business on the probable fair market value of the proposed residential lots, the possible loss of building lots to accommodate the defendant's business and the rerouting of a proposed subdivision road, which may have some validity, are not dispositive of the issue. It is the interests of all of the tenants in common that the court must consider, and not merely the economic gain of one tenant, or a group of tenants. The trial court failed to give due consideration to the fact that one of the tenants in common has been in actual and exclusive possession of a portion of the property for a substantial period of time, that the tenant has made her home on the property, and that she derives her livelihood from the operation of a business on this portion of the property, as her family before her has for many years. A partition by sale would force the defendant to surrender her home and, perhaps, would jeopardize her livelihood. It is under just such circumstances, which include the demonstrated practicability of a physical division of the property, that the wisdom of the law's preference for partition in kind is evident. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 3 Actions among CO owners 95 as this court has many times stated, conclusions that violate law, logic, or reason or are inconsistent with the subordinate facts cannot stand Russo v. East Hartford, 179 con 250, 255, 1979. Since the property in this case may practically be physically divided, and since the interests of all owners will better be promoted if a partition in kind is ordered, we conclude that the trial court erred in ordering a partition by sale, and that, under the facts as found, the defendant is entitled to a partition of the property in kind. Notes and Questions 1. 
the issue of what circumstances justify a partition by sale can be challenging. Compare Johnson v. Hendrickson, 71 SD 392, 1946, permitting a patrician by sale because of the number and differing sizes of individual interest despite a family bond to the property, with Arkland Company v. Harper, 215 WV 331, 2004, refusing to allow partition by sale even though the value of the entire property as a coal mining operation would outstrip the value of the divided property where there was a substantial family bond to the property. See Ouster CO owners have the right to use 100% of the CO owned property subject to the rights of the other owners, and as a result a CO owner generally has no right to receive rental payments from another CO owner who is using the property. But if one CO owner who is using the property denies another CO owner's reasonable request to use the property, a cause of action for ouster arises. The problem is not that one CO owner is using the entire property, but that he has denied another CO owner his equally valid right to possession. Thus, to maintain an ouster action, a CO owner must show that another CO owner is both, one currently using the property, or some portion of it, exclusively, and two. Denying possession to another CO owner after a reasonable request to use the property. If both elements can be proven, the ousted CO tenant may recover his proportionate share of the reasonable rental value of the property from which he has been ousted. Notice that the measure of damages is objective. A court looks to the fair market value of the property from which the CO tenant was ousted, rather than the actual revenue that a CO tenant in possession may have generated from the property. This measure differs from an accounting action which seeks to divide the actual revenue generated by the property among the CO owners. The following case illustrates how one CO owner may oust another giving rise to this type of cause of action. Spiller v. McArrett 334 SO.2 D859, ALA 1976, Jones, Justice. The pertinent facts are undisputed. In February, 1973, Spiller purchased an undivided one-half interest in a lot in downtown Tuscaloosa. Spiller's co-tenants were McArrett and the other appellees. At the time Spiller bought his interest, the lot was being rented by an automobile supply business called Auto Right. In May, 1973, Spiller offered to purchase McArrett's interest in the property. McArrett refused and made a counteroffer to purchase Spiller's interest which Spiller refused. Spiller then filed the complaint seeking sale for division on July 11, 1973. Semeraro, Introduction to Property 96 Chapter 3, Concurrent Interests in October, 1973, Autoright vacated the building which it had been renting for $350 per month and Spiller begun to use the entire building as a warehouse. On November 15, 1973, Macaretha's attorney sent a letter to Spiller demanding that he either vacate one half of the building or pay rent. Spiller did not respond to the letter, vacate the premises, or pay rent, therefore, Macareth brought this counterclaim to collect the rental she claimed Spiller owed her. Since there is no real dispute concerning the essential facts in this case, we will limit our review to the trial judge's application of the law to the facts. On the question of Spiller's liability for rent, we start with the general rule that in absence of an agreement to pay rent or an ouster of a co-tenant, 
a co-tenant in possession is not liable to his co-tenants for the value of his use and occupation of the property. Since there was no agreement to pay rent, there must be evidence which establishes an ouster before Spiller is required to pay rent to Macareth. The difficulty in this determination lies in the definition of the word ouster. Ouster is a conclusory word which is used loosely in co-tenancy cases to describe two distinct fact situations. The two fact situations are, 1, the beginning of the running of the statute of limitations for adverse possession and, 2, the liability of an occupying co-tenant for rent to other co-tenants. Although the cases do not acknowledge a distinction between the two uses of ouster, it is clear that the two fact situations require different elements of proof to support a conclusion of ouster. The Alabama cases involving adverse possession require a finding that the possessing CO tenant asserted complete ownership to the land to support a conclusion of ouster. The finding of assertion of ownership may be established in several ways. Some cases find an assertion of complete ownership from a composite of activities such as renting part of the land without accounting, hunting the land, cutting timber, assessing and paying taxes and generally treating the land as if it were owned in fee for the statutory period. Other cases find the assertion of complete ownership from more overt activities such as a sale of the property under a deed purporting to convey the entire fee. But whatever factual elements are present, the essence of the finding of an ouster in the adverse possession cases is a claim of absolute ownership and a denial of the co-tenancy relationship by the occupying co-tenant. In the Alabama cases which adjudicate the occupying co-tenant's liability for rent, a claim of absolute ownership has not been an essential element. The normal fact situation which will render an occupying co-tenant liable to out-of-possession co-tenants is one in which the occupying co-tenant refuses a demand of the other co-tenants to be allowed into use and enjoyment of the land, regardless of a claim of absolute ownership. The instant case involves a co-tenant's liability for rent. Indeed, the adverse possession rule is precluded in this case by Spiller's acknowledgement of the CO-tenancy relationship as evidenced by filing the bill for partition. We can affirm the trial court if the record reveals some evidence that MacAreth actually sought to occupy the building but was prevented from moving in by Spiller. To prove ouster, MacAreth's attorney relies upon the letter of November 15, 1973, as a sufficient demand and refusal to establish Spiller's liability.